everyone, and welcome to Between the Sheets, episode number 339. I'm your host, Chris Zellner, joined as always by my co-host, David Bix and Span. And Bix, you are fresh off a big weekend that you just uh, lived through, so to speak. India Wrestling Hall of Fame banquet, the big GCW show at the Hammerstein. So before we get into all the stuff for our show this week, uh, how was your weekend? Tiring. <laughs> yeah, I'm sure it was. Yes. I had a, a, a very between the sheets weekend because all the people that was involved on uh, both uh, both deals. Three, three of the four people who did commentary on uh, the Hammerstein show have been guests on the show. That's right. Yes. 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 And now we have our own Hall of Famer too, and and Dave Brazak. Yep. Absolutely. So have you gotten to check out the at least his his and Punk speeches and Lenny and Lufisto speeches yet? I haven't had the time. Okay. Well, NFL NFL took up my weekend. That's what I was gonna say. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I know how you are with that. So, but I know you'll be watching because you know it is free on the GCW YouTube. And, yes, you know, it is. It is. And whatever some people might think about GCW, Brett and I think some of the other people involved too have been very clear. This they want to make it clear that they don't think of this as a GCW thing. They want this to, as much as it can, belong to the entire indie wrestling community, which is why it wasn't on a pay per view. And I, it didn't seem like it was scaled particularly, you know, big as far as the gate, you know. So I think it's it was it's a I think a smaller room than it looked like in the photos, the cutting room, the dinner theater place it was at. So, you know, I I appreciate that. And, you know, look, I mean, it was, you know, there was a CZW flavor and, you know, people related to GCW for some of these inaugural inductions. But, you know, for the first class, I think, of course, you would do that. But also everyone was very deserving. Oh, yeah. And what about the show itself, Hammerstein? It was definitely better live than it seemed like it came off on pay-per-view. <laughs> Yeah. Yes. Um, well, well, for I think some of the production reasons that people have been talking about for uh, several months now, but uh, but I think that's going to hurt in in general because you know even if you don't like some of the matches, if the atmosphere had come across, it might enhance it, et cetera, et cetera. So I I, I get that, but it, it seems like everyone greatly enjoyed the. Uh, Lucha Trios match, though, regardless of whether they were there live or watching it on pay-per-view. And, you know, we were talking about this off the air. I mean, it, the, the the show definitely was great for the people that it was aimed at. And that's kind of what you want to do, you know. Anyway, you definitely want to make your, your regular customers happy. You don't want to piss them off and don't want to give them something that they feel like they've been cheated on. You also need to try to, you know, appeal to a broader base if you can. But as long as you're keeping your people happy, then, hey, what can you say? You know, you're doing yes. your job. And, you know, look, I I'm, I do not have any kind of intimate familiarity with the finances of GCW. But based on, you know, obviously things are a little different now that they're drawing so well so many places, although they still pretty much pack the places. Something that's always struck me about GCW is that the venues they run, it's always scaled right. You don't, you generally don't see them running 
places except for certain pandemic scenarios where they have a lot, you know, any kind of real noticeable empty space. And which is to say, it's like, this is, it is still, a, you know, I think they're making money, but yes, you have, I was going to that because of what you said. Yes. You have the loyal customer base and, you know, God knows from the crowd reactions during the battle Royal and stuff, that was a building that was clearly mostly people who are either regulars at the shows or regulars watching on fight. So yeah, I mean, I think that was some of the stuff that rubbed people the wrong way too. Also that stuff that was clearly designed to continue storylines also had the bigger, you know, out so-called outside names going over. Whereas I think some people were coming into it as a one-off show. Yeah. You know? So yeah, I, I, I get why people think though, that maybe there, that should have been tweaked a little bit in the other direction. Although, you know, Gage and Tremont winning the the main event, though, over the Briscoes. They still got the big, you know, GCW home team victory to close the show. Anyway, but it as I love the show, but I think overall, though, the, the highlight of the weekend, though, for me, I think, is the Indie Hall of Fame. But also, in a way, like the way it was intertwined with the pay-per-view that, you know, Lou Fisto and Homicide and, I mean, everyone that was, you know, everyone that's active outside of, I guess... Of the actual inductees was did work on the pay per view, so you know it was kind of together. But you know, especially seeing Prazak, you know, getting his flowers, so to speak. Though I was glad I got to be there. Yeah. All right. Also, before we get started with the show, let's talk about Patreon. Patreon.com slash between the sheets. And by the time you hear this, our new Patreon show will be up, covering Joel Goodhart's TWA. Based out Philadelphia, the original Super Indie. Yes, and, and uh, uh, well, speaking of uh, Philadelphia area-based Indies that get increasingly divisive based on the balance they have of uh, more violent, bloody matches and the less violent and bloody and more technical matches. <laughs> yeah, I guess, but Joel Goodhart, I mean, the TWA promotion and all his shows was the the godfather of where we're at now. I mean, it begat ECW and ECW begat, you know, CZW and Jersey all pro and all those, you know, all those promotions and they begat GCW. So, I mean, this is where it all began is, uh, this promotion that lasted only a couple of years in 1990, 1991. And we go deep in discussing that as we talk about Joel Goodhart's background with his wrestling radio show, the Square to Circle Store, getting a local new, uh, pub in the Philly newspapers. We even play him uh, and his cohorts on the Jerry Lawler show in Memphis from 1987 on one of their tours because they did a lot of bus trips around the country to go see wrestling. And then we talk about him being a ring announcer at various shows, holding luncheons and all this, which led to him starting up his own promotion. And where he brought in all the top free agents around the wrestling scene in, in 1991 and all the crazy booking and all the big names and how, you know, how he did there. And just a lot of other things in general, how, you know, basically how, when the wheels fell off, how he, uh, how he acted in that. And, um, you know, it's a lesson for sure for people that uh, might want to become wrestling promoters, uh, do not do what he did. So you, you need to, um, you listen and pay attention, and you'll learn on this show. And yeah, I mean, this is a a lot of people that were around in that era know all the Joel Goodhart stuff. But you know, hell, it's over thirty years ago, and a lot of people 
may just know Joel Goodhart from you know, seeing the TWA stuff on YouTube or seeing results or hearing about Eddie Gilbert, Cactus Jack, and this and the other. This show will tell the story. Yes. Uh, well, because also we should – I mean we should know that – you know, because, you know, we went much deeper than, you know, The Observer was the main newsletter covering show to show. But, you know, we've got a lot of the newspaper stuff, including, you know, about the store, or about how he's even before he launched TWA, how he was ruining his finances with all this wrestling related stuff. We have uh, an interview he gave probably I mean, it was published the month that he closed, but probably done a month or two before then with Wrestling Then and Now, and also um, an article in Wrestling Perspective that talks to Dennis Corluzo and Larry Sharp and others of kind of going over why things went so badly for Goodhart and how he was overspending relative to other promoters based on people's asking prices, et cetera, et cetera. So we got a lot of details in there that people might not know about. I mean, one thing that, you know, was – I'll mention it here just to give an idea of how deep it goes – I hadn't realized this, and I don't think you you had the results for this, but I don't think you realized who the local promoter was. We realize, uh, recording the show, that he and his partner in the Squared Circle, Carmela Panfil, they were the promoters of at least one uh, Crockett Spot show in the Philly area in 1986. Yeah. Yeah. So we'll talk about that and uh, just a lot of other stuff. So $5 a month. Patreon.com slash Between the Sheets. We'll get you access to listen to that, plus all the other shows that we've done in over five years of our Patreon. And go ahead and announce it now, since the show's already out. Next month on Patreon.com slash Between the Sheets, 20 years, the 20th anniversary of Ring of Honor. And we will go in-depth on the genesis of Ring of Honor and how it came to be as it rose from the ashes of extreme championship wrestling. You may not get the correlation, but we, once we do the show, you definitely will. So yes, that will be next month on patreon.com slash between the sheets. So if you uh, want to go ahead and get on the Patreon train, go ahead, get on it. You know, what's coming and believe me, we got an, a great show planned for March too. So get on it while you can. Yes. So patreon.com slash between the sheets. And also we have the annual, Picks that uh, yes. people can do. Yeah, sixteen percent off, which gets which gets you uh, twelve months for uh, fifty dollars and forty cents. Absolutely. So we'll ha- we'll have more on this in halftime. So en- enough of the house cleaning. Let's get to the show, and we are joined by a first time guest this week, and this is uh, gotta be the f- yeah, it's definitely the first time we've had somebody on the show. That wasn't even born <laughs> on the week that we're actually well, covering. Well, not, not counting a few weeks that we've done in 84 with and me, you, but yes. Well, yeah. But yes, we are joined by a dear friend of ours, a loyal listener, and uh, one of the top young wrestling uh, podcasters, uh, writers on the scene, he works with our friends at Voices of Wrestling. We are joined by Lutrasu historian, co-host of the Open Voice Gate podcast, and all kind of other wrestling du jour. Case Lowe! Case, welcome to the show. Oh my god, I'm so happy to be here. I, I have to be the youngest person to ever do this show, which I take as a badge of honor. You are correct in that 
I was not born during the week we're covering. I was born about a week and a half after the week we're covering. <laughs> uh, but I'm absolutely delighted to be here. I, I I remember the first episode of this show coming out and thinking, God, that sounds exhausting. I wonder how long they can keep this up. And uh, here we are now, years later, and I'm I'm so happy to finally be on the show. Yes, 339 shows. Yes. So uh, <laughs> it's crazy to think well, about that. Well, 339 regular shows plus uh, plus all plus the 64 Patreon shows. Yeah. Well, 65 uh, technically because there was the – it's 64 in the numbering, but we did the half AWA show. Um, so we – oh, so yeah, we are – I mean in terms of total, we're over 400. Absolutely. But yes, welcome to the showcase. And there's a reason why. Welcome to the showcase. Yeah, we had. (laughs) Welcome to the showcase. There's a reason why we had you on this show, as we have a very important uh, debut show to talk about in just a little bit that you might know a little bit something about. And it's in a section that we're going to begin with this week that we don't begin with a whole lot, but the biggest news in wrestling during our week takes place here. Japan, Land of the Rising Sun, and we begin with All Japan Pro Wrestling, where a major, major death happened. The death of any major pro wrestling figure makes one reflect upon the past, for Dave Meltzer. But the death of Shohei Baba will likely have repercussions far more telling about the future, and in ways that nobody at this point can predict. More than the death of a wrestling superstar or legendary promoter, of which he was both, and a lot more, his death spells the end of the major chapter in Japanese wrestling history of which he was one of the two main participants. And his death leaves in question the future of the old style of wrestling. We have lengthy main events, clean winners and losers, finishing moves that work against top stars, of which his company was the lone holdover, and the beginning of a new chapter in Japanese wrestling world. What we'll turn it into and how it will get there is far more difficult to examine than what it was and probably never be again. Baba, one of a very small full handful, one of a very small handful of wrestlers, realistically one of only three men in the history of the business who achieved the status of being national figures for several generations far bigger than the wrestling business itself, passed away at 4.04 p.m. on January 31st due to cancer, cancer in the bowels region. Baba belongs with only Antonio Noki and El Santo when it comes to people that everyone in the culture, from grandmothers to young children, vividly knew, like Elvis, possibly the Beatles and the Rolling Stones. His longevity, being a national star for nearly four decades, made him bigger than Ricky Dozan, most famous of the sumos, or even baseball legends like Sadaharu O and Shigeo Nagashima, even if his peak of popularity never reached the levels of Hulk Hogan and never sold merchandise like Steve Austin. His category name recognition that Michael Jordan and Magic Johnson may not have even reached in American sports. And that Hogan, Charles Barkley, Strangler Lewis, Frank Gotch, and Rick Flair never came close to and really couldn't even touch. His political ties to getting things done boggled the mind. Those close to Japan marveled at his ability to keep talent out of legal problems, despite their best lapses of judgment. The most famous story came a few years back when Dr. Def Steve Williams was caught in the Rita Airport with a small amount of marijuana. Well, that would seem insignificant here. In Japan, things aren't as tolerant. Paul McCartney, who one would think could find someone with political strokes somewhere, being who he was at the time, was kept out of Japan for decades for the same offense in Japan, being caught at the airport that would mandate prison time. Baba shook a deal. Doc spent no time in prison. And after not being allowed back in the country for one year, Doc was able to return as if that never happened. 
But this very public figure tried to lead a very quiet, secretive life. And he carried that philosophy to his death. Even his famous marriage was for years a secret. Those in the company and reporters remember Motoko Baba around more, for more than 20 years as his wife and partner in wrestling business. And these are the most powerful women ever in the industry. But it really wasn't until July 7, 1982, that Giant Baba would publicly admit to it. Baba's longevity when it comes to power and shaping the history of the industry could probably only be matched by Anoki. And not for longevity, but for power and shaping history by possibly only Vincent Mann and maybe Tutsmont or Sam Munchnik. In Japan, for whatever cultural reason there is, the word cancer is simply not spoken, which explains the sketchy details over the past two months of Baba's health when it became clear he was in bad shape. Due to the sketchiness, rumors spread that it was cancer and it was far more serious than was being let on. Baba had previous health problems that had been kept quiet and never missed time in the ring for them. His 3,764 consecutive matches without one miss, which realistically is more than 4,100 because his American matches weren't included in that figure, from 1960 through suffering a neck injury in 1984, will never be broken. Which is why when he missed two matches early December without an injury, rumors quickly spread that his health problems must be serious. The death of any major wrestling figure makes one reflect upon the past, but the death of a... Wait a minute, I already read this. But anyway, um, so I got to cut this out. Stupid cut and paste. Um, real quick, I mean, while, while I'm doing that. Um, good Lord. <laughs> 24 years straight. Jesus. <laughs> That's insane. So he came back for what turned out to be his final match in December at Budokan Hall, doing the same match he's done for years, teaming with Russia Kamura Misumamoto to be Haruka Egan, Masafuchi, Shoshikuchi, large of the quote rumors about his health, which also turned out to be the final time he appeared before the public. His death is eerily similar to a man who parts of his career were similar to in life and who he was the final promoter to ever book, Andre the Giant. Andre also in his career six years ago at tag tournament finals at Budokan Hall, doing the same mid-card comedy match, and died several weeks later while never really leaning on to anyone just how close to the end he was. Bob had been diagnosed with the cancer and underwent a first operation on his bowels that was kept quiet. His failure to take his usual December vacation and canceling his proposed trip to the WF pay-per-view show in Vancouver was explained by saying he had suffered a bad cold. He had been released from the hospital in late December and given a positive prognosis that the first operation had removed the cancer. It was said publicly he would be missing the January tour because he was trying to recover from a bad cold, and me and the arenas on the tour didn't have heating, which is not a good sign because it seemed like a rather flimsy story. On January the 8th, when undergoing a routine checkup, it was found that cancer was still there, and he was rushed that day into a second operation on his bowels, which was announced publicly three days later, although the cause was still kept, although the cause still was kept sketchy. No press and wrestlers were allowed at his recent birthday party in the Shinjuku area hospital in Tokyo on January 23rd, which is another bad sign when he turned 61. Far from the usual major celebration it had become in recent years, those allowed to see him were limited to his two closest friends in the company, the ring announcer and the head referee, and his wife Motoku, a widely known controversial figure inside the Japanese wrestling industry, which generally believed will fade away from the scene with his death. Oh, Dave, you just don't know. <laughs> Even Mitsuharu Masawa, who visited Bob in the hospital in December, was given the impression his condition wasn't that serious. When he went again in January to visit him, he wasn't allowed to see him. But was never told until after his death it was cancer, or that his condition was life-threatening. 
Although some rumors popped out of the hospital to those inside the wrestling industry, it wasn't until 27 hours later. A press conference carried live on Nippon TV at 7 p.m. on February the 1st, where Ms. Momota, Jumbo Sharuda, and Ms. Masawa made the announcement that Baba had passed away, that anyone in the public knew. Masawa himself only got the news two hours earlier, and he was now, by virtue of inheritance, one of the four major kings of the industry. All the sports newspapers quickly restructured their front pages. The Super Bowl and the opening of Japanese baseball spring training was certainly not all that important. Most television and radio newscasts carried Baba's death as their lead story. The biggest news station, NHK, similar to PBS in the United States, but far more powerful, which by tradition never carries any pro wrestling news, had it as their third lead story. TVSI, the rival network to Baba's Nippon TV, devoted 20 minutes of their 30-minute newscast to clips and interviews with major sports entertainment figures on Baba. Nippon TV, the network he was synonymous with, was rushing a special into the air. A private funeral, limited to a few friends, family, all Japan wrestling staff was scheduled for February 2nd, where he was cremated. With a more public ceremony scheduled for later in the week. But the overwhelming press demand caused Matoko to waver, and virtually every television station in the country carried it live. Bob on his birthday, eight days before his death, was brought a tape of the Misawa Toshikawada Triple Crown title change match held the night before his last birthday, which it was said put a big smile on his face. And it turned out to be the final wrestling match he ever saw. And he died being the last promoter left presenting that style of wrestling. Some say that Baba was the wealthiest man ever in the wrestling industry, although he was very private on his personal finances as well. Those close to him believe the only man in the industry who would be wealthier is Vincent Mann. Others say perhaps Hulk Hogan. Baba, who in his early days of All Japan Wrestling Promotion, had his share of financial troubles, parlayed the millions he made promoting and wrestling into mainly land and real estate investments in both Hawaii and Japan, starting in the early 1960s, and gaining a fortune through numerous real estate boom periods, in addition to stock market investors that made him a multimillionaire, although it wasn't always that way. Nevertheless, he was a conservative, both fiscally, which caused his promotion to lose ground and change the wrestling world over the past few years, and in the way he lived. It's a somewhat made it forgotten history, historically that's promoter. He was actually one of the greatest innovators in history, particularly developing concepts that stood the test of time. His life was getting on the bus, going to the next city, sit behind the gaming table with his trusty cigar, and quietly giving orders to various messengers that would go to the various wrestlers, presenting a wrestling show, and getting back on the bus to do it again. That's the truth, folks. <laughs> it was the biggest mom and pop wrestling business that ever existed. But the recently departed Sam Mushnick, he used his biggest name talent and some of his biggest egos in the business. But even though it went against the grain of the headliner style and other promotions, they all knew that finishes were not negotiable. He'd never seen the recent years to even worry if the house was big or small because he had more money than he could ever spend. He treated people in the manner he grew up in the business, which at one point made him the promoter everyone wanted to work for because of his reputation for honesty and because he paid more to top talent than any other promoter in the world. Guaranteed until recent years. But in recent years, by not adapting to the changes in the industry, that reputation had changed. After his death, the leading celebrities and sports stars in the country told stories about growing up seeing this larger than life, almost pre slight cultural figure. And his young boys, who grew up to be the best workers in the business for producing the modern era, started out as teenagers washing his back, tying and untying his wrestling boots, running messages, carrying his bags, and slowly paying their dues, so to speak. Where, as the theory goes, when they get a top position, they'll realize how hard they've worked to earn it, and they'll respect it. He wanted to be on that bus because he could have lived his life in France in the Riviera, noted Terry Funk, 
who worked with him in the formation of Hodge Pro Wrestling and booked for the company for the next 15 years, largely making his career on the reputation gained during that time period. He loved doing it that much. He had no need for anything else. Baba promoted wrestling against the grain of common wisdom. Them to the last two or three years was ultra successful at it. His weakening business in recent years wasn't necessarily a message that his concept of wrestling had outlived this time, but the reality of failing, or excuse me, falling to continually failing, yeah, I was right, to continually produce new superstars, which would eventually kill any concept of wrestling. The wisdom of promoting wrestling is to give the audience the product it wants to see, changing constantly to keep up with the changing of the modern taste. Baba's philosophy was different. To him, his role as a promoter was to educate the public and his wrestlers to appreciate what he believed to be good wrestling, combining hard work and psychology. His ideas of pro wrestling should be hard, athletic, respectable work, sans gimmickry and foolishness. In his entire history, uh, in the entire history of All Japan Office, there are only two gimmick matches, both in the early years: a Texas Death Match between Bob and Fritz von Erich, and a Judo Jacket Match between Anton Gesink and Don Leo Jonathan. While his own mid-card match for the past decade was almost complete comedy, with no semblance of being athletics, at least on top of the card, and his shows were always based on the top of the card, the matches were treated as serious sport with drama built to the finish. His idea was to present what his vision of good wrestling is, and teach the public to accept it. And like Muchnik, he was almost always successful in doing so, maintaining a weird credibility of his product because of it. While it's a lot harder to task both to promote because it requires a very physically demanding style to make up for elimination of so many gimmick-oriented shortcuts and angles, and one without the easy gimmicks and all, but most of the basic angles are harder for a wrestler to get over doing and greatly limits the wrestlers who can be successful at the top, because if you can't work the style, you can't maintain the position. Baba's style could only be successful when presented with the top talent to be found in the world. And fortunately for Baba, more often than not, over his days as a promoter, he had enough of it to make it work. Because of it, his style produced more legendary matches than any other even over the past few years. But people forget that Baba Stott wasn't always dated, and for years in many aspects of wrestling. All Japan was a promotional leader in the industry in booking, presentation, product quality, and treatment of the talent. When it came to booking tournaments, no company has ever done so as meticulously and seriously. And those All Japan tournaments have stood the test of time in the boss office, and many finals are clearly remembered by a national audience for, for more than a decade. People think of interest in music as something Gorgeous George did. It was forgotten until Michael Hayes showed up playing Freebird 25 years later. And then Vincent Mann took credit for it years after that. In actuality, it was Baba and All Japan in the early 70s who popularized interest music for big stars. And merchandising interest music albums and tapes, which hit the pop charts a generation for WF The Music Volume 1. All Japan was also the promotion that pioneered merchandising t-shirts and souvenirs also in the early 70s. Long before Vincent Mann saw wrestling operating on that level at a New Japan show and brought the concept to the United States. While All Japan didn't create what would be called hardcore wrestling, it popularized it on Major League stage in the mid-70s for the Funk Brothers' battles against the Sheik and Abdul the Butcher. While Antonio Noki is generally credited with the mixed martial arts gimmick, it was actually Baba who did it first, signing judo legend Anton Gesink of recent Olympic scandal fame and putting him against the top wrestler talent of the day. Baba was also the first promoter to regularly feature a foreigner, the Destroyer, as a regular top babyface in the early 70s. And did would be considered a modern angle, since it was done 26 years ago when Destroyer became the first foreigner to wrestle full-time in Japan and became a crossover television star in the top-rated primetime comedy program on Japanese television. And while filming a live episode, was attacked on stage by Abdul the Butcher, starting a heated program. 
He was the first to book foreigners on the Japanese side in feuds. First destroyer and later the Funks, breaking the traditional Japanese versus Gaijin mentality when it came to the main events. He created the concept of the acrobatic masked man aimed directly for a children's demographic with Mil Mascaris. And he expanded to the next level years later with the first Tiger Mask. And recognizing in 1988 that the second incarnation of the Universal Wrestling Federation had become the hottest wrestling company in the world, and his business was starting to have to play catch-up, Baba totally overhauled his book of philosophy. He spent 16 years of having frequent, predictable double count-off finishes in the big matches to protect egos and unbeatable reputations for the top stars. And by 1990, he had gone to an all-clean finish format, eliminating DQs and count-outs. In his mind, he repeated those close to him, this was his most successful change of all. Uh, to the hottest period of business in the company history. A concept that Terry Funk gave to Paul Heyman. Not so much clean finishes as going to winners and losers, running the easy out DQs as a way to differentiate his own product from the pack a few years later. But the question that must be asked is, where does it go from here? Baba had long since laid the foundation that when the inevitable occurred, the new president of the company would be Masala, who had already taken over as the booker in a power play late last year, and it's been the company's top star for nearly this entire decade. Asawa, 36, is now placed in the inevitable position of trying to continue a legacy, both inside and outside the ring, that few in wrestling history have even come close to approaching. For several years, during a down period of business worldwide, Bobble was drawing the biggest houses, producing the best television, providing the best wrestling matches, at least involving men, anywhere in the world. You know, a few years earlier, Bobble finally agreed to do a Tokyo Dome show on May 1st, 1998. It was the most successful show he would ever promote, drawing 58,300 fans. Featuring Toshan Kawada's first ever singles win to capture the Triple Crown from Masawa. But nothing lasts forever. And the formula, due to a lack of new talent that fit in the mix, and the physical toll of the style taste got stale, and a crew of banged-up top stars. And the company has suffered over the past two years. The recent signing of Vader gave the company a shot in the arm. But it's clearly a stopgap measure. And now, without Baba, the question becomes in this rapidly changing wrestling world of the fad of the week, ruin the roost, what's next? We'll begin to that in just a few minutes. All right, Bix, go to you first. Um, there, ha- there never has been, and probably never will be, anyone like Giant Baba in wrestling. He was a one of a kind in very many ways, and his death, it it changed wrestling forever because of how everything played out afterwards. So, what are your thoughts on uh, on where we're at here at this time with Baba and his impact on the business? Well, first, I'm just still dwelling in my brain for some reason on how such is it's such a Dave thing that he said WWF the Music Volume One when there is no WWF the Music Volume One. <laughs> I know. I know. It's, it's Full Metal the album, per, uh, followed by WWF the Music Volume 2. But they never renamed Full Metal the album WWF the Music Volume 1. So you would think Dave, I mean, th- that would be something that Dave would go after somebody for, too. Yes, it would be. <laughs> That's um, the funny part of it. Yes, but anyway, Baba. Um,. One thing that struck me as we got to the later parts of this is that as much as Masawa tried to change in his last year and a half in All Japan and then in early Noah, I feel like we never talk about it this way, but it's kind of fascinating that 
Noah took off going completely back to Baba style booking. Mm-hmm. Just with junior heavyweights being pushed higher. That's about it. The only difference. Which the is, only difference. Like, because, you know, we have Masawa experimenting with, I don't think it sold the 2000 car, the Carnival, retains it to single elimination, and does the Takao Mori upset push with the, who was it, was it Akiyama he beat in seven seconds, I think? Yeah, something like that. And, um... I feel like there's more like he that I'm forgetting in all Japan at the end. And then, you know, early Noah, there's, um, you know, the presentation changes. There's Daisuke Ikeda coming out with a giant plastic sword. You know, I'm sure I'm forgetting a lot of stuff, but he tried to go like in this slightly more, I don't know if Americanized would be the right word or sports entertainment or what, just he tried. He tried to slant things in a different direction, but it didn't really work. And what what worked was going back to what Baba had done, just in a way that at least was probably trying to adapt better to as far as making new stars, even if it well, didn't work out. I, I, I think. Well, I mean, you got to remember at the time Kabashi's not not wrestling, and uh, Masao was, you know. Hang you hanging for on. much of the first two or three years of knowing it. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And Masao was Masao was aligned with Fuyuki and Hashimoto a lot of the time as friends, and they were you know doing different things. So I think he was just trying to do different things there for a while, and didn't realize that hey, we maybe we need to go back to this old way. And when he started going back to the old way, you know, things started changing. Yeah, and it probably did also help that I think the Kabashi injury layoffs, those long ones, when he finally took the time off, I think those made him a much bigger star. It refreshed him. Yeah. It's like, you know, here's the thing. It's, it, it, you don't know what you got till it's gone. You know, that, that old saying, this song like that, you know, you don't know what you got till it's gone, and absence make the, makes the heart grow fonder. And when you lose somebody like Kabashi and he goes away for a while and he has, you know, this serious health issue, then when they come back, it makes the fans, you know, know, oh, man, you know, this is what I missed, you know. And then he comes back and he's just awesome from the jump. He never really lost his touch. So, I mean, that's that's a big appeal, too, to the to the fans. Yeah, there's a big shot in the arm. Him coming back. Huge. Yes. And um, just as far as so other things with Baba, the Mrs. Baba stuff is interesting. What, Mrs. Baba? <laughs> I should call her Matoka Baba. Um, yeah. Based on the time frame is Dave is giving, though, it's not. it doesn't seem like the marriage was kayfabed that long, though. Only a few well, years, which is, I guess, still more than most, but... It, it, it happened. That stuff happened. There were other... I mean, maybe not as long... But there were some other marriages of, of top stars that were KFA for a while. Yes, absolutely. So it wasn't, I mean, that wasn't out of the ordinary, really, that that was a thing. Um, I think it's interesting that Dave doesn't mention the good cop, bad cop dynamic here. <laughs> yeah. Kind of curious why that is. Um, and it's like, it, but it's also weird looking back, like, I know there were other issues, 
but if Masawa goes the route he ends up eventually going that makes Noah successful, do we even have the split? Because if he's doing a Baba style presentation, it, there there would there would have been a split. Somebody was split. Man, it, it may have been Kawada that split. Somebody was split. Mm-hmm. There's no way that Masawa and Kawada would have coexisted for a long period of time. It just it just wasn't going to happen. With you mean with Masawa as Kawada's boss boss? Yes, it wouldn't just wouldn't happen. That problem that makes sense. Yeah. Um, what else did we have here? I, we should post the uh, the the paragraph about the innovation somewhere though, because boy does Baba not get enough credit, at least in the West, for all this stuff. Oh, absolutely not. Absolutely not. I mean, it's so. I mean, the fact that that he was the first to push a non-Japanese as a babyface that just didn't happen. You know, I mean, and the Destroyer became a major star in that time period. And then the Funks turning. Good Lord. Major, major stars in Japan. I mean, and, and the fact that he was so respected by everybody. You know, I mean, it just is getting, you know, bigger than that. I mean, that's the thing that you know sticks out is when you got guys like him, Paul Bosch, and Sam Mushnick. The promoters that nobody could say anything bad about. And he took care of his talent. That's why you had guys like Stan Hansen, the Road Warriors, Gordy, the Funks, you know, constantly going over there and staying there for years. So he was beloved in, in, in the way he handled business. And, and he knew how to handle personalities and egos. Yep. You know, because they they knew that the buck stopped with him. And if he yes. told you to do something, damn it, you're going to do it. You know? Well, that's, I mean, Masawa Kawada is, is the story there. You know, I mean, he was the guy that was having to, to, to keep them straight for all those years. So, yeah, I mean, we also need to remember, too, it's not just like whatever beef going back to high school wrestling that Masawa Kawada had. I forget where I originally heard this. This may have even been in The Observer. Long term, the issues between Masawa and Kawada were more that Kawada felt for a good part of the 90s was probably right that he was the best worker in the company. And I believe a lot of the other wrestlers did too, but felt that he was never going to get a shot at being the guy because he had the missing tooth and, you know, that, that Masawa was like the handsome matinee idol star, I guess, would be the way to put it. Yeah. But I mean, just so much, so much that we just read of everything that that he yes. was part of. Just the he was bigger than the business. Yes, he was well, cultural. And that also goes to Dave doesn't mention it here when he's talking about Baba being at the gimmick table. Like that's not an exaggeration. No, it's every not. basically every All Japan show at the gimmick tables, he was there. Like, when we've talked in the past about how the spot show business was built around getting to see Baba, it wasn't just seeing him wrestle. It was that you, if you wanted to, you could easily meet him. Mm Mm-hmm. Yeah. You know, and that level of star coming to, you know, all these spot towns. You know, that's not something you get every day. And it's also, you know, why Masawa did the same thing. You know, in his later years in Noah, 
you know, especially once Kabashi wasn't around, again, that uh, he knew that being there, because he had become this big wrestling star, he knew he was the draw, and he felt he had to be on every show to keep the company going. And unselfishness, too. Baba was unselfish. He knew, I can't stay at this level anymore. I need to move myself down the cards. Mm-hmm. I mean, when are you going to find a promoter, booker, who's an active wrestler, do that? Very, very, very rarely. Very rarely. So, yeah. just so much, so much there. And yeah, I mean... Baba was a very rich man and from not non-wrestling means as well. I mean, he was very successful at real estate. So he just had a lot going for him. Yes. And um, as far as the buck stops here thing, we got to mention the story that came out. I think it was, I think it was in Meltzer's Masawa bio that uh, the night of the jumbo Masawa match that ends up being Masawa's big win in June 90 um, you know, as we've talked about before, it was not the planned finish originally going into the show, but the crowd was so hot from Asawa, just spontaneously bursting into Misawa, Misawa chants before the show. He knew he had to put Masawa over that night. So he sends the, you know, the, the runners to the back to tell each of them to finish. Uh, Jumbo sends back a message. I think it was double count out question mark. Masawa's response, of course. No. You mean I mean, Baba. excuse me, Baba's response. Sorry. Yes. Just <laughs> no. <laughs> yeah, exactly. I mean, this is what I want. And this is what we're going to do. So. Yes. Which also makes you wonder if uh, the reason that finish doesn't look as great as it could is Jumbo maybe being a little... Uh, Little chilly about that. No, no, Jumbo. Oh no, no, not at all. No, what are you talking about? (laughs) But but hey, you know what? I mean, it led to one of the greatest Jumbo runs. Mm But that whole that whole feud and everything, absolutely. So, all right, Case, going to you now. I mean, you you, like I said before the show, you weren't even born for all this. So when you when you went back and watched all Japan, you know from the older days for the first time compared to what you, you know, have been seeing, you know, with other newer styles of wrestling. How, how did that resonate with you? It's the greatest presentation there's ever been. And I, you know, now it seems like the conversation rightfully so has drifted towards praising the, you know, 1990, starting with the Masawa win through probably real world tag league. 96 is where the true golden era sort of peters out. And as soon as I began consuming that stuff, I realized, oh, my God, this is the greatest form of wrestling there's ever been. But going back at this point, it was probably five or six years ago and seeing the evolution of the 80s. And especially once Hanson jumps into the company is when I really feel comfortable with my all Japan knowledge of, again, seeing those double countouts and those DQ finishes and seeing that progress with Choshu coming into the company and I I adore that run. I think Choshu in all Japan is one of the greatest things. And for the most part, you know, I love the way Baba handled all of that stuff. And then as we head into the 1990s and you go into that hard, strict, clean finish policy, it's remarkable. I mean, there's no other promoter that can or booker rather that can say he's had a track record like that. I was blown away at the stat that 
he had only booked two official gimmick matches. And obviously you can look at, you know, what Sheik and Abby did. And you can say, well, it's, you know, a, a, you know, an unofficial hardcore match, but to only book two gimmick matches, one of them being Baba versus Fritz in that Texas death match, which is so good. And I watched that about a year ago for the first time and to not just have that match and realize it was as good as it was and want to run it back over and over again is not only a testament to him as a booker, but just the human spirit and the uh, the sort of, you know, grace and self-restraint that he had is remarkable. He's, you know, and there's no there's no one like him, like Chris said, like Dave said. And the thing about Baba, too, is, you know, I mean, he was very high up in the NWA hierarchy. He was a vice president. One of the vice presidents. So, I mean, he was a, a NWA man when you think out. So, you know, the NWA champion was always going to him no matter what. So you had your, I mean, you had the Funks, Harley, Flair, you know, they, they were coming through at all times. So you had that. Plus you had these major names. And yeah, Hanson, Brody, Abby, the Sheik, the Funks. I mean, yeah, you had like Tiger Jeet Singh. You had all these wild crazy guys that was coming in there but they still were were they were still were doing traditional style matches even though they were doing their brawling and stuff but usually that was towards the finish which will lead to the double count outs and this that and the other but you know, you cannot say that those finishes they they went, went on for many years but they went many years being successful at the box office it didn't affect box office you know and 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 the thing thing is there is titles changed on that stuff. You can win titles by countout. You know you can win titles by disqualification. That's how you would have title changes. And when they started going to the clean finishes deal, I mean that's what shot the fans. Like wow, you know, this is not what we're used to. And it was just an evolution of of, of the way they handle business. And I'm surprised Dave didn't mention Choshu here. And I'm glad you brought Choshu up. I mean, all Japan, and, and we talked about this uh, last year when we did the the, the, the story about Choshu jumping. All Japan in 1984, it was looking, you know, I wouldn't say grim, but they were in a downswing. Um, their stuff was just, it just, it kind of was stale. They need a shot in the arm. And when they bring Choshu and his crew in, I mean, you have totally transformed your promotion now. And you have this this mega feud that you can run now, natives versus natives, because they never did that, really, in All Japan. New Japan's been doing it for years. But this, this first of all, All Japan had really done that as a main angle, to have the natives against natives. And it was wildly successful. And then you add, you add that and the Road Warriors. In, this, in, in, in a three-month time period, you bring that in to your promotion. You lose Brody, but you bring the Road Warriors and Choshu's crew in in, in three months. And it's, it changes all Japan forever. And massive business off of it. Massive business. And that's Baba, you know, knowing I got to change. I, I need to innovate. I got to do different things. And... He was a genius in that way. Absolute genius. The line about him wanting to educate the public as to what his vision of wrestling is, is such an interesting thing to me because there's that flair versus Martel match. I think it's 85 where flair is the NWA champion and Martel's the AWA champion. And 
the crowd catches on to what it's going to be. They're not necessarily biting on the pinfalls of the submissions as much. They're biting on the countout attempts, which is it's so weird. It's so uh, bizarre considering how stingent all Japan normally is, but they, they understand what's going to happen. And suddenly the false finishes become something other than what they would be in a normal match. And it's a testament to, again, Baba educating the audience on what his product should be. It happened a lot. I mean, when you would get guys up on the floor, you could assist the fans are like, okay, here it comes. And then, you know, when they got, you know, the bait and switch on that, when the, the match will go back to the ring, you go, Ooh, you know, they, they couldn't believe that we're going back into the ring for some more action. We're not having the double count out here. Oh my God. Yeah. You know, think about that, that you've educated your fans to fall for a possible double count out finish. It's amazing. Amazing. So all Japan is also, you know, nowadays the friendliest promotion for having their footage online. So there's so much all Japan out there online for people to watch. And with all these major names that have come through, there's no excuse for any of you to not, you know, indulge yourself with all Japan wrestling from uh, the seventies, eighties, nineties, whatever. I mean, it's out there. Go watch it because I mean, it's just awesome stuff. Tremendous. So uh, all the major stars, everybody in there. So yeah, definitely need to go check it out. But yeah, it's uh, times they were changing, as Bob Dylan once sang in Japan here. And uh, yeah, it's uh, this is a big deal. But you know, the one thing Bob um, we can talk about with him in this situation is that him and Anoki, you know, they had their long-standing rivalry. So you were you didn't get all Japan, New Japan interpromotional stuff. You know, other than the two occasions that they did it. And now with Baba dying and Anoki not really empowering anymore New Japan at this time, this is what allows for the possibility of that to happen. When the wrestlers, especially the 90s wrestlers, have been wanting it for a long time. And of course, the next year, year later, we get we start to get that stuff, even though all Japan is in a totally different phase at that time post Masawa, but yeah, I mean, it, it changed, like I said, it changed everything. We go from isolationist to where we are today, where everything's wide open. If you got people from all promotions working together. So yeah, definitely a, a huge moment in wrestling history. Yes. Although I mean, things are, we're seeing more cooperation again now, but I think that's more, at least from new Japan's point of view, I'm guessing probably more, pandemic related than anything else because they, if they need anything resembling an outsider it's harder to get foreigners in right now yeah uh, of course there's there, there have been no new news here since the death of baba before he died they set up akira Tawe versus big bam vader for the vacant triple crown on march the 6th at budokan hall the way it was done was that Toshi kawada said that he was vacating the title but wanted Tawei, his regular partner, to face Vader, who had earned a shot from his win over Kenna Kabashi on January 15th. This gives a logical reason to avoid putting Kabashi or Masao in the match, and will apparently will allow Vader to go over and set up a Masao-Vader match for the title at Tokyo Dome. Which is exactly what happens. Yeah, because Kawada had to vacate the title because he got hurt. Because <laughs> he, he, won the title. he broke his arm on Masawa's skull. Ugh. 
<laughs> yeah, that was right before our week, the surgery. So, yeah. Oh, now, you know, I, I, and all this, I forgot to actually give our week timeline. Uh, January twenty sixth, <laughs> January twenty sixth, February first, nineteen ninety nine. So there you just, go. just look at the title of the episode, everybody. You don't need, you yeah. don't need him to hold your hand. Yeah. All right, with Masawa in charge, one thing everyone is looking at is to see if he'll be more willing to work with other companies and if he'll have the resources to spend more money. As mentioned in the, the Baba article, All Japan used to be the place to wrestle because it was a great money circuit. But now with business is so strong in the United States and New Japan and, and New Japan, and Baba maintaining his financial structure, it has fallen way behind the other groups. And the exception of Masawa, Kawada, Vader, Hansa, Kabashi isn't really that much better than ECW. WF was looking to open the relationship, including sending talent to the Dome show, but hadn't started negotiations because of Bamba's condition. Okay. Um, Which is why he was going to be at the pay-per-view in December. First things first, how many weeks away from check-bouncing stories starting to appear in The Observer are we about ECW? It's not long, right? It's like February or March, isn't it? Yeah. I assume he means for the top, top guys in ECW what they're making, but that's... That's just, that doesn't seem like a good comparison, regardless. Well, he's pro- like I said, like you were saying, he probably doesn't know what's going on financially yet because he's he's not being fed that that story. Well, I mean, the let me check real quick. The ECW management group come thing comes about as a remedy to that, right? So let me see. Uh, it's mid at mid ninety nine. No, that was like March, wasn't it? Uh, April or May. Okay, so it was in our. Okay, so according to the lawsuit a claim filed against uh, Eugene Sharkowski and the other ECW management group people, if you don't know what we're talking about, listen to the first part of our ECW on TNN series, which is not just on the Patreon. That one is for free if you want to check it out. Free on the feed, absolutely. Yes, which, by the way, we're in the. I need to check with them on the update. We are getting things moved over now so that. All everything everything can be in the feed itself, as opposed to just having to go to the website for the fullback catalog. By the way, in the process of making sure Red Circle gets all that changed, but um, at least what a claim said in the lawsuit was that when they approached ECW about the video game in or about January nineteen ninety nine, um, they were told during negotiations that he had turned over control of business and finances to ECW Managing Group under the terms of a written agreement. So, I guess the head—I mean, the headlines about the bounce checks—I don't think start for a few more weeks at least. But the issues are already ongoing, I would think. Yeah, probably so. A little bit of a weird comparison there. Um, and as far as the isolationist thing. I do find it weird that Dave doesn't mention that Baba had clearly relaxed about that in the previous few years. Yeah. You know, Ibuza, Shinzaki, Ikeda, you know, were all guys who mainly worked for other groups, but were also regulars in all Japan for a time. So yeah. what does what does the power structure look like through the end of 99 in all Japan? Because when I watch stuff from this year... It's not necessarily the Masawa Kawada when he's healthy, Tawe Kobashi group that entertains me as much as you see Takayama really coming to his own, and you see a heavier presence from those FMW guys and Kakihara, who wasn't really featured a lot. I think he debuted maybe at the end of 98. Uh, but is that all Masawa calling the shots, or is Mrs. Baba still heavily in the picture at this point? 
Masawa's creative. Okay. Masawa is basically running the wrestling side, and Mrs. Baba is handling everything else. Gotcha. Yeah. 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 He's, he's running the show. All right. Well, let's go to New Japan Pro Wrestling. With both Shion Shimoda and Masahiro Chono out, the current tour is drawn poorly and is little in the way of interest. In fact, tickets for the February 14th Budokan show aren't selling. And to spice up the sales, it was leaked that Asushio Nita would be doing a run in. <laughs> I love that you were advertising a run in. Is that where Edging Christian got the idea? I guess so. Well, the tour opened with a less than full house of 3,500 at uh, Yoyogi Gym 2 in Tokyo on January 27th. With the first round, the IWGP title challenge tournament, and it's not selling out. And not selling out was a big surprise and not a good one. Shizuka Kojima beat Kazuya Yamazaki in 12-14 with an armbar submission. Manama Nakanishi beat Tadayasu in 841 with a torture rack. Hiroshi Tenzan pinned Chiro Koshinaka in 10-46 with a diving headbutt. And Kensuke Sasaki beat Yuji Nagata in 14-16 with a Northern Lights bomb. Sasaki versus Tenzan. And Kojima versus Nakanishi would be the semis on February 11th in Osaka. Also on the show, junior heavyweight tag champions Dr. Wagner Jr. and Kendo Kashin beat Tatsito Takeiwa and Kochi Kanemoto in 1451. When Kashin uses an armbar on Takeiwa, and Shinjiro Tani pinned Jushin Thunder Liger in 1948 with his spinning spider bomb. Spiral bomb. All right, rest of the results. Takashi Azuki and Kazuki Fujita over Kunya Kobayashi and Michiyoshi Ohara in your opener. Tatsuyoshi Goto over Hiro Saito. Then Kashin and Doc over Kanemoto and Takeiwa, Otani over Liger. Kenji Muto and NWO Sting over Tetsumi Fujinami and Junji Arata. And then our four IWGP title tournament matches. Yeah, early 19, 1999 in general is just an odd year in New Japan. Uh, just, it's like the NWO stuff has is, is, is gotten stagnant in a way. Chono's doing his own thing. This is where Team 2000 is really about to get start going here and get started. So you have the T2000 NWO's, you know, storyline going where they're doing their version of NWO versus NWO and WCW in 1998. Um, It's it's an interesting time in New Japan, Dix. What are your thoughts on this era? The big thing I remember is getting the tape of the Dome show and just being kind of disappointed by how flat it was. Yeah. Things were not really clicking at this point. Um, It feels like they start to get things going back in the right direction, I would say, what, like about a year later? Maybe a little more? Well, 2000 is, you know, when when All Japan gets in there and uh, start doing that stuff, and then the rise in Nagata. That's when it really starts kicking up. You know, and then Muto coming back in 01. So it starts at 2000, but yeah, it really picks up uh, in 2001, absolutely. But case, this is a different time in New Japan. I mean, they're having to bring in Onita. They're having to do those those deals. They're having to uh, rely heavily on the juniors at that time, to, uh, especially as far as, you know, in the ring. So, yeah, New Japan in 1999, uh, kind of an odd bird. Yeah, this is uh, not my New Japan, to say the least. This this show does not look very appealing to me outside of Otani versus Liger, which I would like to see. I have not seen this specific match between those two. But 
I don't like the heavyweight scene at all at this point because I mean, Chris, you're you're the only person I know who's a bigger Fujinami fan than I am, and I feel like <laughs> Fujinami's last great run is the tag league in '98. So we now turn the calendar over, and I'm I'm pretty checked out on him at this point. And then you know, I don't I don't love Kojima at this time period. I I don't love Nakanishi at all. Koshinaka's old, and even that main event, you know, Kensuke and Nagata would go on to have great matches, but I still feel like they're both a few years away from being guys that I particularly care about. So, especially 99 New Japan, I really have no strong takes on other than that rarely does it look appealing on paper. And, you know, another thing I forgot about, uh, Hashimoto Nagawa is, you know, a huge deal. And that's the thing, uh, Hashimoto, when you don't have Hashimoto and Chono, and, and showing up for charisma and, and gimmick reasons, I mean, you, that's where it really hurts. Because Mudo at this time is just tough. You know, he is shot. Um, and I said, you got, you know, guys like Nagata. And uh, Kojima is on the rise. But, you know, him and Tenzon, they really start getting getting traction here in, in 99, going to 2000. It's a tag team. But... Yeah, it just they had uh, the night. You look, go back and look at the '98 G1 and how awesome that was, and then you know go into not even a, a half a year later here, you know a little over half a year later, and it's just like man, what's going on? You know, it's just they just in one of their dry spells at this time time and period, and uh, they wouldn't get out of the funk, but it, it took a little while. But yeah, it's just. Uh, Interesting time in New Japan, for sure. And Japanese wrestling in general. You know, all Japan, 99 is not the greatest year for them either. So, yeah. 99 is an interesting year in wrestling history for all the promotions. Because <laughs> you, I mean, you could say, I mean, it, you know, it was wrestling-wise, the major promotions is one of the worst years. Between ECW, WCW, WWF. You know the the major Japanese promotions as far as wrestling and great matches. It's one of the lesser years, but some hellacious business was done in some of these places. But it's not great in the ring. Yeah, when I think about '99, I don't, I can't think of a clear like most outstanding wrestler. My gut probably says to Jerry, but even I'm not locked in on that opinion. I can't think of anyone who was undoubtedly the best in the world for this entire year. Yeah, it, it, it's tough. It's tough. All right, I guess Saito was released from his contract, so he'll be a freelancer. Masakazu Fakuda, who's a good worker based on what Dave's seen, who wrestled with Wrestle Dream Factory, which may be closing up, was signed and debuted on January 28th. Well, it wouldn't uh, end in, in the greatest ways for him. So a year later. So there's that. And speaking of that, Brian Johnson is working as a regular for wrestling on the card every night in this tour. Man, talk about your two tragic stories in different ways here. Good Lord. Fakuda and Brian Johnson. Mm. Yes, and then after you just talked about them releasing from their contract a wrestler who... I'm trying to find the right way to phrase this so I don't accidentally make it sound the wrong way. The guy who did the... You know, Saida was the guy who did the spot with Masawa when Masawa died... And he had, you know, it wasn't his fault, but he had his own, you know, guilt issues and stuff for years after that. Well, he seems like he's doing a lot better now, but, you know, I remember just reading about the, uh, 
what was it, the next Noah show when they did the tribute and he was basically on his knees crying and begging for forgiveness from the picture of Masawa. Yeah, it's it's just a, it's a bad situation. It wasn't his fault. So. All right, well, let's go to the indies. Not a whole lot of indie stuff during our week, except for one major exception, which we'll get into in just a second. DDT, very early DDT show here at Oda Ward General Gym, not the big one, on January 31st for our 360 fans. We had Chitaro Kamoi beat Daisuke Taniuchi in his debut. Yuki Nishino over Kengo Takai. Yuichi Tanaguchi over Takai Sasaki. Super Uchu Power and yeah. Onroad. It's Yusaku and Daisaku. And then your main event. What a fucking match this is. Exciting Yoshida. Phantom Funakoshi and Sunito Naito over Sensha Takagi. That's President Takagi. Common Shooter Super Rider and Kurokaji in 20 minutes. Mm-hmm. I feel like I need to take a shower after reading that result. Just so dirty and nasty. Yeah. <laughs> Indie scum all the way through here. <laughs> you don't you don't get quite better than uh, exciting Yoshida. Quite better, much better than exciting Yoshida and Phantom Funakoshi teaming together. And Sunito Naito is uh, <laughs> he's another guy that was working all kinds of scummy indies Oof. like what eagle pro zaipang west see, japan see, K- case you missed out on on the uh the japanese indie scum scene of the late 90s early 2000s because i mean there is a scene like that now in japan but it's not nearly as prevalent it's really underground but oh my goodness <laughs> yeah missing out is an interesting way of phrasing that i <laughs> i look i'm glad it's there for historical purposes not necessarily a wormhole i'm looking to dive down anytime soon uh you, you know what though it's fun i think <laughs> it was fun <laughs> i would say the parts that have good wrestling i think you would like and honestly and yeah I, that's probably true and i, mean, I think for- you'd even like the Based on what the comedy wrestling in Dragon Gate and Toramon's been like, I think you'd like some of the comedy even, too. I mean, yes, Survival Tobita and all his stuff with SPWC. You had Yatsu's SPWF. You had Zaipang. You had Fighting Ultimate Crazy Kings. Yes, F-U-C-K. I mean, you had Mr. Pogo and WWS having their matches in uh, hotel restaurants, uh, in the kitchens. I mean, it, Dog legs. <laughs> can't forget, can't forget <laughs> not mention dog legs. Yeah. Uh, featuring our uh, disabled wrestlers. And just all the other. Well, technically, the dog legs super handicap pro wrestling, I believe. Yes. Yes, it did all, all the other offshoots and just wild and craziness. I mean, just a wild time. Yeah. Wild well, time. Azteca well, and his, his group. Oh, um, was Azteca's group? Yes, Kagegi. Um,. Wait, was it Kageki or Kageki? Kageki. Okay. Um, yeah. Early DDT. Yeah. When was the last time Wallaby ran a show? Oh, God. I have no idea, but this was... Oof, they have crazy. their YouTube channel, at least. Yeah. Uh, so, I guess the spiritual successors, at least, that have any prominence these days would be... Some of the stuff on modern DDT shows and... I guess places like Chaco Pro and uh, yeah, 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 yeah. Move. yeah, yeah, places like that. Yes. Well, the reason why Case is on this show mainly is because of what we're about to talk about now is during our week it was the debut of Toriyama. 
Ultima Dragon's debut show was a big success, drawing us up 21-31 to Cork and Hall. We have a six-man headliner of Dragon Kid, Saito, and Magnum Tokyo, beating Judo Sua, Shima Nobunaga, and Sumo Fuji in an elimination match, which lasted 45 minutes and four seconds before Magnum pinned Nobunaga with a shooting star press. Nobunaga was the star of the show, which was the sentiment great. Dragon announced his group would be working with Michinoku Pro in the future, which is pretty well the savior of the Michinoku Pro office. Full results. Yoshushi Kondo over Genki Horiguchi in your opening match. Kenichiro Arai over Suzumu Shizuki. Yoshikazu Taru over Stalker Chikawa. Kendo and Supernova over Dr. Cerebro and Bombero Infernal. And then Shimo and Fuji over Tokyo Dragon Kid and Saito in your main event. Real quick before we get to the analysis, I just checked on wrestling data. Wallaby ran their first show in four years last year. Well, how about that? With, what a year, uh, Ron. <laughs> with uh, Hentaro defeating the great Zako, and the only other match listed, uh, Toru and Gunso went to a no contest with the team of, of course, Kaita in the house and uh, Tanamasa Akutoba. It is to be a Japanese wrestling indie Hall of Fame. Japanese indie wrestling Hall of Fame. Hitaro would be a probably a first ballot inductee in that one for sure. Good lord. Okay, well, I'll start messaging Brett to induct Chobita into his Hall of Fame, and then, well, not you know what I mean, the indie wrestling Hall of Fame, and then we, can, well, we and then it can it can yeah. be the spinoff for the Jap, you know, the back no, we, pilot, we, I guess, would be the way. Well, no, we need we need the Japanese version of Brett Lauderdale. That's what we need. <laughs> but anyway. Case, you just watched this show again recently, and uh, this this is the beginning of your favorite promotion. And uh, give us your thoughts. How did it go, the first show? What were, what were your thoughts on watching it again after being a while since watching it before? You know, this is not a great show. It's very rudimentary for the first three matches, and, and both the commercial tape and the Gaior broadcast uh, they broadcast the first three matches. I have photos of the Lucha match with Kendo in it. Like that's in the weekly Piero from this week, but I I've never seen the footage of that match. And then you have this, dare I say, woefully ambitious main event that certainly serves its purpose. Being a 45 minute trios elimination match is very headline grabbing, uh, but certainly does not live up to the expectations a little bit. Like I, I think of it as the Joe versus punk trilogy where Joe versus punk two garners more headlines, but Joe versus punk three, because it's not an hour long match is actually the best of their matches. You know, by April when they run Cork and hall again, and they run this main event back with Kenichiro Rai in place of Saito, that match is so much better. They are, they have a better understanding of who they are as wrestlers. It's a shorter match. It flows better. Dragon Kid blows fewer spots, although he still blows a few spots. But this is a really, really ambitious match, and I, I'm glad they did it because I think it set them off on the right path. It certainly gave them some buzz, but it's not the show that I would recommend if you're you know, new to the promotion. Everybody wants to start with show one. Eh, maybe maybe you start with a show from like 2001 or something when they're a little bit more polished at this point. But it's it's a very fun show to go back and watch, given that, you know, Kanda and Horiguchi and Arai and Susumu and Fuji and Drankid and, and Saito are all still active members of the promotion. It's a remarkable thing to see the way they've stayed for now 22 years. I think the best thing that these guys 
did was work Michinoku Pro. I think yeah. working Michinoku Pro, where Crazy Max really got their start and as a group, and getting that seasoning there and, and learning there, you know, with Sasuke and his crew, you know, that definitely helped set the pace for what Toriyama would would become with with those guys and, you know, in doing that. Because if, if they were just left just working the Toriyama shows and Mexico, who knows how this thing ends up in the long run? You just because you're in, like in, in your insulated bubble, you know, they needed Japanese wrestlers to work with besides each other. Yes, absolutely. Yes. And I got to say, I think over the years, probably one of the reasons I would take break, breaks from Toriyaman slash Dragon Gate, at least earlier on. Well, you know, early on, I would take that's the wrong way to phrase it. Early on, I would take breaks for months at a time. Because I always, I enjoyed the style a lot, but I always felt like it got a little repetitive until they kind of shuffled the groups around several months later. So I would try not to watch, I would, like, I would go on, I'd watch a few months, then I'd stop for a few months, then I'd, you know, repeat. And I think, though, that the guys not going to Mishinoku Pro anymore did kind of dwindle my interest as well. Because yeah, there's well, there's that period there where there's I, most of 2001. They're not really working Michinoku, but the T2P guys aren't there yet. And so, yeah, you run into an issue where you're now looking at a promotion that's already pretty small and you have roughly the same group of guys for two years at that point, just going back and forth. Right. And but the one thing, they, yeah. the one thing they did, though, that was smart was they had the three factions going against each other. So you're just you're alternating in and out the, the, the matchups. Where you have Crazy Max against M2K one night. You have Crazy Max against uh, Second Gun one night. Second Gun against M2K. So you're doing that. You're able to, to still keep it fresh, a little bit fresh, and not have the same guys working each other all the time. Yeah, yes. for sure. Uh, but... You know, you're absolutely right, though, that, you know, first, the the original run, I mean, I don't think they had the Crazy Max name in Mexico, right? It was the it was the Hill group no. with Heel Great Sasuke as all cap Sasuke. That was the beginning of Crazy Max. They yeah. would have they would have formed in Mexico at some point, because when they came to Michinoku, they were already branded as Crazy Max. So that would have okay. happened at some point in mid 98, because I think they landed in Michinoku in August of that year. Yeah. Now, yeah, because should... they're, they're, they're there first. You know, they're, they're, they're working in Michinoku Pro before Torimon starts as a, as a fish promotion for yeah. quite a while. Yes, and we should also note, too, that, you know, one of the reasons that, I mean, something we didn't even really talk about yet, that this debut was so looked forward to from Western fans of Japanese wrestling was that not only was it, you know, Ultimo Dragon's promotion featuring his students— at a time where, A, he's fresh off the WCW run, where he'd become a pretty damn big international star, you know, beyond Japan and Mexico. But also because a lot of the key Toriman guys had been in WCW, and they had been very impressive with just how good they were for rookies. Absolutely. They, they stood out. You know, Madden Tokyo... Just stood out in general. I mean, he's a guy who you just look at him and, okay, this guy's a star. But he got it. You know, he got it. He, he had the charisma. He could work. I mean, 
in WCW, you know, put him with Disco and Alice Wright and the Dancing Fools thing. And even though he wasn't, you know, treated the best, they at least did something with him that they weren't doing with other guys like him, you know, yes. the Japanese guys. So, well, I mean, they they thought they had, you know, something in him that could use. Or you know? just even, well, I think the thing that, I don't know if it's Bischoff or whoever that would have spotted this at the time, but I think another reason they stood out was that despite being, you know, all pretty green, they came into WCW with, for the most part, personalities and characters that translated much better than a lot of the international talent who just arrived fresh in WCW. Yeah, oh, completely, yeah. I mean, God love Nagata Nakanishi, but yeah, they they were not any type of charismatic in WCW or showed that, that personality like the Toy Mine guys did. Absolutely. Right, you know, because you also even have other little things like um, there was, I think, a... The Giant had a squash of, I think, Sua and Fuji, which seemed like it was booked specifically for Fuji to do his Big Show-style, like, taunt... Well, not Big Show, well, at the time, the Giant-style, like, chokeslam taunt and stuff yeah. for comedy spots. Like, they seemed like they knew that they had... They had more than, I guess, what they usually thought of a lot of the international cruiserweight talent there. Like, someone recognized that these guys had developed personalities that could translate on American TV beyond just their ring work. Yeah, because, the I mean, from the earliest footage of Shima, which is some stuff in 97 in Mexico, mm -hmm. he just jumps off the screen. I mean, I, I, I am so annoyed that he's not in the observer hall of fame and I, that's not the show for this, but boy, can I give you some stats on that? He's just, he's a second and none wrestler. There's charisma with him that has transcended every single promotion that he's worked in. And it's prevalent. Like, you know, like you guys said, even in WCW and, you know, Magnum Tokyo for all of his faults. And I, I think he's someone who it's amazing watching him regress as he goes throughout his career. I mean, the first Tori Montour is the best tour of his life because he has this six man tag and then the match with Sasuke and then the match with Shima. And after that, you know, I think he gets worse and worse until he leaves the promotion, but there's undeniable charisma there. The bummer is that we only get those first generation students of Shima and Sua and uh, Magnum and Fuji in WCW. If any of the second term guys or later would have come over, I think Genki Horiguchi is He's made for American television wrestling. He would have gotten oh, over even. Oh, uh, Milano, too. That, that's what I was just about to say was, could you imagine if WCW had lived long enough and had they really committed to this Torimon relationship, which oh, you know, allegedly you know, they were going to, though, in 2001. That's, that's the thing. You know, I, it's hard to believe Eric Bischoff, but he says in a in a March 2001 interview right before the company gets sold that he was planning on going to Japan and meeting with Ultimo to further that relationship and, of course, to, you know, take the cruiserweight division seriously. But that was but the talk. Remember, though, that was the talk before, I mean, before anyone knew that the Fusion, I mean, had a really good idea that the Fusion deal wasn't going to happen, though. Like, this is people thinking this is Bischoff, you know, that's actually getting the company, too. Yeah. And, you know, friend of the show, John Muse, had also been brought on in some form or was going to be as the, uh, like designated booker of the cruiserweight division. 
yeah, Milano not getting to be on WCW is incredibly disappointing because when you guys covered the first T2P show, I thought you guys did a really good job of summarizing that there's never been another Milano collection AT and there never will be. He's a one in a million wrestler and it is a real shame that, you know, the invisible dog and the giant entrance and all of the Italian connection couldn't have walked out on Turner Broadcasting at some point. That is something I would have really liked to have seen. Can you, could you imagine there being social media when that first show hit? Oh, my God. These guys would have been all over social media because, I mean, we see how, you know, niche wrestling, and it's kind of what it was, but niche wrestling has gotten over you know, different things, has gotten over in a mainstream social media world with gifts and memes. I mean, just imagine Milano and, you know, Oyanagi and, you know, and, and Yoshino and brothers. Yeah. Yes. Ta- uh, Takiyuki Yagi uh, too. Yeah. yeah. I mean, good Lord. Even Anthony and W. Morey, you know, even guys like that, you know, or, uh, and just, just all this stuff that was, was going on in early T2P and, well, I mean, even just beyond the, like, the, you know, work ready side of it, like, like you were, I mean, allude, starting to allude to, the comedy wrestling that was in T2P is the comedy wrestling that's over with indie fans and, you know, part of the AEW fan base now. Oh, 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 oh Yanagi and Sashiko Machines and those guys, oh my god. You know, just the stuff that, and, 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 and you got Taru as, you know, the foil and Toru Washi. But, but even, you know, even early Tori. Don't Bomb, forget Taru Sido, too. Yeah. It, it, you know, even in early, you know, Tori Bomb with M2K riding out on uh, <laughs> riding out on their uh, their Scooters. little scooter deals. Yeah. yeah I mean, just the, the, and, and, and Horiguchi in the, in the surfer gimmick and all the stuff that's going on there. I mean, I mean, yeah, it, that would have been so huge in the social media world. That or, stuff, or even for more than one trip, uh, you know, H A G E, who has called me Hage, oh, too. Oh, God, or, or, or even you know, the, the Magnum era. Oh, Chris, you know, Chris, okay, <laughs> holy shit, we're getting further down the line, but we also forgot to the obvious. What could you imagine the Florida brothers now? <laughs> oh, God. but but Ma- the Magnum era of M2K and the and the whole the pre-match stuff where all the dancers and everything, holy shit, you know? Yeah, that's it's really cool watching Magnum in this environment again. Where I I think as his career goes on, he gets worse and worse. But you watch him on this Torimon debut show, and I I should note, like Dave noted in the Observer, Cork and Hall sell out. One of the things that I don't think people either appreciate or maybe even just realize about Torimon and Dragon Gate is how they've been successful draws since day one. They've mm-hmm. always drawn well in Tokyo, but they're not a Tokyo-based company. They've always nope. drawn well in Osaka, but they're not an Osaka-based company. They're nope. a company from Kobe who nope. – you know, I it was you know we were talking about Baba earlier, and I hadn't really thought of this, but there's a lot of similarities, which is a jarring comparison to make of Giant Baba to what we were just talking about with Milano Collection and his invisible dog. But there, from a ph- phil- uh, philosophical standpoint, there's a lot of connections to be made between Baba and the way that Dragon Gate now carries their business, where – you know, we'll use Susumu and Horiguchi here on the show as an example. You know, these are two guys who have been in the company since day one. And if you follow them on social media, first of all, I should note, they're still world-class wrestlers. I legitimately think Susumu Yokosuka 
is one of the best wrestlers of all time. I always call him the Tim Duncan of pro wrestling, where he's just quietly had uh, a career as impressive as anybody. But these are two guys who, if you follow them on social media, they go to the matches, they go home, they play with their pet cats, they go to the dojo. <laughs> They're still active components in training the next generation of talent. And this is a promotion who debuted six wrestlers in the last half of 2021. They're a machine. They never stop producing young talent. So they, they go to the home, they play with their pets, they go to the dojo, they train this new generation of guys. And if you know anything about Drangate rookies, they always debut ready to go. You know, if you can't hang in this promotion from day one, you are going to have issues succeeding. We're seeing that with a guy now, uh, La Estrella, who debuted at the end of 2020. He's a really impressive high flyer, but he has these really rough patches where he he botches moves and his timing's off. And that is something that you just cannot do in this promotion. And it becomes, it's become very apparent, apparent that they've lost faith in him. Whereas these other rookies, that's Susumu and Horiguchi and, you know, uh, Saito, who's now Super Shisa, they have a hand in training these guys and they come in ready to play. And then they go to the matches and it's just this, you know, rinse repeat cycle that they've been doing for 22 years. And they care themselves, although there's wackiness within the shows, they operate a lot like Baba in the fact that they are married to this promotion. And that's something that, you know, Horiguchi has a family, but I just read an interview with him where he was saying, I feel like I'm married to Drangate. This is where my time goes, and this is what my life is. And it's uh, it's an odd comparison to make, but I did want to make note of the fact that they've always drawn well in Tokyo. I, I don't know why that doesn't get brought up more in terms of just, you know, the size, the fact that they're the number two promotion in Japan, Shima's Observer Hall of Fame argument, you know, this is a company that had a six-year straight sellout streak in Cork and Hall that ended when Shima left the promotion. I, it's, I, I don't know how else to explain it to people, but they've been draws in Japan since day one. Absolutely. So, yeah, 23 years. Wow, hard to believe. It's been that now, long. Yep. Now let's move on to a promotion, though, that I'm thinking Case may <laughs> not really know about. <laughs> yeah, and this is this one is. Oh. I can't believe we've never really talked about this one before either, because <laughs> this this one was like instantly legendary at the time. Yes, let's go to WPW Sekai No Pro Wrestling World Pro Wrestling. They ran the Age Town Gym on February the 1st for the 280 fans. Azteca over Guerrero Diablo in your opening match. So we're off to a, we're off to a rocking start <laughs> with your Kakega crew here. The Killer, no, no, it's the Mexico version, over Dayu Kauchi. And then we have these matches. A four, four-way dance. Derek Dukes. That's right. Starfire, Derek Dukes. Over the Chi-Town thug, James Kahn, no relation to Nick or Tony, and Scotty Z. Scotty Z. Then we have the Brotherhood. Eric Sprasha and Knuckles Nelson <laughs> over Masashi Oyagi and Basara. Holy shit. Then we have Jeff Mangles, Pepsi Boy, and Cola Kid going to a no contest with Kim Kimchi, triple number one and triple number two, which leads to Wild Bill Irwin, Pepsi Boy, and Cola Kid beating the hater in triple one and triple two. I, I, oh. I am just blown away. Oh, my God. By, like, okay, so here's the thing. Even before you get into Pepsi Boy and Cola Kid, you have the foreigners all being New England and Minnesota indie guys. Wild Bill Irwin. 
And Bill Irwin. Yes. Starfire Derek Dukes, 1999. Eric Spacia wrestling Masashi Oyaki. I know. I should have made sure Chris Hero asked Derek Dukes about this when he interviewed him. Oh, my God. I completely forgot he was on this tour, that any of the Minnesota guys were. I remembered the New England guys. I did not remember that. Pepsi Boy and Cola Kid. Holy shit. Well, okay. Let's remind everyone of what the backstory was, though. When World Pro launched, and is this the first tour? Gotta be. Okay. If it's not the first, it's one of the very first. They weren't around long. Anyway, they kind of tried to position themselves in the media as like a major league startup. And part of that was claiming that they had sponsorship deals with both Pepsi and Coca-Cola to have Pepsi and Coca-Cola-themed wrestlers who would team together. This obviously wasn't true. It's even obviously less true in Japan, where they have Pepsi Man, so if there was going to be a Pepsi wrestler, it would probably be a wrestling version of Pepsi Man. And they just ran with this, and they don't last long, and they disappear. But also also for this coming of an indie, though, they had very well-produced commercial tapes. I have an update here. Okay. Uh, Mike Laura Feiss yes. on Quebarro.net has the commercial tape of Sakai no Presu for us on uh, January, the January 30th show, which we don't have results for. Mm-hmm. Here's the match listing of this show. Nine-man battle royal. Aztec against Guerrero Diablo. Brad Kohler and Scotty Z against James Conn and the Chi-Town Thug. Jeff Mangle against Derek Dukes. The Hater against Masashi Oyagi. Triple, <laughs> triple K. Triple K 1 and 2, which kind of makes me wonder if this isn't some type of Ku Klux Klan gimmick. Uh-huh. Going against Rikyo Ito and Dayo Kauchi. And then our main event, Pepsi Boy and Cola Kid against Knuckles Nelson and Eric Sprasha. I used to have a copy of this somewhere. I don't anymore, <laughs> but it's out there. Oh, I don't know. I mean, Lorvice has it on his site. I'm pretty sure Nate Stein had it uh, around back in his day. You mean wait, black, wait? But... You mean wait? You mean Nathan Julian? Well, when he when he going by Nate Stein? Online? Not that I re- not that I remember. But but you mean uh, Indie Exploder? No, Indie Exploder was someone else. Don't you mean Dog Proof Raccoon Bubble, Nate? The guy who had the in the uh, that the guy who was getting the Indie Scum tapes that wasn't Scott Mailman. Whatever, whatever. The guy in Indiana, yes. But I, I, yeah, I had a copy of this at some point. I know I watched it. Um, uh, oh, oh, by the way, Cola Kid Pepsi Boy had a team name. Do you remember their team name, Big? Oh, was it the Cola Powers? No. What was the it? Caffeine, the Caffeine Connection. Oh, <laughs> That's so good. <laughs> <laughs> so there you go. I, th- I think it was... I think it was there were two separate commercial tapes, probably of the thirtieth and maybe the the first, because oh. this is listed at least now that I'm looking at it as being specifically of the thirtieth. Oh my and goodness! I, I love that uh, that Lorifies never updated this even to spell Sprasha correctly. <laughs> yeah, the Hater versus Masashi Oyagi, though. <laughs> yes, I guess yeah. Case has never seen the Hater. Um, you can sell any bar in Minneapolis. He he's like a he's like if heavy heavy metal Van Hammer was several inches shorter, looked like a divorced dad, 
and was working a heel gimmick while coming out to Ugly Kid Joe, everything about you. (laughs) All right. Well, this is this is some work I have to check out. This sounds absolutely delightful. Yes. (laughs) Ooh. I don't know if the life was a word, but ooh. <laughs> yeah. what a career Yagi had too. Oh God, yeah. He's about a guy that was a uh, a true uh, uh, world traveler in Japan. He wrestled everybody, and Man. probably deserves a lot more credit than he gets for the early success of FMW as well. Uh, yeah, because absolutely. you watch those early shows, especially the debut. Like sixty percent or more of that crowd is his karate students and their families thinking they're watching him in a shoot against a fake pro wrestler who he's going to show, you know, why karate is strongest or whatever. Yeah. All right. Well, let's go to Joshi now to close out Japan. We have two shows: All Japan Women's and Joe on January twenty sixth at Futabashi for a ten thirty. We have Miyuki Fuji over Sachi Nishibori. Then Miyuki Fuji over Zap Iozaki. You tops, Kimiko Mikawa and Yumiko Hota over Kisno Sakai, Miho Wakazawa, and Nane Takahashi. Banami Toyota over Kayonomi, and Zappai and Zapti over Takako Inoue and Momo Nakanishi in your main event. And then Arsian, February 1st is a soccer perpetual gym number two from 1050. Mario Apache over Fabi Apache in your sister opener. Reggie Bennett and Oyaka Amada over Yumi Fakawa and Michiko Omakai. Aja Kong going to a 15-minute draw with Mikiko Futagami, and then twin star of RCN titles, Rie Tamada and Hiromi Yagi retained over Mariko Yoshida and Mika Akido in your main event. Boy, is one of these shows much more appealing than the other. <laughs> in what sense? Um, not the, not maybe, well, maybe not the way that Rossi might have meant it, but... <laughs> Because I you, mean, have your, you have your play, you have your Playboy models on one show, and then you have your wrestling on the other show. But the the one that's been that at least launched with the uh, sexy ladies promotional tactics also has much better wrestling at this point. <laughs> much oh. better wrestling. You know, I, I'm just I'm just glad that well, we don't have to dwell on old uh, Momoe Nakanishi. And you didn't have no Neo this week, so you you were spared. Yeah. No, but this is when Arsene's really coming in and do its own, though. You know, oh, yeah. They're one of the best promotions in the world, and this is when they've really kind of developed their own style, where it's kind of like a battle arts, but not exactly. But you've also got Lucha Flavor between the Apache Sisters and Ayako Mata, and I think there were some other Luchadoras that came in over time as well, and... You know, the ones who had been kind of underutilized in all Japan women and JWP. Well, I guess Yagi was getting pushing JWP towards the end. But, you know, Yoshida and Yagi and um, Fukawa are really coming into their own. And, you know, now with this bigger spotlight and Omukai was, was she JWP or JD? Omukai was, uh, she was, I mean, she got, she were at war. That was so, probably, oh, so, so she would probably be LLPW then, actually. LLPW, yeah. yeah. She were at war when she was real young, so yeah. But whether it was being lower on the totem pole in one promotion or being greener when you had a spotlight in one of the other promotions or whatever, it's a lot of, I don't know if I'd say misfit talent like an FMW coming together, but it's people who didn't have the right setting and now that they have RCN 
and they have a little bit of a different style. They can work to set it apart. They're really, really shining. Yeah. Yeah. And this is stuff that I feel like, I feel like people would enjoy today. It's just that, you know, I don't think there's much RCN online because a lot of the stuff is uh, Samurai TV. Yeah, good luck with that. <laughs> yeah. I think that, yeah, the only stuff I think you can easily find online usually is commercial tapes. Although there is, a, there's some of the RCN co-promotions with the men's promotions that I know people have uploaded to Internet Archive, but I'm not sure just how much. So there there might be some there, but it's it's very hit or miss on YouTube. All right, well, let's move on to the World Wrestling Federation. And uh, halftime heat, Super Bowl time. Where the one would consider the Mankind versus Rock title change taped in an empty arena match in Tucson, January 26, and Aaron during halftime of the Super Bowl is a good match, or whatever it was supposed to be, which was more like an 18-minute long movie fight scene. It was a rousing success from a rating standpoint, continuing for a promotion that has caught unbelievable fire. The 20-minute long counter-programming sim on USA Network drew a 6.59 rating and a 9.3 share, making it the single most-watched WF wrestling match from start to finish ever on cable television. Some brief overrun segments have done better, and the highest-rated WF television show in USA in 11 years. Perhaps even more amazing, considering there was almost no pub in this direction, as opposed to massive pub regarding halftime heat and a title change at the Sunday Night Heat show, which went head-up with some of the first quarter of the Super Bowl, in the entire second quarter, did a 3.36 and a 4.9 share. Incredible performance against the highest-rated television show of the year, which shows the loyalty to the WF audience. In years past, when WCW would air sold Sunday Night Show opposite the Super Bowl, it usually drew ratings ranging from 1.1 to 1.4, or roughly ha- half the usual rating during whatever year it was on in. In the final few years of its run, TBS would program Andy Griffin marathons against the Super Bowl instead. <laughs> oh, yes, and they worked, too. Mankind and Ross spent almost no time in the rain, brawling around the arena. It was another example of Mankind taking movie stuntman-like bumps and Rock doing little but keeping the pace up and talking trash. Vince McMahon did a commentary. And believe correctly said that much of the audience would be curious channel switchers who weren't familiar with the WF and two men who commentated along those lines. And the two men and commentated along those lines. So he's basically doing, you know, pup, you know, profile piece in a way. Still, there's a reason movie fight scenes are usually limited to about two minutes because this match got redundant and the commentary was too preachy and condescending about what a WF is trying to portray itself as and who these characters are. At one point, Mankind rolled down 40 rows of seats. At one point, when Rock drank a Jack Daniels, Man claimed that it wasn't real liquor, as the Rock doesn't drink. Amazing from a company intending to portray itself as the badasses. It ended up backstage with the food, the guys selling for shots, raising for shot popcorn. And it reminded Dave of that short-lived early 90s TV show where Jason Ventura, where contestants got in food fights with each other. <laughs> Funny how that comes up. As we talked them twice in the last month about grudge match with Jason Ventura. Amazing. Finally, they ended up in the back of the building and Mankind dropped a forklift with beer kegs on Rock's chest. With the cameras not showing the obvious lack of impact. And Mankind jumped on top of the pin and his second title reign. All right. Let's watch this ending and then we'll talk about it. Do we have to? <laughs> oh, come on. Mm, they're going to break the fourth wall, brother. But, yeah, so let's watch it because this is the last three minutes or so that's on the uh, World Wrestling Federation YouTube. Because this isn't on the network, right? No, 400 knows not. I don't 
pressure. And yes, he's backing it out. I love it. Come on. Come on. Mankind. Again, you wonder what fans back in Arizona watching this on the giant truck must be thinking. Yes, we should note actually, they were pretending that fans were watching this live at an event somewhere at at the taping of the Heat show that aired right before this. Yes. They were pretending that the Heat show was live. They were pretending that both were live and this was airing in the arena. Yes. And as you'll see when we get to the finish, they intercut crowd pops that they cut from something else to make it look like the crowd is reacting to the match. Yes. It was an interesting move because they never explain what arena this is in. No. When I'm pretty sure it's the same arena, right? It was the same arena. <laughs> I always wondered why they did that. Anyway. Oh, man! Come on, Rock! All right, now it looks like Mankind's finally starting to mount a little bit of a comeback here. So, yes. So, that I forgot about. Kevin Kelly and Shane McMahon did do on cameras. A yeah. couple times. I think mainly around here at the finish. But yeah. Vince is played by play. Right. And, you know, the crowd is... I, I'm curious exactly what point in the taping this was. I gotta think, though, it's not enough that would have given anything away. And the crowd probably can't hear them well anyway. Yeah. Yes, and also, this is... The YouTube upload is from 2012. So we have blurred out uh, WWF Attitude logos as well as replaced graphics in this split screen. To uh, say WWE halftime heat. Come on, Rock! Don't count mankind out, Shane. Wait a minute, we're we're out on the we're out on a loading dock. That's where they are now. They're out on a loading dock. And mankind continues to be the aggressor. Trucks are pulling up. There's a forklift in the background. And Rock and Mankind hammering it out in the in the loading dock area. The first time ever empty arena matchup falls count anywhere and both men go down. The World Wrestling Federation proud to bring you this halftime meet, proud to bring you this World Wrestling Federation title matchup. The most unique title match perhaps in history. Now wait a minute, Mankind has that sucker on, has that mandible claw. The man will solve that paralyzing maneuver and down in the gullet. Mankind with that paralyzing hold down in the gullet. Get away from that forklift. Rock going down to the concrete. Mankind really has it cinched in. That paralyzing maneuver of mankind is taking its effect on the rock. Could have just counted a pin there. That the forklift fork load gets dropped on the rock's balls. Please? What kind of a cretin is this man? He says, please? What's he gonna do now? He's gonna run over it. Mankind's gonna run over rock. That's what he's gonna do. 
carefully shooting this. Even with the dim lighting, <laughs> they did not do a good job hiding that he was nowhere near pinned down by that forklift. It's yeah. so bad. It's it like most of halftime heat is whatever. It's not my thing, but it's fine. Really up and through fully doing that big stare buff. Kind of everything after that's a little too goofy for me. But the finish ruins the entire thing. I was stunned at just how bad it looks. The only redeeming thing about the whole thing is this is the last time we have Vince and it's, it's announcer Vince. Well, we do get the thing with Jesse when Jesse comes into guest host. Yeah, but he's not announcer Vince. He he went into announcer Vince during it some. Not much. He was Mr. McMahon, basically. Yeah, well, he was Mr. McMahon fighting fighting the urge and the demand to be announcer Vince. Yeah, but this is the, this is the last pure announcer Vince that we have right here. Although he has Mr. McMahon character in there, the delivery is all announcer Vince. Well, he, he didn't do that that much though. A little bit. He, d- I, I did like though, uh, loading dock area. That's a Vinceism <laughs> that we don't talk enough about. <laughs> the something area. It can't just be the locker room. It has to be the locker room area. <laughs> the loading dock area with the box-like structures yeah uh, outside yeah. the uh service entrance of the nearby medical facility of course <laughs> but this this super bowl was uh you know this was my falcons the very first super bowl they were ever in when they lost to uh, john elway in his last game in denver broncos and absolutely with the super bowl party i was at it went to halftime heat all of us, I mean, we watched halftime heat, you know, we weren't watching what was going on in Super Bowl that, you know, at this game. It's what all about halftime. The, what was the halftime show that year? Oh, my God. Uh, I have no memory of it because I wasn't watching it. Um, Gloria Stefan and Stevie Wonder and Cher. Do you believe so, yeah, not not the most inspiring halftime show. <laughs> so there you go. Now, the Super Bowl commercial we'll talk about later, because there's a lot to talk about. Oh, no, that. Chris, you forgot someone who was involved as a guest uh, acting and all that from who? looking at one of the YouTube video titles. Big Bad Voodoo Daddies. Oh, well, they were right. Big Bad Voodoo Daddies. Wow, that was uh, capitalizing on that uh, short-term uh, movement of the uh, the Zoot Suits and the stuff. The Swing which Revival. I love. I love the Swing Revival. Brian Sets Orchestra, Big Bad Voodoo Daddies, Cherry Poppin' Daddies. I, I dug that stuff. What was the, what was the big, big Bad Voodoo Daddy song? Oh, God, I can't remember now. It's been too long. I'm, I'm searching real quick to see. Uh, Voodoo Daddy, Why Me? Yeah, when people start bring, when 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 the folks got out of their alternative phase and was starting to bring out the fedoras and doing that stuff, when that became the, the new hip thing for almost a year, 
the reemergence of Brian Setzer with the Brian Setzer Orchestra. I love Brian Setzer Orchestra. J- Jiving well, absolutely. And, and to think it was a Gap ad that basically, you know, kicked that off. Yes. Insane. All right. Raw on February the 1st, taped in Tucson on January 26th, before saw 6,896, being 175, 544. They taped a few Super Astros matches with El Menegaro, team with Mini Tarito, to beat Negro Casas and Miguel Perez Jr. What? Then we have, yeah, Il De Santo and Armando Fernandez, Tarzan Boy, beat Mr. Aguila, or excuse me, Aguila and Papi Chulo, because it can't be the same guy. Which sounds awfully difficult, as obviously they have a new wrestler as Aguila. <laughs> because okay. that's who Bobby Chulo was. But I don't think this is actually what happened. I don't remember Aguila teaming with Poppy Chulo. Plus, also, he had so many tattoos. Even then, there's no way that's what happened. So this has to be Poppy Chulo teaming with a different masked wrestler who someone in Tucson thought was Aguila. So... Okay, so it's Super Astro's episode gun I should look for, I guess? Okay, uh, yeah, in History WWE has that as the result. Well, that's not going to be right, though. <laughs> as, as does Cage Match, but the, the Super Astro's episode is on YouTube because I watched this, but now I can't I can't think of who So what's who the air the date on guy? this one? Because it wasn't always February a week. Four, February 14th. Okay, let's see. WWF Super Astro's Feb 14, Now, the previous night... The previous night of the Astros tape, they debuted a Rudo named El Bandito, not the one that wrestles now, who was Scorpio Jr. about the mask beating Negro Casas. And Dave says, believe me, of all the wrestlers in Mexico, he's the one you don't want to do. <laughs> <laughs> well, guess what, Dave? <laughs> he doesn't know how guapo he is. <laughs> oh, my God. Wait, you said February 14th? That's what it says. Okay, wait. Okay, I see. The person who uploaded... Oh, Alan Blackstock, actually, who uploaded most of the Super Astros, um, did it as month slash day slash year, when a lot of people who do full show uploads on YouTube do, you know, spelled out. Well, they have different ways. So two slash 14 slash, I guess, 99, not... Now, YouTube, obviously, you would think with Google's technology, should be able to figure that out. It's still not coming up for me, though. Uh, okay, I'm gonna. you look for the video. I'm going to look at other results. Because uh, we have to find the answer to this. Because this is obviously I'm going not ahead. what happened. <laughs> I'm going ahead. Raw opened with Shane McMahon doing an interview explaining that Vince was in Victoria, Texas. With Pat Patterson and Gerald Briscoe hunting for Steve Austin. Quiet, they're going Austin hunting. They did skits throughout the show, which weren't funny in the sense of Patterson and Briscoe looking like clowns, but they were getting old. Vince was trying to provoke Austin, but it didn't work. It ended up with a gang of Texas thugs advancing on Patterson and Man and Austin in a bar. Well, we'll uh, we'll get to that soon. All right. Um, so the Shane thing, Shane was uh, doing an interview in the rain. The cage lowered. And the X-Pot was on the cage. He jumped off the cage and was paddling with Shane until China gave him a low blow and held him for Shane. So, uh, so yeah, there's building up the Shane-X-Pot rivalry here a little further. 
And then they air clips of different media outlets praising the WS Super Bowl commercial. Well, they weren't getting a whole lot of praise from some other people. Once we'll talk about it as we move on with the show. Yeah, so we'll play that later, I guess, the uh, commercial. All right, so um, we have one of the bar scenes here where, uh, okay, it's Poppy Chulo and Pantera. Okay, so yes. let us know. So there you go. Okay. Oh, you dug through Good your job. YouTube history to find it. Good job, Gase. Well, thank you very much. Happy to help. Yes. How, how would All someone right, get so that wrong, though? They look nothing alike in their gear or anything. And their names don't sound very similar. Anyway. One is wearing All a right. full bodysuit. The other had very similar gear to Juventud Guerrero. I don't know, Bix. Okay. I don't know. All right. So uh, we got the Texas bar scene here where uh, Chris and Patrick come by the men's room. They're both wearing, as Wade calls it, dime store cowboy gear. Vince told them they look ridiculous. He asked the bartender if she's seen Austin. She said, I reckon not. And Wade said that Vince made a big deal of the word reckon. <laughs> she slapped out a stick and told him to leave. <laughs> of course, Vince is going to make a big deal of the word reckon. <laughs> <laughs> That's what Vince does. Anyway. All right, Billy Gunn and Val Venus went to no contest. Oh, that sounds like a delightful match. Um, so Kid Shamrock's on commentary. He hit Venus with a chair. He thought Gunn was the one who hit him with a chair, clipped his ankle, then hit him with a chair. Lawler and Shamrock are hilarious, with Lawler trying to provoke Shamrock to attack Val Venus, which is because of the Ryan Shamrock thing, right? When that, uh, the yes. impetus for the Val Venus for you, that's right. All right, so Dave knows that the original play was for Billy Gunn to win the Intercontinental title at the Royal Rumble. But Gunn has been a problem of late, and it was felt going through with the change under those circumstances would send a bad message about the company condoning his behavior, so instead he had to do the ankle lock. He's supposed to be in three-way for the February 14th show, but that was changed as well. But he's still in line for a major singles push, and then maybe putting the three-way for the IC title at Mania. What's that about? We'll have more Billy Gunn in just a little bit. Okay. All right. Next, we get Mankind, who is uh, he's very happy because he got some of The Rock's money, of course, because of all the halftime heat. Well, no, no, so no, 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 no. This was it was not a result of halftime heat. It was that he had stolen the money that The Rock got for keeping Austin from winning the Rumble. Okay, that's right. That's right. That's right. The the <laughs> bag of ten thousand dollars or whatever, or was it a hundred? But the big bag of money. Yeah. So Mankind's spending the money the way he wants to spend it. So let's go to Mankind, shall we? Yes. In an angle that was recently stolen for by All Elite Wrestling, in a manner of speaking. You'll get it in a second. No, I don't want to buy this. I just want to rent them for three days. But how can you rent many? My kids are going to love this guy. I'll take him over. I have nothing for three days. Oh, wait a minute. He's not a, a tickle me. Elmo. How much money are we talking about? Well, how much do you got? Get four hundred eighty-seven dollarinis. Take it or leave it. Okay, take them. Come here, little guy. Come on. Make them, make them, make them, make them. He's spending it on that idiot. You want to hold the bill? He rented Max Mini. He was unmasked. Well, that was no. That's how he was on Super Astros. He was Mini Max without the mask. Yeah. So he'd been like this for months, and and now on All Elite Wrestling, we have uh, Andrade thinking that Darby Allen is a child and wanting to buy him to use as a 
wait is an unpaid slave of some kind. I just thought Nick Patrick was there in the locker room doing the the deal with mankind. <laughs> that dude looked just like Nick Patrick. He looked like <laughs> Nick Patrick's in your Spielbergo. <laughs> I don't know who that is though. I have no idea who it is either. Yeah, I'm assuming he's some international liaison guy, but he didn't look familiar. All right, so next with Rock is talking on the phone with Vince. He's pissed off that Mankind's spending all his money. Then Kevin Kelly interviews Deborah's boobs when Mark Henry tried to put the moves on her, and Jeff Jarrett and Owen Hart beat him up while Deborah laughed at him. Poor Mark. And then we get Mankind, who's uh, trying to help out a fellow wrestler in need. So let's go to another Mankind segment. Also, back-to-back Game Changer Wrestling adjacent segments. With Jeff Jarrett and now uh, Mick Foley, who did the you know the one show for them, and appears to be setting up something else. It's Jeff and Owen. Kurgan, listen to me. Diversification is the key. What you need is an eclectic blend of forty-seven percent stocks, thirty-eight percent bonds, and eighteen percent in a money market account. Soccer. The economy is booming. The interest rates are down. It's time, Kurgan, to buy. Damn it, buy. But I don't have any money. I've got money. Here, go out there and secure your family's future. A fool and Rock's money are being parted again. Boy, in that quick little skit, could you see why Kurgan has a very nice career now as a working background actor? Yeah, he did fairly well. Yeah, and when I say background, I don't mean literally like an extra, but like he's mainly like a heavy. But one that's in demand for that kind of part. Um. It, like, his facial inspections and all this are fantastic. Yeah. Alright, so... <laughs> Next, we get D'Lo Brown, the big boss man. Now, uh, before the show... Um, well, well, not before the show, but as the show got started, um, boss man in the corporation was walking out. He looked at Terry Reynolds and said, Say excuse me, bitch, as she walked by. So that led to this match. So uh, let's go to uh, to this. Uh, oh, we are going to this? We're not waiting for the thing later? Well, I mean, there is the... I, I guess we need the context of what's going on here. Yes. So let's go to the, the Terry Volunteers Dilo for a match. And so people can understand what's going on here. I mean, I can explain quickly what's going on. Yeah, I but I'd rather have... that clip, though. It, I can explain in like a sentence. It's that Terry was allegedly pregnant, suffered a miscarriage after D'Lo accidentally bumped into her, and to try to ap- apologize, etc., D'Lo and Mark Henry are just doing all sorts of stuff for her. They did a skit where D'Lo buys tampons for her, etc., etc., but she's been getting increasingly mean-spirited, I guess would be the best way to put it. In how she's treating them? Well, she's a pretty mean sister. Sister. Yeah, Sister. Yeah. Yes. Um, so, yeah, do we need to play this part, or what do you think? Well, I mean, they... So, so where... Okay. The, so the they, thing that we talked about before we started recording this segment is a um, couple seconds after this, after the match. So they, okay, so Wade barely even has a note on that. That's what, so that's what's throwing me off. Again, it's the difference between the observer and the torch. All right, so um, let's go. All right, so as I'm looking at this, all right, so Bossman D'Lo Brown, 
Boss Man beat him in 249 with, a, with the Boss Man slam. PMS cost deal of the match. Dave knows that Terry Ronald still can't talk. Boss Man was pounding on Dilo with a nice stick until Mark Henry made the save. All right. Next, Pat Patterson and Jerry Briscoe in the bar. We have to play this. So let's go to this clip. Again, allegedly live via satellite from Victoria, Texas. Hey, hello, baby. What beautiful women they got in Texas. You look prettier than a spotted puppy. (laughs) You know, us cowboys get very lonely on the trails, you know. Well, you are kind of cute for an older gentleman. What about Patterson's (laughs) accent? (laughs) Oh, Oh, deep What? You need him to ball. What's the matter with you guys? Come on, let's go. I found Austin. Mr. McMahon's found Austin. He said he's found Austin. Yes. I love the fact that they had Pat Patterson be the one to try to pick up the women. (laughs) (laughs) Well, he is. I mean, he is a widower at this point. He's single. A prettier sloppy puff, spotted puppy. Oh, my God. All right, so next we got Blue Meanie coming out dancing as one of the Raw Boys. A spoof on the Nitro Girls. The Raw Boys. Goldust attacked him and gave him Shattered Dreams. And next we get... Nah. So next we get... Yeah, D'Lo Brown going to see his doctor. Or Terry's doctor. No, well, the the, uh, WWE... uh... The WWF doctor, doc, Dr. Petit, allegedly. Francois Petit. Yes. yes. As we so all know, he, to hear yeah. he's, I mean, he, in real life, he is slash was a masseur of some kind, but it's unclear <laughs> if he's actually a licensed massage therapist. <laughs> he may have been described at one point as an untrained chiropractor. <laughs> and he, in, in the real world, he's probably best known for playing Sub-Zero in the first Mortal Kombat movie. Yes. Because he is, of course, a five guap martial artist, as we learn. <laughs> so yes, folks, you can finally get the hairy Francois Petit. Yes, Dr. Petit. And also you'll notice that he describes a character uh, by name that does not exist on WWF television. <laughs> Seriously, this stuff gotta stop. These girls gonna get you killed. Oh man, I mean, it ain't your fault that she lost her baby. Uh, the ring is no place for a pregnant woman uh, in the first place. Oh, I'm good to see you, baby. Uh, pregnant woman uh, in the ring. Come on, first of all, you know what I'm talking about, Doctor Terry Reynolds. Uh, Terry Reynolds, having uh, a baby in the ring, being uh, pregnant. What are you talking about? Uh, what are you talking about? Uh, she has never been pregnant. Never. Never. What are you talking about, Doc? What stop about Terry stop, Reynolds? Stop, stop. What, what are you talking what? about, Doc? Doctor, how do you know she wasn't pregnant? Tell I, me, doctor. I examined her. I know she was not pregnant. Doc, doc, don't you dare. <laughs> don't, don't you dare, Kate Fabian. You better start shooting with me here. Was Terry, was Terry <laughs> never pregnant at all? She has never been pregnant. She you do know it. You. I examined her. She was not pregnant. What a cocky witch Terry Reynolds is. Come on. Dilo, you're not. All right. I don't know what the, what the best thing about this segment was. Francois Petit or Dilo Brown... Don't kayfabe me. We're shooting here, bro. <laughs> Terry Reynolds. Terry Reynolds. <laughs> Which, uh-huh. We should also know, too, for some reason, China's book. I have no idea who ghost wrote or edited that thing. It calls her Terry Reynolds throughout the whole book. 
<laughs> Maybe Dr. Francois Petit uh, yeah. did that. He did all this other stuff. Yeah, I guess oh, so. What a second. Yes. What a segment. A, a, a fitting end to one of the very worst storylines in the history of professional wrestling. So Dave noted D'Lo was shocked. Dave guess he never heard the commentary on the Capital Carnage pay-per-view. What was the commentary there? I, I have no idea where that goes. I don't know. Uh, was there some line about about not thinking she was really pregnant on the paper? I, have no, I watched that show... A couple weeks after it happened, I don't, but I don't, I don't remember anything like that. Um, I don't know. But also, if I remember right, this is also the source of one of the first big cornet arguments with Russo and Ferrar. Oh, I'm shocked. And, I'm shocked. Oh, but that, not even from a, oh, bullshit, you know, soap opera storylines point of view, the Cornette, rightfully, felt like, this is a really serious thing you're taking here. That anyone who's been through it, who is probably a lot more people than anyone realizes, you know, although, you know, a lot of earlier miscarriages don't necessarily, they're not as obvious. But still, like, you're needlessly dredging this up and not in, like, a... Not even in, like, the context of a serious presentation of TV drama. You're doing it for, a, like, a random, goofy, throwaway, undercard wrestling angle. And for what? For shits and giggles for Vince Russo. And yet, well, and then, on top of everything else, for the second time in... Actually, wait, is this the first... When is the Chaz Mariana angle? It already happened. But, but when? But when exactly? <clears throat> Oh, I don't know. Can't remember. Just, we did it on the show. Twi- I know, but twice. twice, twice over the course of a year or so, we have Russo booking two different angles where the payoff is basically bitches be crazy. Well, <laughs> it's Russo. Yeah, that's he made a career off of that. Well, actually, we should yeah. say bitches be crazy, and one of them also included elements of women be shopping. <laughs> that this one did, you know. So, yeah, uh, yeah. just. There are a few things that define 1999 uh, Russo WWF television, I think, like this whole thing. Yeah, it was interesting listening to you guys talk about 2006 and 2007 a few weeks ago because Chris was going on about how, you know, he's just not nostalgic for this era of wrestling, which was funny for me listening to it because that was my childhood. I mean, that's exactly what I'm nostalgic for is like 2006 SmackDown. So when I go back and revisit attitude era stuff i don't even have the the warm memories associated with it like i watched the show you are alive going into it relatively cold do you agree with us that 99 wwf looks a lot more like russo wcw than 98 wwf does uh, yes, uh, I, I was I was astounded at how bad this Raw was. I mean, it's it's not a program that I would have watched at, at in the moment. I, I can say with my sensibilities now. I mean, there's when we get to Nitro, there's some stuff that I I liked on Nitro. But there's obvious flaws in the show. There's nothing on this Raw that I thought was redeeming and and really any way other than maybe some of the short comedy segments. I mean. But again, it's it's the time. It's the product of the time, and it yeah. was the in thing to do among males 
my age was, you know, watching this type of stuff. Well, you know? that's the that's the crazy thing is looking at the number that halftime heat did because we're, you know, two weeks away from the Super Bowl and I just can't fathom, even if AEW was running their halftime heat and they were doing CM Punk versus Brian Danielson one, I can't imagine being at a Super Bowl party and going like, hey, can we can we turn on wrestling for a second? And if I don't speak up, there's zero people in my life that I know outside of wrestling that are going to be like, oh, I heard this this wrestling company's running a match during half the halftime show. Let's watch that. Like that's so far out of what I understand of the American wrestling landscape where it's just that I I can't comprehend the popularity of the WWF in 1999. It literally doesn't make sense to me. It's time and place. All right. Uh, Hacksaw Jim Drozdov <laughs> beat Kurgan, <laughs> hitting him with a two by four and 152. Quick. What's the only thing Lehman and Kurgan's offense is selling? Uh, Wayne noted that Draws looked like he'd be a good fit with the Undertaker's army. Well, that didn't happen. Because he has tattoos and piercings? I guess. Okay. All right. Let's go back to Vince and, and the Stooges in the, in the bar as we have uh, more Vince being Vince here in Texas. Wait, so which one are we going to Vince, Mr. McMahon continues his search, I guess? Yes, yes. Okay, I wasn't sure if we were going to play this, so. Oh, yeah, we have to play this one. Okay. Don't you guys stuff yourself too much. Vince telling them don't stuff yourself too much after a prolonged shot of a stuffed deer's head on the wall. And there's a, and there's a humongous bowl of chili on the table. Huge. Alright, just keep that in mind. That bowl of chili appears to have hold a larger volume than those hats. And that's a <laughs> lot. I wonder what was gonna to happen to that bowl of chili. Let's watch. Goddamn, pal. Told this is where Stone Cold Steve Austin comes for his evening snack. Can you imagine the look on his face when he walks in here and he sees us? How is this food? They love it. What is it? Barbecue something? Brisket. 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 The ribs are great. That's great. Try some. Try Barbecue sauce. Hey, waitress, waitress, come over here. Waitress, come here. You know what the hell is this? You know who this is? This is Mr. Mike Mann from Greenwich, Connecticut. You serve food <laughs> like this to everybody? This man here, come all the way down here. You're not going to serve this garbage. I'll take some better dog food than this. You have had yes, man. Yes. Hey! Oh, what kind of, hey, what kind of people are you? Peace. Well, I'm telling you, what, what next is going to happen right. to Mr. McMahon? What the hell they kind went, of people are you? Now notice how they did. She didn't grab the big bowl of chili. She grabbed the small bowl of chili. So it's a bait and switch on everybody, thinking the big bowl of chili is going to end up in somebody's face. There's a small bowl. <laughs> oh man, Vince's selling of, of of trying to eat that the barbecue ribs there is fantastic. Wow. Oh. All right, next we get the Brood beating Midian and Viscera in 206 when the Acolytes pounded them, and they hung Gangrel until he was dead. <laughs> That's what Dave said. <laughs> um, Wade said that... This is how Wade spelled Midian and Viscera, folks. Midian. M-E-D-I-A-N. That's Median. <laughs> and Viscera, Viscera, I guess he misheard it because he spelled it M-I-Z-Z-R-A. Misra. 
<laughs> in fairness, they just got the gimmicks, and I guess they don't have graphics here. <laughs> I don't know. Uh, Way wanted to know it was just gang girls being hung by a white rope. Did Kevin Sullivan jump with Terry Taylor? Uh, wait, yeah. where are you going? There's a hanging. That's what Wade asked. Oh, okay. I, 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 I was Taylor looking just, at the notes. Terry Taylor's that jumped over. We'll talk oh, we'll more, right. on that as, yeah, uh, more on that as we go along. Um, so next we get Mankind and Deborah. Let's go to that. With the brood! Deborah. I thought well, you something for your boobs. What? Is there something wrong? No, as a matter of fact, I get a tingly feeling all over when I see them. But I'm afraid you're going to catch a chest cold. And in your case, that could be fatal. Here's a sweater. <laughs> what? I've got to go have a nice day. He bought her a sweater? What? <laughs> Lawler. All right, this is what Dave said about this whole whole thing. Man, Kyle's giving away Ross money throughout the show. He rented Max Mini for his kids to play play with. Dave guesses Max's owner if this doesn't make sense. I guess it rents it from his owner. Dave guesses if this doesn't make sense, it's all because foreigners in wrestling are semi-retarded, naive children. And minis are also semi-retarded, <laughs> naive children. So Max Mini being both is either double or the square root of something like that. <laughs> <laughs> oh my god. I mean that is That's how... one of the best sentences in Observer history. That's <laughs> peak Dave. That is how how uh, unfortunate stereotypes do work in pro wrestling though. <laughs> like like I mean pretty much we should be very glad that Dwayne Johnson was not a wrestler ten to fifteen years earlier. Oh, do you, oh can you just imagine the way they would be talking about that guy's headbutts? Oh, <laughs> cocoa butts. Well, but he's also of Samoan ancestry too. Yes. Ah, oh, he's he's got black and Samoan in him. Oh, it's a double double threat. <laughs> His head's harder than anybody's. All right, mankind the rock. Goddamn, dot on the phone. Setting <laughs> up their pay per view match. Acolytes beat Road Dog and Big Show, or excuse me, Road Dog and Al Snow, excuse me, in 640 of a brutal ECW style brawl where Bradshaw powerbombed Dog through a table. Dog was injured and missed the next three days. So let's move back on the road in limited form over the weekend. After the match, the Druids attacked the injured Road Dog, revealing them as the Brood. After all this, Dog was mad at Snow for being for behind backstage and popped him with a twice with a chair. Good lord! But this is the Brood joining the Ministry, I believe. <clears throat> yes. Which felt kind of pointless, and like it for the next several months at least derailed whatever momentum they had started to build up. Yeah, it just wasn't needed on either side. Yeah. All right, we we got a. Uh... What, what do you have queued up next? Um, I mean, the next thing we talked, the last thing we talked about was McMahon finding right. Austin. All right, so let's go to that. All right, so Vince McMahon finds Steve Austin. Um, you know, Dave doesn't even notate this at all happening, but Vince and the Stooges find their way to a pawn shop. So let's go there. Hey, Austin! Hey! Look, McMahon found Austin! Well, they're at the bar. You. Yeah. I know, but wait that bar and stop. what I'm talking Come on. Don't you turn your back on me. I threw your ass over the top rope. I beat you in the Royal Rumble, and it's eating you up inside. You know damn well it is. Come on, stand up. Yeah, come on. Come on, Austin. Hit me. 
Come on, I came all the way from this godforsaken place to be. Come on, Austin, what's the matter, huh? Come on, you chicken. Come on, Austin. Stand up. Hit me. What's the matter with you, huh? Come on. Damn it. Come on, Austin. Hit you. Go ahead. I done told you once, you dumb son of a bitch. And if you got a hearing problem, read my lips. I'm not going to hit your ass here in Victoria, Texas. I'm going to wait till it's nice and legal when I get your ass in that steel cage. Do you understand me? You chicken shit. Hit me, you son of a bitch. Go. Come on. Come on. Let's go. Come on. Hit me. Damn it. Hit me. Hit him. I told you, Vince. Look at me. I'm not shaking like you. I done told you. Come when on, I Vince. get your ass in the cage, your ass is mine, and you will know that Austin 316 says I just whipped your ass. And like I said, I'll say it one more time. I will not hit you tonight, but I can't speak for, as you put it, these kind of people. So, uh, as I make my exit and head to the house, uh, you guys show uh, Mr. McMahon a uh, real good time at my expense. What the hell are you talking about? Oh, guys, oh, wait. Oh, my God. Austin is checking. That's all right. Wait a minute. It's all right, Take it guys. easy. You know, I, I came here for, for Austin. That's it. All right? Come on. Come on easy. Guys. Easy okay, now. No. I, I came here for Austin. Buy your beer. We like this town, man. This looks like town. deliverance. Uh, the, the pawn shop was before that one. So okay. that was one of the ones we didn't play. Yeah, that was the one we didn't play before that led up to that. So, all right. So, um, oh, uh, Mister McMahon prepares to surprise Stone Cold. That one. Okay, I didn't even yeah. notice that. Yeah. So we finally Triple H beat Kane in twelve fifteen. Boring and spots. Triple H carried to decent level and others. X Pac and China were both involved in the finish. Triple H ended up kicking China off the cage and getting out first to win. Kane's head was split up and bad. Not sure if it was a chair shot or taking a bump, but he needed several staples to close the wound. Kane went on the road all week but couldn't wrestle, which uh, went up with house shows containing some lame skits and matches in place to schedule Triple H Kane bouts. China issued a challenge for a mixed tag. She can't talk. Case, you uh, you found that out, didn't you, when you're watching this? Oh, my God. Yeah. I, I mean, I don't necessarily want to speak ill of china but i don't get it i've never got it i don't know what she did well and it certainly wasn't promos because gosh she is dreadful in this segment i mean she had her moments but i mean it took a while it took a while you know she had her own charisma for a while but i mean she, the more she was able to do things she got better at cutting promos should i play this no the shower i'm curious to see how bad it is though well, if you want us to watch it. I mean, there's seconds left, so it's not going to take time. Much time. Two weeks, Triple H, St. Valentine's Day Massacre. Happy Valentine's Day, sweetheart. What, what does that mean? I don't think that's quite as bad as it was made out to be. 
I, I, I apologize to China and I apologize to Bix then, but I was not inspired by the show closing I'm promo. I'm not saying it was good. I'm saying by the standards of China promos of this era, I don't think this is on the, the weaker side of the continuum, I guess. Why is she here? I mean, what, oh, I can't even remember why she was healed here. She joined she was the corporation. Healed. So she joined them before Triple H joined them. Yeah, okay, so here, here's how it went. I forget exactly what the catalyst is for the turn. Like, or if there's any real explanation. She joined Mr. McMahon and friends. Um, Kane starts to develop feelings for China to set up his babyface turn. Um, then Kane tries to shoot a fireball at Triple H that hits China. And he's very distraught over this. Then... Triple H poses as Goldust to use a flamethrower on Kane in the ring, live on Raw, on the go-home show for WrestleMania. Oh, my goodness. And then at WrestleMania, China turns back babyface and joins Triple H, and they do the big celebration and stuff. And then it turns out it's part of a larger plan as as part of Kane's expulsion from the corporation they reveal that China was still a heel the whole time, and Triple H has joined up with her to join the corporation. Are you confused yet, Okay, <laughs> I'm absolutely baffled by any WWF 1999 booking. None well, of well if this is confusing, just check out the shows later in the year where China is either a babyface or a heel, depending on what segment she's in. <laughs> Oh. Where she's a heel, where she if she's with Triple H, but she's a babyface if she's not. It is crazy. Shades of Grey, bro. Well, that's where we're at now. All right, so uh, Raw won for the 14th week in a row by a sizable margin, despite the quality of two shows. Perhaps going in WWE's favor. Raw did another near record 5.72 rating. 5.56 first hour, 5.86 second hour, 8.5 share. So Nitro's 4.66 rating, 5.55 first hour, 4.27 second hour, 4.20 third hour, and a 6.8 share. Of the head-to-head two hours and five minutes, Raw's margin of edge is almost a point and a half with Nitro doing a 4.24 rating opposite Raw. It was never close, with Raw winning all eight quarters, scoring 6.0 quarters for, all, of all things, the Brood versus Midian and Viscera. And again, for the follow-up Mankind Rock interview conversation, and for the last several minutes of the Triple H Kane Cage match main event, Raw had no weak periods. Nitro, built around the same lines as Raw, was more out of the ring vignettes and arguably overexposure to top guys in the same vignettes, but were longer, better quality matches, but in following far less marketable names head to head. Which I'm not gonna get into the matches, we're gonna wait for uh wait for Nitro to get into all that stuff. So anyway, Triple H and Kane did a five point seven final quarter and a six point overrun. Meanwhile, Nitro's main event featured Chris Wall and Scott Hall did a 4.0 and a 3.9, respectively. So think about this case. In and this week in 1999, we're looking at our ratings here of 10.83 <laughs> and 10.06. Yeah, I I don't get it. I mean, if for wrestling, if, if this is what it takes for a pro wrestling to become, you know, a mainstream entity again, I'm very cool with pro wrestling just staying in its little, little bubble because 2022 
is not perfect by any means, but I I like the weekly product, at least AEW's weekly product, uh, hell, uh, a lot more than I like both Raw and Nitro. But this is what I this is what I've been saying on this show for for a while now. Wrestling at its most profitable business wise is usually the periods where wrestling's at its worst in ring wise. Hmm. It's just a matter of fact because the people that are your friends, wrestling fans, and your casual wrestling fans, they don't care about the wrestling. They care about the storylines, the angles, the promos, all that stuff. That's what they're invested in. They're not investing in the in the ring storytelling. They're invested in the out of the ring storytelling. So I just pulled up the Corey Gibson uh, rating spreadsheet to get a little bit more of a detailed uh, view to have, you know, some households and a little bit of P2 plus uh, viewership. So since we didn't, I don't think we got that far with Halftime Heat earlier. Halftime Heat did 8.9 million viewers in just under 5 million households. Um, the Heat itself did just under 4 million viewers in about 2.5 million households. Nitro did um, about 4.2 million households, hour one, and then hour two was about 3.2 million households, and hour three was about a little less, but still in the 3.2 range, and Raw did hours of just under 4.4 million households, and a little under 4.2 million households. So with what they, so depending on the week, multiply that by something like around one and a half, like 1.4 to 1.7. So averaging it out, probably like a 1.55 or something to get an approximate idea of how many total viewers there were. That's a lot. Yeah, <laughs> absolutely. And it's going to get more. As that goes along, it gets higher. So, I mean, it's just crazy. Crazy to look back on that. You know, we've done the week with Austin Undertaker the night after King of the Ring. I think we did the pay-per-view itself as well. Well, well, Rock rock and Sock. No, but the actual record is Austin Undertaker. I know, but Rock and Sock, though, as well. And that's non... I'm talking about non-wrestling. Oh, sure, sure. But Austin Undertaker ends up with, what was it, over 10 million viewers, I think? Yeah. 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 And it was something like one in eight TVs that were watching TV from like whatever it was, 1050 to 1110 were watching Raw. Yeah. It'd be nice to have that again, but I I don't I don't see that happen again. And like I said earlier, I just I can't fathom I can't fathom wrestling at a at a a popularity level above just a niche thing. Well, that again, again, as long as as long as wrestling is where it's at now as far as what what the presentation is you know it just it's not going to catch that it's not going to catch that level it's just not i mean you you need the personalities you need the the everything to click and everything clicked so at this time i mean who knows maybe we'll see it again who knows i don't know but again another another thing too though is one of the reasons why you'll never see probably this again is even as late as this time period, 1999, and the internet is still, you know, is a thing, but it's not nearly what it is now. There's not as much competition at this time. There's no streaming media. There's none of this other stuff that you're competing against. 
And like I yeah. said, and like I said the other day, you know, wrestling had the superheroes and had the heroes and villains. Now that's Marvel. They got that on lock. So wrestling competing with Marvel. So there you go. All right, Austin missed the weekend shows in Pittsburgh, Cleveland, Philadelphia due to having to deal with family issues, apparently, which apparently for the large part are taken care of. He's expected back this coming weekend. They posted signs in all the arenas and offered refunds. The cards are all restructured. Although the current plan of attack is in the is to come up with cards and then as they change ideas, they wait, change the cards after the last raw taping using the latest ideas to trying to work them into a house show card that uses the updated feuds. So if Austin out, they went with Mankind at four ways, beating Undertaker, Rock, and Boss Man, when Undertaker and Rock brawl to the back and Mankind pinned Boss Man. The WF has now sold out 29 of his past 31 house shows dating back to late November. The currently is well ahead of any pace for the most successful year for promotion in the history of the industry. <laughs> it ain't this TV ratings case. Yeah, wow. Yep. It just tells you how hot it is. People are going to the house shows. No one, I mean, no one, they're not, it's not TV taping, but they, it's so hot. And they're, and, and for the, 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 that's the thing with the house shows. They're not doing TV angles and skits and stuff like that here. I mean, this is the wrestling, but they got them coming to it because they got everything so hot. So, yep. Very interesting stuff. The other end is the beginnings of the backlash to the mythology that's been at least the degree responsible for this success. There's been nothing breaking over the past week in Winnipeg. However, both TNT and USA Network held press conferences for TV critics from around the country on January 19th and 20th, respectively. Usually in these situations, they seem to come out the better, but based on every article Dave seen, this wasn't usual. The man came up poorly when he tried to claim that they didn't do a crucifixion, that they didn't do a castration, and their language isn't anything worse than anything else in primetime television. And then when the middle finger stuff was brought up, he claimed to not know what that meant. What's the <laughs> He also ripped on WCW saying that he or Ted Turner would go to hell. Bischoff, who was there the previous day with Sting and Goldberg, questioned the tactics WF used to reach this level, saying he wouldn't stoop to that level of poor taste. And the man responded by saying they can't compare to us. The only thing they could do is throw negatives and grenades. They're nasty people. I don't like them. Ted Turner can go to hell. I hope one day he does. Wow. Phil Rosenthal, the Chicago Sun-Times, responded to McMahon's last two sentences regarding Turner end up in hell, saying that if he gets there, at that point, he'll be able to compete. Bischoff said, where I draw the line is stuff that's of a sexual nature, the homophobic type of things that are out there, things that are religious and racially based. Oh, racially based, huh? In WCW? Really? Yes, and uh, that continu- the quote continues, though. Quite frankly, I think what our competition is doing isn't necessarily going to increase the pool of advertisers willing to spend their dollars in our industry. Diane Wirtz in Newsday, who says she was a wrestling fan, wrote a blistering anti-WF column on January 28th, saying this entertainment has taken a creepy turn of late. She called McMahon chillingly straight-faced and spiritually callous about the new direction of the company, saying that Jerry Springer knows he's a joke, admits he's a joke, celebrates he's a joke, and lets everybody in on it. But McMahon's operation is so stone-cold sober... No pun intended. About his ugliness, proclaims he proudly. We'll attempt to reach out and grab any emotion we possibly can. You got mine, Vince. Revulsion. At this point, despite warnings from Bischoff to the contrary, WF isn't hurting for advertisers. At the critics' convention, Stephen Child of USA Network responded to criticism of WF by saying, The issue to me, in very simple business terms, is is the show antisocial and does it send a bad message? And I unequivocally have zero problems with the show. 
Well, okay. of course she doesn't. Look at the ratings. So first, to be clear, I I would think this is the mid-season uh, TCA event. Yes. Okay. Which... So how often did they have wrestling people at these? Oh, no. You know, we talked on the ECW shows about Heyman doing one. Um, yeah. For the summer, for the fall season. But... It's interesting, because... Bischoff is giving fairly sober reasoned, even when he's talking about WWF, it's in a, it's all based on logic and business and all that. And Vince is out here just being like, yeah, I hope Ted goes to hell. He's, he's playing the character, whereas, I mean, granted, the character is still kind of him, but Eric is being the actual executive. It doesn't seem like Vince wants to do that. Hello? Hello, I can hear you. Yeah, sorry I'm sorry, that. I was on mute. I'm sorry, I had muted myself. I had to blow my nose. Um, <laughs> you didn't want to get that on the air. But, uh, yeah, so, yeah, I mean, yeah, exactly. Uh, Vince is playing his character. Bischoff is playing Executive Vice President Eric Bischoff. Which is what the, I mean, Eric Bischoff, you could say, never, as far as I know, never did a gimmick in public media. He was always Executive Vice President Eric Bischoff. Yes. McMahon, not so much. But yes, Stephen Child's going to back up Vince. Absolutely. Look at the monster ratings are pulling in. Are you kidding me? So, All right. So now let's talk about the Super Bowl, shall we? Let's play the WS Super Bowl commercial, and then we'll get into all the hubbub about that. Now, are you going to play both commercials or just play the one? I mean, the video I pulled up is both uh let me see what do I, say which order it is because i feel the differences are, are pretty much just visual but i still feel like we should well know, it's I quick mean, yeah they played the unedited version on raw and so. on heat i believe or maybe yeah. just on raw it was because i feel like they might have built it up a little bit but it may have just been part of heat because i, w- I want the people to hear the differences yes. to see what what's going on most people have the wrong impression about the World Wrestling Federation. We're a non-violent form of entertainment. We never use sex to enhance our image. As athletes, we understand the importance of being positive role models. We're good at wholesome family entertainment. We're trying to make the world a better place for mankind. WWF Attitude. Get it? They're talking about the WWF Super Bowl commercial, but now we're going to show you the spot that we never thought would make air. Right. The WWF superstars took time to spoof themselves. They never meant for this spot to be seen, but we're going to see it right now. (laughs) I thought they did claim it was edited for content. They're saying this is like their internal gag sizzle reel or something version? Just, Just watch. Most people have the right impression about the World Wrestling Federation. We are a violent form of entertainment. Okay. I see what happened. The person who put up this YouTube video labeled it wrong. This is not the two different versions of the commercial. There was a slight... There was... There was the one that made Aaron during the Super Bowl. There was one that was had a little bit different content. I believe mainly with the... Two people having sex at the desk and how that was shown. And then there was this, which was just a gag where they're like, you're right about us. Should I just keep playing it, though? 
I guess. If you commit. We always use sex to enhance our image. You know, as athletes, we couldn't That's give a monkey's ass about being good role models. We're not wholesome. Family. Entertainment. Trying to make the world a crummy place for mankind. Have a nice day. WWF Attitude. Get it? No, that was a, that was the unedited one because it had the different sacks on the desk. So the yeah, one you played was the first one. The the first one was obviously the one that aired during the Super Bowl. Yes, but I feel like there's a third version, or maybe I'm just confusing that with this. You're confusing. But I remember there being me. some kind of uproar about the woman straddling the guy in the second one. There was. So was that a, was that it, what we're about to get to with the the what you would call it the? Well, oh, there's a lot. The there's a lot. Sudden. There's a lot. Yes. A lot going on. Okay, here. that's what it was. All right. So, I mean, again, this is the time when Super Bowl commercials. I mean, it, it's just a humongous deal to have a Super Bowl commercial, and here's WWF. You know, having a Super Bowl commercial. Who would have thought? Well, they got a lot of attention for Super Bowl spot, while most daily mentions in USA Today. And wouldn't you know it, there was a full-page ad in the same paper a few days later. According to various stories, they have claimed to have gotten a Super Bowl ad well below the 1.6 million 30-second spot rated claimed in publicity. The stuntman, Mike Jones, Mike Jones, <laughs> who was shot out of the window at Titan Tower, suffered a sprained knee and actually had done the stunt on a broken back, suffered in a different stunt three weeks earlier. They have printed a totally misleading graphic from February 1st, USA Today, indicating the commercial was a big hit and the highest rated commercial. They had a heading that looked authentic by saying, Best Newcomer, and spliced this commercial rating underneath. Underneath as if it finished highest among newcomers or something. Actually, it finished 29th out of the 52 commercials in the ad meter voting, which is a lot higher than it finished where Dave was watching. Dave learned a valuable generation gap lesson. Dave watched this with a large group of people in their early 30s. Dave was the only one who even cared when the commercial was on. And you had no idea how unpopular the idea was to switch to USA at halftime. Nobody cared about Sable after the Frito-Lay model. Holy shit, Ellie Landry. And the Victoria's Secret commercial. But shocking was more than half the people had never heard of Steve Austin or Vincent Mann. Whatever it was, just for the pub, this was all well worth the investment and then some. Again, Case, this is what's so different about the wrestling boom of this period is this all guys in their teens and early 20s? Yeah, I would be the target demo for it. I'm a white 22-year-old male, but, you know, with 2022 eyes, I'm certainly turned off by a lot of the obscenities of the product. But I will say, this is an outstanding commercial. I might not care for most WWF presentation, really, just in general. I, I've always vastly preferred the way WCW presented their, presented their product. This commercial is, it's outstanding. It's so, so well done to me. Oh, yeah. It, it, they did a fantastic job on this ad. Absolutely. Tremendous. Not the best ad at the Super Bowl, but it's still, it, it was still a fantastic ad. Yeah, I've got to look up this Frito-Lay model now. I'm, I'm unfamiliar Allie with work. Yeah, okay. It's got to be Allie Landry, uh, if I'm thinking who it is correctly. Um, that sounds right, yes. So let me check, make sure that it's her. Yes, the Doritos ad. Yeah, that's the very first Doritos ad. And yes, she, uh, hey, she still is awesome today. Yeah, Prost. that, that the dude a Google search, not bad. Yeah, Prost Sally Landry. She is held up very well. 
All right, the draft Super Bowl commercial actually turned into a controversial deal after all. Two right-wing religious groups, the American Family Association and Morality and Media, Inc., have complained about the commercial because of the brief spot of the couple in an, in, in, in an embrace that appeared to be making out while in the office. Oh, just, just think if they would have got the straddling. The SEC had received close to 60 complaints about the commercial by the latter part of the week. Morality and Media in this press release claimed the commercial showed a woman who was clearly shown on the office desk on her back with her skirt wide open, legs spread high in the air towards the viewing audience. Deep between her legs was a man thrusting his groin wildly and simulated sex. Do you ever notice how... How sexual the, they are in their descriptions? Yes! How the moral <laughs> watchdogs are... And the term, like, deep... Legs spread high in the air, thrusting wildly. Let me reread it properly, please. All right. A woman was clearly shown on an office desk on her back with her skirt wide open. Legs spread high in the air towards the viewing audience. Deep between her legs was a man thrusting his groin wildly in simulated sex. There you go. Wow. The press, the press release called pro wrestling neither a sport nor a form of entertainment fit for civilized people. No, for a, it's even better for a civilized people. For a civilized people, yes. Dave doesn't agree with the standards that have has taken his product at certain times, only because his advertisers and demographics clearly are aimed at a very young audience. So the arguments about it being aimed at adults as a defense are bullshit. Although it's clearly toned down over the last three weeks, but to take that commercial is anything more than the tongue-in-cheek humor is ridiculous. The commercial was designed to push someone's buttons and create stretch, which it did because they were proclaiming it as the most controversial Super Bowl commercial ever before it aired. That was their hook. Yeah. The hook was for it to be controversial. So yeah, mission, mission accomplished. Really well done. Yes. But I don't even know if it was even that. <laughs> I, I mean, know. there's other commercials that were more controversial than them in the past. So, Yeah. Yeah. Oh, oh, uh, you, oh it, I found the uh, the uh, January. So it's before our week, but there is a WWF press release announcing this. I just want to read the Vince quote that's in here about the yeah. Get It campaign, which also didn't last very long either. Uh, the Get It campaign is about how this unique sports entertainment product, and by the way, sports entertainment is hyphenated here, uh, has evolved to encompass contemporary themes that are as interesting as anything on TV or at the movies for that matter stated Vince McMahon of course it's Vince McMahon it ends with for that matter <laughs> chairman of the World Wrestling Federation we think we've created a spot that delivers on the elevated expectation of us so much that to see it you have to ask what was that or did I see what I thought I saw the themes we touch on are as big as any entertainment and that's the message we ask people to get. Yeah. <laughs> the one I, I mean, the one I remember the most from that Super Bowl, commercial wise, was that was when they debuted the first trailer for The Matrix. And very rarely, <laughs> up until that time, have I seen a movie trailer where I basically got up out of my seat. And just like screaming, holy shit. I did for that. And that 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 right there just like changed the game right there as far as movie trailers goes. Holy shit indeed. If you if you have never seen the Matrix Super Bowl trailer, 
You have to watch it and put yourself in that time when that movie came out, seeing how everything looked in that trailer because you, there was nothing like that before in a movie trailer. Nothing. It's a short 30-second trailer, but my God. Oof. I still I still showed that today to people. To, to people Case's age. It's like, because especially with this last Matrix that just came out, I was like, you got to see this to see what we what we were looking at when this thing first came out. Like, fuck, you know, amazing. All right, let's go to the torch. Undertaker's characters based on poor TV ratings early on will be modified to be less demonic and more aggressive. Sure. Well, <laughs> that happens like six months from here. <laughs> sure. But. Not yet. We got a long way to go. We got a long way to go for that happens. No. Oh, and also I found an Adweek article. Uh, it ends with this quote from Jim Byrne: "For people who get it, there's a lot to enjoy. Not the least of which is the irony. And I should note that they added in in brackets in wrestling, enjoy in wrestling. So either he just ended it with enjoy or he said in sports entertainment and Adweek felt the need to cut, to change that to in wrestling, which I kind of hope it's the latter. But we're about as much like we're as much about entertainment as NYPD Blue, 90210 or Lethal Weapon, because I guess Lethal Weapon 4 was recent at this point. I have no idea. <laughs> anyway, all right, Dan Severin's on his way out. Severin was given a series of options. It was suggested he do a shoot fight with Lethal Weapon Steve Blackman, which makes no sense in the confines of WWF, which he didn't want to do because they were friends. He was given the option but signed a contract release where they would give him a severance check as a buyout. Or he could remain on contract for the next year plus until it expires. But he'd be jobbed out. As of right now, it appears to be working through the end of February. Severin didn't get over. It would have been tough. He could have worked. It was no guarantee. It hadn't been done perfectly from the start, and it wasn't. He was pretty well doomed when he asked to wear the NWA belt on WWE television again. Because the first thing they did was injure him with Owen Hart under the guise of making him a babyface and send him a feud. Then before they could even do their feud, they turned him on Blackman for no reason. This isn't confirmed one way or another, but days been led to believe Severin's book with WWE early in February, which would negate reports of a shoot fight in Holland this week. Severin did put Blackman over at the house shows all week. It just wasn't going to work out. It just no. wasn't. Now, I also find it interesting that he mentions the Owen angle here because I've always found that thing fascinating in a bunch of different ways. For those who have never seen it, and boy, am I sure this did not help Austin's feelings towards Owen, and I'm sure people in creative, they did a match where Owen hits the cage driller on Austin, not Austin, on Severn, and they do, like, a worked replay of the Austin injury. It's it's like a, the Montreal Obsession version of someone nearly getting put in a wheelchair. It's very weird. And, like, A, that's really shitty to do to your top star, much less anyone else in the company, to do this weird takeoff of their actual injury. But also, look, Owen Hart was usually very safe. The whole thing with Austin is... I tend to believe Austin's version of it, but it's just strange. And then Severn, who I gotta think someone has explained the backstory to, was also trusting enough to take that move from Owen, 
knowing that Owen still had to try to make it look like it broke his neck. Like a, like the messed up version did. Just strange situation and also kind of makes me wonder if Russo started to have more direct creative influence like he obviously would in 99. Because obviously he's writing it with Ferrara and with Vince, at, you know, in 98. But <sighs> suggesting things without thinking them through or talking to a wrestler about it in the safety is a very Vince Russo thing. If And it seems to me that that kind of angle would fit with that. You know what I mean? Possibly. I mean, Severn ended up fine. It, you know, he didn't get hurt. But just a weird situation all around. And... Severin, especially coming here as part of the NWA thing, it wasn't going to work. But, he, you know, he didn't have Shamrock's charisma anyway. They wouldn't let him do the type of pro wrestling that could get him over. You know, they weren't just going to let him suplex the hell out of guys. Or do quick, you know, MMA-looking wins and stuff. So, this was never going to work at all. Jim Ross met with Tank Abbott in Los Angeles and Mark Kerr in Phoenix when the tour hit those cities. Nothing signed. There was an article two weeks back on Butterbean in the Philadelphia Daily News about his WF deal. They said he had a two-fight deal with WF, which was true, for 50 grand per fight, which may be true, and claimed the contract said that Butterbean wouldn't be pinned in either match. WF has had discussions about doing a Butterbean-Bart Gun brawl for all match, but the schedule never made it possible. Although Butterbean is going to take time off boxing after his fight on February 13th. Still, for Butterbean, it's a no-win situation doing a shoot in the pro wrestling ring, and his deal was for two work matches, and he hasn't been interested in doing a brawl for all match against Bart Gun because Butterbean's marketability is down from when the deal was made. He may just be paid off on his contract and not used a second time. Well, that's interesting in light of what happens. <laughs> yes! Um, and see, Case, Case you, you, you missed the Butterbean uh, era of uh, boxing and stuff like that, where he became a cult hero. Yeah, I only recently... I, I mean, I guess... Well, I, let me ask you, was it partially ironic that he became as big as he was because i don't have the context for explaining it's, this phenomenon the, the size the, how big he was wearing the, the american flag trunk, the button the name and just knocking these tomato cans out basically he that's, i yeah. mean that's what it was he had and, he fought, of, and he fought four round fights that's it yes. he had it kind a, of the, all gimmick. he had kind of the gimmick of being a tough man guy who became a real boxer that was kind of yeah. how he was presented. But, you know, here's the thing. He's not an amazing boxer, but he was a real boxer. Yeah, he's a real boxer, and he could he knock, knock your ass out. He right. had great he, power. Yeah, he's a gimmick, but he's but he's still a legitimate boxer. Yeah, that yeah. was always, I guess, my hang-up was I, I knew he had to have some sort of legitimate skill. I saw what he had to bark on, but I, again, the the American flag trunks, the name, everything. I was like, this guy is a gimmick to some degree, but I I never knew until very recently that like, oh no, he was he had talent. Yeah, yeah, and and he was a draw. I forget he was a draw. I forget if it was Butterbean in interviews to talk about this, but allegedly the story is he once the Bart Gun thing gets more serious, he offers to do a worked fight. He offers to do a total work. Eventually, yeah. Yeah, but because he seemed to realize what would happen if they fought, especially yeah. once he knew that they were putting Bart into boxing training, and he I don't think he wanted to hurt him, and unfortunately he did in what is still, I think, one of the m most brutal knockouts I've ever seen in any combat sport. 
it's as bad as it gets. The way he yeah. spins his head, it's like a cartoon. But it's also just a shame, too, because if Bart just fought in, like, a brawl for all fight, like the other ones, you know, like he fought Doc especially, Bart easily could have won that. But yeah. Arkin hasn't really done MMA yet, if at all. He's not going to know how to defend a takedown. Uh, but anyway. All right, Sable will probably phase out of a rest capacity except for an occasional gimmick match. They'll probably push her hard for a Mania match to take advantage of her Playboy cover. So, in other words, this is when she really starts saying, look, you haven't trained me a lot. I didn't sign up for this. I don't want to wrestle anymore. Yeah, pretty much. Which, you know what? Especially with time removed from all this and being an adult and all that, she was absolutely in the right. Yeah. You know? Yes, yes she was. And especially, too, well, also... As nervous as she always got about the idea that someone would hurt her, you know, she is also, this is around the time when she starts to work with less polished opponents, too, who aren't going to be able to take care of her as well, either safety-wise or in terms of putting on a decent match. Exactly. So, between this, you know, the other stuff she would eventually allege in the lawsuit, like, you know, there's a, there were a couple things in the lawsuit that may not have been quite what she said they were. Like, oh, I forget. There was a deposition or excerpt or something. Oh, no, no, it was her... I think it was, like, her deposition in the Nicole Bass lawsuit, which is after she... after Sable settled. I think this is where I read it. But it was something like, you know, the, there was the allegation people always noticed in the complaint about how there were big nipple contests being held in the locker room. (laughs) And it turned out that was just a couple of the uh, local dancers who were brought in to work as the Godfather's quote-unquote hose who had proposed such an endeavor. Yeah. Kind of different. But she was in the right with all this. Like, you know, you you can quibble with you know, how her lawyer put it in the complaint and stuff, and the weird media tour she went on, but she was in the right with most of the stuff. Yeah, she had her valid points. And also, I mean, granted they had a lot of money coming in from other stuff, kudos to Mark Merrill for just deciding to side with his wife and giving up his guaranteed contract with the World Wrestling Federation. Yeah. It really paid off for him. Yeah, he's fine though. I mean, he yeah, yeah, you're right, you're right. (laughs) Yeah. All right, NBC Weekend today is doing a feature on Kurt Angle training for a WF career. Dory Funk and Tom Pritchard are doing a camp this week with Dr. F.C. Williams, Carl Willett, Pierre, who said they dropped thirty to forty pounds in great shape, Luke Poirier and Barry Buchanan from the Truth Commission, Dennis Knight, Midian, Jose Estrada Jr., Steve Bradley, and Paul Orndorff the third. 70 real green. Glenn Kalka, Tom Howard, and Kurt Angle. Wait, so Mr. Wonderful is actually Paul Orndorff Jr.? Uh, yeah, it's funny, though, that he... Because his son is at the WF training camp while he's at the power plant. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and at this point, I think he's taken over as head trainer, right? If not, then it's close. <sighs> That's super weird. Yeah, it is. Also, there you go. 
I know some people might need a camp to get back into ring shape and stuff, but it's also a little weird seeing 15-year-plus veteran Luke Poirier here. <laughs> uh, it's just, you know, hey, you learn, you, you learn something new all the time. Yeah, so, and, yeah. you know, PCO obviously was also trying to get into better shape and other stuff, so there, there were other elements mixed in with him. But interesting yeah. crew here. Yeah. Paul White will probably debut in the ring at Mania, although he'll probably have a presence felt on television leading up to the show. Well, yeah. He well, has his debut at the February pay-per-view. But his in-ring debut, I think, was the Austin match before Mania, the infamous Austin yes. match. Yes. Which, yeah. Where he does a clean job on his first night in the company. Yeah, it's insane. It's totally insane. Super Astros is doing a 6.5 Hispanic national rating on Univision. Pretty good for a 30-minute show. Yes. And speaking of heavily Hispanic markets... House shows for the week saw so January 27th, Colorado Springs do a sell of 79.14, paying 152.377. Wheeling, West Virginia, on the 28th, drew a 7,029, paying 145.70. Youngstown, Ohio, on the 29th, drew 6,386, paying 115.205. Cleveland, double shot, afternoon show, 19,663, paying 354.182. Four straight selling in Cleveland. Nighttime in Pittsburgh, drew a sell of 16589 paying 298233 Third straight sell out there. Then the annual Super Bowl afternoon show, this time in Philly, paying uh, 16417 paying 364151 Merchandise was 545366 or 673 per head. Midweek shows had Mankind Over Rock on top. Weekend shows had the four ways. Jarrett no one when guitar matches over Road Dogg on X-Pac at the weekend shows when China gave X-Pac a low blow. Triple, Triple H vs. China, Triple H vs. Kane, both in the quick move outside interference from the others since Kane couldn't wrestle through to the staples in his head. Fans were trading rip-off. Philadelphia after their non-match. Philadelphia show was reported as a rush deal and pretty bad from several sources, which has been the exception to the general rule. Well, it's Super Bowl Sunday, so they're trying to get done quick. So there you go. But... What business? What business are they doing here? Mm-hmm. My good man, man, man. Yes, although the the merch per head is lower than you'd expect, given the business they're doing. Yeah, and, yeah, it is. You know, because I think the program at this point is five bucks. So I got it. I'd be I'd be particularly curious to see what the median was then too. On top of you know, not just the average, because. To me, this reflects a lot of people buying programs and there not being that much to pull the average up. Yeah. The January 31st, Charleston Post-Courier quoted Vincent Mann talking about Mick Foley. He's a wonderful, wonderful man. I've done but respect for Mick as a performer and as a human being. He gives to the extent that you have to say to him, take it easy. It becomes a situation where you have to look out for performers despite what they want to give the audience and the company and everything else. You have to say no. He's the epitome of that kind of mentality. We're looking for who wants to give to the audience. Interesting quotes there by Vince. Yeah. Talking about giving, going too far. Um, I'm guessing he did not like how things went at the Rumble. Oh, no. <laughs> Which... Oh, no. You know, I watched that a few years ago for the anniversary, and I wrote something about a dead spin. The how gross the last few minutes are is every bit as bad as you remember, if not worse. But everything leading up to that is also a much better match than you remember. But the end is just ugh. all those chair shots and 
Mick also not realizing, oh, wait, I'm going to have my hands handcuffed behind my back. That's going to affect if I, how well I can bump off of these to reduce the impact. So, yeah. yeah, they show they show clips of the finish on the halftime heat broadcast because it's been yeah. it's been years since I've seen the the rumble match. But, yeah, it's as it's as bad as I remember. It's really, really gross. Yeah. Yeah, yeah exactly. Speaking also, of Brock- well, no, I was just going to say, too. I wonder if it's their personality type on top of their other shared issues to a degree. How about that, at least in this era, it seems like Vince is kind of looking at Mick the same way that he would Danielson later on. Yeah, but look at Vince's relationship changed as time went along, too. It did, but also, like, he seems to kind of appreciate this lovable, genuine guy... And actually does seem worried for him and less having a little bit less of a, you know, circus animal mentality than usual about the wrestlers. Yeah. Brock is not wearing a shirt during his matches while scars healed from surgery and recently to remove fatty tissue buildup in his pectoral area. Did the observer yep. version of this story use the phrasing that I would expect? Uh, the Observer didn't have anything on during our week about this. This is just from the torch. Okay, so. not in our week, at least. Okay. Yeah. The t-shirt track pants era of The Rock. Well, it's not a, it's not a t-shirt exactly. It's like, it's the companion shirt to the track pants, but it's not quite a track suit. It looks like a t-shirt to me on halftime heat, so. No, like the material in the cut, I can't really explain, but it looks like a, it looks like it's part of an ensemble. It's like a shooting shirt, I guess we would say in the NBA, so to speak. Uh, sort of. All right. Uh, more from the torch. In fact, the rest of the WF is from the torch. The WF plans to demolish the former Debbie Reynolds Hotel Casino in Las Vegas, Nevada, so they can build a 1,000-room hotel tailored to their needs. August LaCorey, the WF's chief financial officer, said they will raise the hotel within the next few months with plans to open the new resort in early 2000. The new 35-story facility would include a 35,000-square-foot casino and 50,000-square-feet of bars, but not a live wrestling venue, according to published reports. This man originally wanted to renovate the existing structure to include a venue for live wrestling, and that was believed to be the original reason he decided to tear down the current structure. According to other reports out of Las Vegas, demolition of the hotel is running into a snack since the Debbie Reynolds Hotel was part of a timeshare operation. <coughs> Excuse me. Um, if Debbie can't get 75% of the timeshare owners to relinquish their space for a year and agree to continue the rest of their timeshare in the ent- entirely new structure, WF may have to sell the property and look for another site to build on. WF paid $10.65 million for the hotel and the land is built on. Yeah, okay. it was a fucking timeshare. <laughs> well, first of all, though, for a Vegas hotel in a pretty decent location and one that had name value, even if anyone that was going to buy it was going to have to do a lot of redecorating based on the de- how the Demi Reynolds hotel was set up can you even with inflation can you even imagine anyone paying anything as close to as low as low eight figures for a hotel and casino like that now in vegas they got a great deal they did i I believe they made a profit on the deal overall all told when they sold it yeah um and I believe I don't think it's in the coverage I remember reading of them selling, but I believe the timeshare thing is one of the hurdles because they end up opening under some generic name until they sell it. Yeah, they don't actually demolish it. They just realize okay, this would be too expensive, but 
they made a good enough business deal with it, so whatever, good for them. But you know, with all the, how big a space this is and everything, it just this was too overly ambitious. Yeah, which uh, they never do with something like that. <laughs> well, like with the restaurant, at least you're doing a Times Square theme restaurant, and probably not the right brand for that. But it's still something where there's going to be foot traffic and you know whatever. Like I can see why that could, you could have an idea of it being successful. This, I, I don't get it. Yeah. Although I do like I do like the Bruce Pritchard thing, which I, I'm sure this is an idea that came up that he said at one point that on his podcast that uh, one of the ideas was to have retired wrestlers be the greeters like old boxers at some hotels. <laughs> that would have been awesome. <laughs> would have been awesome. All right, more on Billy Gunn. Billy Gunn was scheduled to win the Intercontinental Top Ken Shamrock of the Royal Rumble to the day of the show. He partied the night before and showed up late, so management made an example of him by switching to the finish to him tapping out clean to the ankle lock. Okay, so this was not a no-condition-to-perform type of thing or anything like that. This is him just showing up late. And they were just trying to send a message when he can't put up with that shit. Yeah. And this guy, they're about to put, a, put the number two title on. You know? Well, also... Uh, had the road dog layoff for personal issues, was that before this or after this? I don't know. I don't remember. I don't remember exactly when it is, but it wouldn't shock me if they're also frustrated by the fact that, you know, his partner is or was having issues, and now this happens. Yeah. Who knows? And to close out, Vince Man is less involved in TV writing now than ever, since he's focusing on his on his skits more than the whole show. FRR and Vince Russo write the TV scripts, then they submit them to Vince, who makes the final changes. FRR and Russo are already hinting that they don't want Terry Taylor's input until after shows are written. Taylor was active behind the scenes at the tapings last week. <laughs> so they don't want Terry Taylor to have anything to do with the writing of the show just after it's written. Now, that probably changes, though, because, you know, several months later, they all go to WCW. It turns out that Terry Taylor has very much become a Vince Russo guy. Yeah, well, he had to prove himself to Vince Russo, so there you go. Which That's a horrifying uh, horrifying paragraph there. <laughs> yeah. It's really depressing to think that they had power for so long in so many different companies. Yes, yes. Well, I'm sure, yeah, they did wonders for the presentation of women in the wrestling business, didn't they? Yes, <laughs> but, all I mean, but, but look at the business. That's what that I mean. That's the thing that they that they always have on their side. The the say, listen, we were the writers. You know, they you know weren't the be all end all, but still, they were the writers on record of the most successful period of modern wrestling. It's on television. Yes. Um, and while I do think he pumps it up a little, for all of Russo's lies, distortions, bad memory, and everything in between, he, you know, here it is, you know, long before he's trying to take credit publicly or leaves or anything, that, yeah, he and Ferrara were doing a lot more of the writing. As Vince was getting spread more thin and thin, especially as 99 went on with the IPO. Yeah. And you, as we and see, you can, you, and you can tell by the television. Right, exactly. You can see, especially after he goes to WCW, you can tell. 
because oh, yeah. this stuff looks much more like that stuff than you know 97 98 tv wwf tv did all right. Well, that's it for the first half of the show. It is now halftime. So after some great 1999 commercials, probably from the Super Bowl, we'll uh, pivot to halftime seven to show where we'll come back, talk about the Patreon show. We'll hit the plugs. Definitely talk about action Southeast first in that. And then we'll come back and we go to other North America where we have Jacques Rougeau having a press conference in Montreal we have Western Canada News. We have Lucha and so much more after the break. Hello? Hey, what'd your wife say? No. What about your place? No. Hold on. Hey, what did your wife say? No. Hold on. Hey, what'd your wife say? No. Hmm. With two power outlets and a built-in picnic table... It's the ultimate survival tool. I'm in. I'm in. Yeah, I'm in. The four-wheel drive CRV from Honda. Come on, I'll be home by 10. Me too. Me too. Me too. Ride along on Homer's road trip to the Super Bowl with Troy Aikman, Dan Marino, John Madden, and Pat Summerall. Just about ready for the second quarter here in Miami. Here comes the kick. The Simpsons Super Bowl Spectacular. We're going to the oh! after Family Guy tonight. Cars are now breaking the sound barrier. Serves are clocked at 140. We can travel 18,000 miles an hour into space. So how come pain relief isn't faster? Introducing Advil Liquid Gels, the first and only pain reliever in a faster-acting liquid-filled capsule that's gentle on your stomach. On tough pain, Advil Liquid Gels are stronger and faster than extra-strength Tylenol. Headaches to muscle aches. New Advil Liquid Gels. Advanced medicine for pain. Stronger and faster. Get ready to taste life for the first time, people. Watch out now. You want to taste life? Then take a big swig of this. New Pepsi One. This one's got it all. The most awesome cola taste that's bigger than the wild blue yonder. But only one calorie. You want to taste one? Yeah. You want one? Yeah. You want one? For me, put your tray table up and prepare for takeoff, my man. <laughs> all the taste, one calorie. Only one has it all. Twelve hours from now, Frank Beecham will be executed by lethal injection. A convicted killer's only hope. Now, come on, there was somebody, wasn't there? Is a reporter. Give me something, man. What do you want from me? What do you people want from me? With one last chance. After a police investigation, a trial, what? Six years of appeals, and you love discrepancies. Clint Eastwood. You're not really sure, are you? True Crime. Rated R. Starts Friday, March 19th. It introduced the most powerful overall line of pickups on the planet and stamped the terms V10 and Magnum Power indelibly on the face of truckdom. It kicked open the door to the next generation of pickups and made such an impression that today... This is all you have to see to know what's behind it. Tuesday on Fox. Where's the game? Hey, where's the game? It's the season's most daring new comedy. A promo for a new show. Time Magazine calls the PJs gorgeous, fresh, and funny. And did we mention Eddie Murphy? They'll put anything on. An all-new PJs after an all-new King of the Hill, Fox Tuesday. 
Cities don't get any bigger than this. I'm proud to be a native New Yorker. It's a fabulous city. Gorgeous park. Biggest little boutiques. We've got the biggest buildings. <laughs> Ever wonder why New Yorkers have such big mouths? Because we eat big pizza, like a big New Yorker from Pizza Hut. 16 inches of real New York pizza dripping with cheese at a very un-New York price. $9.99? Honey, you should never give it away. The big New Yorker, new from Pizza Hut, is beautiful. Introducing Fox's newest show. Uh, Mr. President, why do you continue to avoid the truth even after being impeached? Oh, um, probably because you're so fat. <laughs> this is why I don't vote. Family Guy, see a sneak peek right after the Super Bowl on Fox. You know their faces. You know their shows. They've made you laugh and cry. Now, television's biggest stars come together for an unforgettable event. Over one million of you voted. Celebrate with the world and find out who wins the prestigious TV Guide Awards live tomorrow at 8, 7 central on Fox. All right, we're back. I've enjoyed all those great 1999 commercials from the Super Bowl, most likely. As we which we haven't done the commercials yet, but I'm, I'm thinking that that's probably where they're coming from. As we go <laughs> to um, the time to talk about Patreon here at halftime, patreon.com slash twenty sheets. And of course, as you heard at the beginning of the show, the newest Patreon show is up. As we are talking about Joel Goodhart's TWA and uh, the beginning of the super indies in the United States in Philadelphia. And yeah, it's really, really good show. Everybody go check that out. And uh, we're proud proud of it. And, of course, uh, you know, we talk about ECW so much. So you definitely want to listen to this if you listen to ECW shows to understand, you know, basically the genesis of ECW in a way. Because Todd Gordon is heavily involved in this. And there's a lot of other people involved in the promotion that eventually go on the ECW. So, yeah, it's uh, like I said in the show, it's that the begat thing, like you see in the Bible. TWA begat ECW, and ECW begat ROH, which, of course, we'll be talking about Ring of Honor on uh, our next Patreon show, the Genesis of Ring of Honor. So, yeah, you definitely want to listen to these shows, uh, since you listen to ECW shows, to have the nice bookend to Extreme Championship Wrestling. And to do that, $5 a month at patreon.com slash Trina Sheens. That gets you the opportunity to listen to all the great audio we've done in our five-plus years of our Patreon. Dollar month gets you access to the uh, Discord and thanks to this segment. Twenty-five gets you uh, the chance to pick a show for the week, like we had this week with Jared Hunt, who picked this show for this week. Even though we didn't mention it at the beginning of the show, we apologize to Jared, but he picked this show and he put the twenty-five dollars down. He requested it. Everything worked out that way for him. Everything can work out for you if you handle your business the right way. So whenever you want us to do a show, that whenever you want us to do a show, make sure that. Uh, you pick a show that we haven't done already, and if a show we have done, or maybe somebody else has uh, picked a week for, have a backup show handy just in case. That way uh, we can, you know, appease you and make sure that you can get uh, the audio that you want to hear for your money. And follow the product protocol on the Patreon website on how to get the information to fix. Of course, 30-day rules in effect, Wednesday to Tuesday, 10-year rule, all that stuff's on the website. So follow along with that. And if there's any questions, just let us know, and we'll try to answer them for you. And that way we can get everything set up like you want it. $50 allows you to sit in for a segment of that show if you choose. And $100 if you want to sit in for the whole show with us. $100, good deal. You can do that. 
at patreon.com slash twenty sheets. And the annual payment bix is I guess it's technically available for any of the tiers as sixteen uh, percent off, but the main one of course would be for the five dollar a month tier, which comes out to uh, four dollars and twenty cents a month or fifty dollars forty cents a year. There you go. So if you want to save a little bit of money and not to worry about reoccurring and whatever, go that route. A lot of other people have done that lately, so we appreciate that as well. All right, who do we have to thank this week as our new and or returning patrons? All right, we would like to thank Damien A. Thorne. Thanks, Damien. Yes. The returning Dwayne Jones. Thanks, Dwayne. Annual subscription from... uh, Mike, Michael Walker, I guess probably not Mike Walker of the National Enquirer in the past, and now it turns out. Thank you, Michael Walker. And we also had a conversion from the monthly $5 to the annual subscription from our friend John Keating. Ah, thanks, John. Yes, John Keating, uh, good dude. Loved uh, chopping up with John whenever I've seen him in the past. Very knowledgeable in the Hollywood, in the field. He's... Uh, an accomplished uh, actor in his own way there and uh, has been seeing his stuff and you wouldn't know probably who he was, but yeah, he's been in quite a few things that you have seen him in. So uh, John's a good dude. Yes. And his lo- of course, his lovely wife, Amber, as well. Yeah. And uh, I guess that's it, right? Yes, I think I did. I think, all I, right, so- I, think I said and, and our friend John. Okay, okay. Well, we thank all of you new patrons, returning patrons, patrons that shifted over and all that good stuff. Patrons have been there from the beginning. Come along the way, whatever. We thank all of you for supporting us at patreon.com slash between the sheets. All right. IWTV, Bix. I want to go talk about Southeast first from Action Wrestling. Yes. That uh, took place uh, the previous weekend. And... Uh, one of the best independent wrestling shows I've watched, and I haven't watched a lot of independent wrestling shows in the last c- couple of years, but one of the best independent wrestling shows I've seen in a long time, top to bottom. Hell of a show. Great payoff with AC Mack winning the uh, IWTV championship. Uh, great emotion. The great speech at the end where, you know, he openly and proudly proclaimed to, to be the first openly gay world champion in wrestling. And that's, that's, that's awesome that uh, he's able to uh, tout that. So, yeah, it beat Alex Shelley and just a, you know, a, a very, very good match. And then, of course, there's other matches on the show. Um, Anthony Henry, Adam Priest, um, John Davis, Drew Adler. Um, there's, there's so many uh, great – I mean, every, just every match was good. I was impressed by guys like uh, Bojack and uh, Landon Hale and – you know Eli Everett. I guess his name Eli Everett. I mean, it's a, there's a, I mean, a lot of great talent on those on those shows, man. So many, so many strong guys. Um, you know, team action and that that match with Team PWF and uh, yeah, just so, so many great stuff on that show. So uh, go check that out. IWTV and I got put over on commentary by our dear friend Dylan Hale. So that's always a plus. So there you go. <laughs> Uh, so yeah, everybody go check that out on the uh, on the feed there. All right, Bix, what else is on IWTV that's caught your eye this week? I mean, that was the main thing, and I think we should stress too that you know, for as much as AC Mac has mainly been put over over the last few years, 
for his promo ability and his character. I think people knew after SCI last year, but especially after the match with Alex Shelley. That guy can go in the ring, too. I've known that for years. <laughs> but you get what I'm saying, though. A lot of his high-profile bookings hadn't necessarily showcased that side of him. Well, no, it hasn't. It hasn't. And, uh, you know, I think that's part of what led up to that speech at the end, too. Yes. So, yeah, yeah I mean, he, he talks about, the, you know, the road he had been taking and all, all the stuff that he had been doing. So, um yeah, it's it's great stuff. And yeah. uh, Matt Gr Matt Griffin, our dear friend, should be proud of uh of that show. Absolutely. Yes. Also, there was a funny part of the speech though, where when he's talking about oh, people said if you really want to get your name out there, you got to go up north, and he's listing off promotions that people said he would need to work to really get his name out there and become the guy and be able to be in line for a title shot or whatever. And you know he's. He says, I think he says Beyond. I think he said Black Label Pro. I think there were a few others. And when he said AIW, you could hear people in the crowd being like, well, we don't, like, not saying in those words, but just the reaction was more muted as far as, because people clearly didn't want to be involved in even in a promo talking shit about AIW. Yeah, somebody said, wait a minute. <laughs> Yeah, well, you know, AIW, John Thorne, another different of ours, uh, does great work. And, yeah, everybody loves AIW. How can you not? So, uh, but, yeah, I mean, I understand why he mentioned them because, I mean, it is one of the groups that you kind of, you know, want to get your profile up. You go work with them. But it's all part of the story that he's telling that now you got to come see me. Yes. I don't have to come see you now. you got to come see me. Yes. you got to come to the South. And there's been a lot of people that's gotten their feelings over that promo, which I think is silly. But... Uh, clearly, some of the stuff we're seeing on Twitter is storyline. Um, some of it, but there are some people that are in their feelings. Yes, although, well, is this a person who had made comments about Southern Wrestling in the past? I mean, it, <laughs> just there are various people, oh. people in the business and other things, too. You know, you can tell some of the stuff. Some of the stuff is war, but it's still shoot-based. shoot, shoot based. Yes, I would agree with that. Um, but, th I mean, that was the main thing that caught my eye. I did kind of want to mainly just talk about uh, that, because also I have not watched the uh, season premiere of The Masked Wrestler yet, either. So, Featuring D Dylan and Tracy Williams. Hot Sauce is on, the, on that. They're the, they're the lead announcer slash hosts, I guess? Yeah, yeah. Oh, interesting. Uh, yeah, and of course you talked about uh, your GCW experience early in the show. So, well, that's that, that's not on IWTV for reasons I'm not sure. No, no, getting no, no, into. no, no, no. I know that. But I'm just saying we, we talked about that. So, so that yeah, that's all the independent wrestling stuff we have on uh, this part. But what is the uh, the link, Vex, for that to use? So yeah, go to independentwrestling.tv. Use code BTSPOD. And as long as you're a subscriber, we will get our little uh, referral fee from uh, from IWTV each month. Yes. All right. We have a big announcement to make as we have a new partner in Between the Sheets. And on that note, Bix, I hand it off to you. 
So, as we had said, it, we, it took a little longer than we expected it to by a few days. But uh, we did set things up with the with a new VPN service, which means that now, hold on, I I thought I had opened their little uh, suggested uh, copy here, and now I can't find. And I thought, but I accidentally closed it. <laughs> well, you're here. It is. So perfect. It was in my email, and I must have clicked. I must have pressed escape or something. All right. So we are brought to you by. Private internet access. That is correct. Yes. America's number one virtual private network or VPN. Even if you use incognito mode, your internet service provider is storing your browsing data and many times even selling it. But they can help. As with other VPNs that you may be aware of, they encrypt and reroute your traffic through their own servers, hiding your data from your internet service provider or network admin, Servers in over 75 countries. Comes with easy-to-use apps and browser extensions. We'll get to that in a second. They have a lot of variety and options with that. They're based in the USA, unlike a lot of the competition. they got 24-hour customer service, etc. And you can subscribe by going to... Let me make sure I have the correct link in front of me. PrivateInternetAccess.com slash Between the Sheets. Awesome. Yes, so no more tiny URLs. For that, at least, yes. <laughs> yes. Yes, it's got our graphic and everything. Yeah, yeah, they, yeah they're, they're, they're fancy with us. Yes, and the deal they have to offer right now is a 40-month subscription. So three years plus four months. And if you go to privateinternetaccess.com slash between the sheets to get this special deal, that's 40 months for $79. So that comes out to $1.98 a month. Wow. $1.98. Yes. That's a bargain. It is, though. It is. What, what a bargain. Yes. Now, real quick, so we can go over, uh, you know, some of the features they have as well as, you know, the apps and stuff. They do have ad and malware blocking features. Always a plus. Yes. You know, dedicated IP addresses, uh, advanced encryption settings. You know, like I said, 24-7 live support, among other stuff that I don't necessarily know what it means yet, like advanced split tunneling. But they also have apps for, okay, and also configuration settings with some DNS stuff too, I believe. But their list, if you click on apps on the top of their page, Windows, Mac, Linux, Android, iOS, Chrome browser, Firefox browser, Opera browser, plus, you know, like I said, settings for game consoles and smart TVs of various sorts. Awesome. So that's a big variety because I know some people like having those browser plugins, you know? Yes. Especially, you know, that... I mean, that's useful for us because I could just run the VPN in the browser and it wouldn't affect our call or anything. It wouldn't have to go through the VPN. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so, it's a game changer. Yes, absolutely. Semi-pun not intended this week. <laughs> but yes, privateinternetaccess.com slash between the sheets for that. Any further questions or comments? Well, hey, I think we moved up in the world. 
You heard us talk about the rest. Now we're talking about the best. So there you go. Yes. Yes, absolutely. And simultaneous access on 10 devices as well, by the way. That's wild. So there you go. Get on it. PrivateInternetAccess.com slash between the sheets. And yes, a no-law policy, of course, as well. Again, always great to have that. All right, plug time. Next week on Between the Sheets, we will go back to 1993. And we will be joined by a first-time guest, John Muse, finally, on Between the Sheets, to talk about a wild week in WCW, which will lead to a wilder week the week after, which we've already discussed. But yes, uh, a huge shift in power in WCW as Bill Watts loses power. And uh, they split up some divisions. They're about to bring in some more people to help run things. And Eric Bischoff is a highly central figure in all this. And, hey, John Muse knows Eric Bischoff, and now he does business as well as anybody. So we're going to have John Muse on the show to talk about that and talk about all the other stuff going on during our week. We got the big plug, of course, at the end of the show. But, um, yeah, there's a lot of interesting stuff going on as in uh wf we got a controversial hacksaw jim Duggan yokozuna match aired on television that got wf in hot water with some different groups yes so we'll talk about that. we should note as we'll get into next week when we talk about that I, people i think occasionally might know what like you might see discuss this but i don't think they understand why exactly it became a controversy it's it's more specific than I think people realize. It's not just that it's a jingoistic angle. You know, so we'll we'll get into that in detail, I think, next week. Yeah, absolutely, yes. And we'll talk about uh, Doink the Clown causing major havoc in Memphis on television. And we have quite the m- moment with Corey Macklin at Doink the Clown as well. Then we have all the Japanese stuff to talk about and, and WCW as well, which is WCW and Smoky Mountain together. Heavenly Body show up at center stage, and Jim Cornette raises hell with Bill Watts in a promo that was edited on TBS, but aired unedited on Smoky Mountain Wrestling Television. So we'll talk about that. And it actually did air unedited on TBS, but not not on the World Championship Wrestling show, per se. So we'll talk about that and a lot more next week on Between the Sheets. Should be a very, very, very strong show. Looking, Looking forward to this one heavily. So be ready for that. All right, you can follow me on Twitter at Chris Zellner, K-R-I-S-Z-E-L-N-E-R. Show proper at B-T Sheets Pod. Bix at David Bix. And uh, Bix, I saw you had um, something on Bayface v Heel as we record this. So uh, go ahead and talk about what's going on there. Well, I did a post about uh, the research I did and some reporting, uh, some things I gathered that make it pretty clear that uh, Nick Wayne should not have been pulled from the GCW Hammerstein show. Nor should uh, Excite Wrestling have been cited for having negative uh, one Brody Huber in the ring at the end of one of the two CW reunion shows in October. Because it doesn't look like there's any actual pro wrestling rule on the books that would keep underage performers out of the ring. Again, these, these state athletic commissions are uh, they're a joke in a lot of ways. So. Yes. And also hear about something else they threaten GCW with a fine for. That also is probably not on the books. Yeah, these 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 people get agendas, and they think they're 
big and bad and, and all this, you know, power they, they're wielding, but they don't, so. Yeah. And also, you realize how, you know, they have some goofy rules on paper, but boy, especially with the pandemic stuff in the last couple of years, it's become clear that Maryland is probably actually the best wrestling commission <laughs> for all the jokes and stuff there used to be. Yeah, with the blood and all that stuff. But, you know, they came up with, you know, great pandemic protocols and working with ROH and other promotions. Um, they actually do the one thing that wrestlers want commissions to be able to do, and they actually only try to license wrestlers who can prove legitimate training or um, enough on-the-job experience to show that they deserve a wrestling license. So, you know, like... Yes, there's some stuff that really should be taken out of the rules, even if they don't usually enforce them. Yes, but it it they actually seem to care about doing right by the wrestlers and the promoters, and not just doing a cash grab. Mm-hmm. Rare. Yes, you know everything else. Eh, the other commissions, not so much. So that's there at babyfacefeel.com. Also, uh, either you know one or both of these should either be out or about to come out by the time this is out but i have some stuff coming up on fan but uh about gcw and hammerstein and also uh with the royal rumble 92 anniversary well the anniversary was early in the month earlier in the month because it was an early rumble for january 92 but with the actual rumble pay-per-view uh 30 years since hogan looked like a whiny baby when sid eliminated him and examining the evolution or de-evolution of Hogan. Well, the Hogan character into being such an asshole, all of babyface. Which is funny because he did the same thing, the Ultimate Warrior in 90, and then same thing, the Tugboat in 91. <laughs> yeah, same thing, basically. So, there you go. Alright, so there's all that. So, enough of that. Let's get back to the rest of the show. All right, let's go to other North America now, and we begin in Canada, in Montreal, where Jacques Rougeau had a press conference this past week to announce he's restarting his independent promotion in Quebec, with their first show taking place on Valentine's Day at the Pierre Charbonneau Center in Montreal. Rougeau said he was putting $42,000 of his own money into the show. He's planning on running four shows and hopes to go throughout Quebec, but wasn't committing to the idea, and it appears Paul LeDuc will be involved. His first show will be headlined by his, by his teaming with his brother, Ramon, against Greg Nava Valentine Abdul the Butcher for the Johnny Rougeau tag titles. Jacques has made both of the image of his uncle on them. Johnny Rougeau was promoted in Montreal in the 60s and early 70s during the heyday period. Ramon, 43, who has long since retired from the ring, but still in the contract to as a French-language announcer, said he was only going to do this one show, teaming with his brother for the first time in many years. Claiming so his eight-year-old son, who had never seen him wrestle, would get a chance. Also, the press conference was Michel Dubois, better known as Hayward, California resident Alexei Smirnov. He'll also be helping with the promotion. Also in the car would be King Kong Bundy, Kevin Martell, nephew of Rick, Carla Duke, son of Paul, best known as the ball-headed dude being stretched by Stu Hart in the Bret Hart movie. So Jacques Rougeau getting back into the... Uh, promoting business here in 1999 yes uh where's case though by the way uh, he had to dip out for a little bit he'll be back all right good to know um did this show happen 
February 14th, 1999. I think that it happened. Okay. Also, to continue with the conversation about WrestleRages, Ray Rougeau was 43 in 1999. Yes, it took place on February 14th, 1999. Uh, and, uh, yep, yeah, well, Greg Valentine was on the card. It was the Rougeaus beating Abdul the Butcher and Richard Chaland. Of course. And Jacques won. They, they did a 14-man battle royal as well, where Jacques won the battle royal. Bundy was there. He went Ron Trottier. Uh, Tiger Jackson was there. Dink. He'd be little broken. And then a bunch of other... Uh, Carla Duke worked. Kevin Martell worked. And a bunch of other local guys. So... Little broken. Yeah, this this is this is Lute two thousand, and they would they ran, they ran shows into two thousand and off and on for two thousand and three. So, Cage Match says till twenty eleven. Well, that it's the same the, company as as Lute Familiale. Familiale, yes. But is that the same promotion? Is that Jacques Rougeau's promotion? Um, uh, I would think so. Oh, it looks like there's also a big gap in the results, though, too. So it looks like they shut yeah. down at some point. Yeah. Or we're only running once a year or whatever. Something like that. Yeah, it, 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 yeah, they were running informal stuff, yeah. Yeah, I see Kevin Steen's name coming up in some results here. But, yeah, I mean, Jock always you know, did fairly well in promoting in that area. He knew how to, uh, to bring a crowd. We didn't have any attendance for this show, but still. He had a, a great reputation for do, for drawing well. So oh, that. did you see this one? Uh, December 29th, 99. Main event at uh, Center Pierre uh, Charbonneau. Your main event. Jimmy and Ronnie Garvin defeated Jacques and Ramon Rougeau to win the Johnny Rougeau tag team titles. Yeah. They brought it back. 14 years, 14 plus years later. Yeah. Interesting to see how that how that went. <laughs> yeah, and it's the biggest drawing feud of international, right? Uh, in the in that era, yes. Well, international was a new promotion, though. That's what I'm saying. International started in when? Eighty one, eighty two, or was well, it I mean, the very late seventies? It was the late seventies. No, um, they. they there's not a lot of heavy Montreal stuff as far as attendance, but they always drew good houses. Yeah. So, I mean, it was there. We just don't have a whole lot of it on record. International started in 76. Okay. I thought it was later for some so, reason. Um, maybe I'm thinking when some of the ownership changed hands. But also not on that first show on Valentine's Day, but on the second show... May 7th, Precious Lucy, better known as Indie Wrestling Hall of Famer Lou Fista. Yep. Yeah, early days of her career. All right, Western Canada, ICW. January 3rd at the Alice McKay Building in Cloverdale, British Columbia, in front of 400 fans. Got a battle royal won by Abaddon. Not that one. Yeah, and the other participants are also on this show, so we'll go into the matches. Rick Richards over Mike Jones. Not Virgil Vincent. Not the other one either. Jason Sterling over Chico Alvarez. And yes, it is that Jason Sterling, son of Lane. So yes, the Jason Sterling from World Class were Brian Alvarez in 1999 in British Columbia. Fantastic. 
I think the Inferno to talk about this match too. I don't remember the context though. The Inferno over Craig Corrosion, Leviathan, not Dave Batista, over the Lebanese Assassin, Lane Fontaine over Cobra, not Jeff Farmer. GQ Justin Shepard over Nick Allen, Fabulous Fabio over Randy Taylor, Champagne Jerry Morrow over Havoc, ICW Tag Titles, Sumito and Buddy Wayne, father of Nick, uh, defeated Dr. Luther Nikibus to win the titles, and Diamond Timothy Flowers retained his ICW Heavyweight title, beating Abaddon, who got the match because he won the Battle Royal. You mean the unfairly screwed by the New York State Athletic Commission, Nick Wayne? <laughs> Well, hey, you know, it's a state athletic commission. What do you expect? Yeah, although, well, looks like he's probably getting his uh, dream match with Will Ospreay Mania weekend. So I think he'll probably be happy with how all this turns out. Yeah, I mean, it's a much more high-profile match than what he would have been on the on the New York show. So, yeah, he should be very happy. Yeah, and, you know, Alvarez was talking about on so I mean, Oh, go ahead. This is only going to help him. I mean, yes. this, you know, this this publicity will only it only gets his name out there more and more and more and more. So he actually wins in all this. Yes, and Alvarez was talking about on Observer Live about how Will Ospreay's basically been his favorite wrestler, like for years now since he was a smaller child. So, like, yeah, this is his dream match, and. You can see the influence in some of his style, too. Well, I mean, good Lord, he's 16 years old. <laughs> I mean, well, I mean, he's 16, so, you know, he, I mean, Will Ospreay started becoming a thing on the scene when he was eight or nine years old. Yes. So, you know, of course. Of course he's going to be influenced on someone like him. So there you go. Yeah. All right. Anything else on this show before we move on? Um, not really. This is fairly late for Jerry Morrow, though, isn't it? Jerry Morrow, I, I would see his name bounce around for years. I mean, he seems like a guy who's always finding his way somewhere. Okay. So who knows where he where he ended up uh, retiring or whatever, quit wrestling. Because he, he was around for a long time, working here, there, and everywhere. All right, Mexico. Triple R. The January 31st show was the flip-flop show where the Technicos wrestled Rudos and Rudos is Technicos ended with Rey Dragon over Triple A Moscow de la Merced in the Caballero Coach Caballero match. This is a flip-flop show and both these men are mass wrestlers. That's right. They removed the mask, put towels over their faces. If Whoever lost would do that. Moscow put the towel of his face, hid his identity, then got his head shaved, then put his mask back on. That makes sense. Oh, that happened a lot. <laughs> but if you're uh, advertising a... it correctly, I don't think it's a ripoff. I mean, it's it's not a ripoff because that's the stipulation. Yeah. But it's just it's silly. Of course it <laughs> that's is. The that's the thing. I mean, they, they, this would be run a lot. This match, this, this stipulation would be run a lot, and mainly on independent and AAA shows. It's also the thing too, like where you had the the match where the 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 losing set the second would lose their hair or the the referee would lose their hair the rudo ref or the technical ref if the wrestler lost <laughs> i mean just silly tremendous just, you, you get a stipulation just so you can have somebody's head shaved but not be the guy that actually was involved in the match 
But oh, WCW's about to do that, as we'll talk later in the show, and uh, a main angle on their promotion, so what can you say? But yeah, yeah, they took the mask off, put the mask back on after they shaved their head. The main event saw Octagon Paraguayo Jr. and Evi Metal worked Rudo against Kickboxer Sangre Chicana and Pentagon. Finish saw Octagon remove his own mask, throw it to Pentagon. When referee Tropi Costas, the usual technical ref, saw Pentagon on the mask, he immediately DQ'd him. After the match, everyone reverted back to their usual form. <laughs> And Pacudo and Chicano destroyed Perito with chair and post shots. Full results from El Centro de Multiple Usos Chelicingo, La Parquito, Octagoncito, and Peso, the mini for dollar, mini abysmal negro, mini hysteria, and psychosis by disqualification. Oh, Duro and Directos here, team with Oscar Sevilla, to beat Gran Apache and Las Ratas. Alto Moreno, Linda Star, and Princess Shugi over Mrs. Janeth, Rosa Moreno, and Sushiamara. Ray Dragon, who, for those of you who don't didn't know who he was, that's Oz from the Black Family. He beat Moscardella Merced in the, in the hair match and then the main event, which we just talked about. That's an interesting concept that they would, they, don't, they haven't done that, this concept in a long time where they do the flip flop. But uh, it was an interesting concept. But I could see why it didn't become a thing that lasted because. Uh, there's fans who don't they don't want to cheer against their their beloved Technico, especially in AAA. It's, it, they do a lot of weird stuff in this. Area. Well, they're 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 throwing stuff against the wall because I mean it's they're in an interesting time period. As you just, I just read the results, they've lost so many people, yeah. and they're just trying to throw stuff against the wall, see what'll stick, you know. And, but they're still successful. I mean. That's one thing AAA always was. They still did good business because they went all over the country. Yes. And the and so the places they went to was you know wasn't always getting lucha on a on a regular basis. Not week, by, definitely not weekly. With the major stars coming in, so they, they would come in. They take they bring TV. So that was a draw. So yeah, they did fairly well no matter what was going on with their with their talent. But yeah, they're just I mean it's paying us. Trying to just do whatever, you know? It is to his credit that business didn't tank much worse than it did, than actually happened. Well, yeah, I mean, it's like I said, it's mainly because he still had his, like, core guys that the fans were into, like Parker Jr., Octagon, Cibernetico, you know, guys like that. Plus, you know, he had young, he had the high, had the high flyers, young talent. And he, he brought TV to places that didn't get TV all the time. Like Tulancingo. Tulancingo wasn't getting TV on a regular basis. So, I mean, that's a draw to run those part, the parts of the country and bring the, the TV cameras into town. But anyway, that's Triple R. CMLL. The CMLL television show Mexico is being cut from two hours to 90 minutes, which would then almost surely be the case for Galavision as well. Yep. Which led to three hours. Yeah, we're half, half CMLO, half Triple A. Yep. Which sometimes that would be a little different. Sometimes you get more of one than the other, but uh, but that's that's the reason why. All right, we're in a call sale on the 26th. We have El Cafre and La Piero of Ana de Plata and Sombra de Plata, La Diabolica and La Infernal of Lady Apache and Princesa Blanca, Chicago Express and a Tercera, naturally, Arias Veos and Virus. Over Atlantico, Kid Guzman, Tigre Blanco, and Oriental. Asturias Jr., Brasil de Oro, and Mascara Magica over Arcanja de la Muerte, Colopegarde Jr., and Violencia. 
Apollo Dante is supposed to get out in Viano Tercero over Brasa de Plata and Milo Chavez Jr. in Olimpico in the main event. That, of course, is the big show of the week on Friday on the 29th. The call said was as weak as it sounded. With Los Hermanos Dinamita beating Tenebas Jr. missing the Evelyn Shocker on top. However, Kraus continued strong as it's nearly a sellout again. The 26th uh, was the first of the past 17 shows in the building since so the 18th to draw less than 4,000 fans. So again, you know, I mean, they're at Coliseo, so they're not going, you know, full force with angles or nothing like that. They're just putting random ass shit going on, but they're still selling the building out, you know? Yep. And so whatever they were doing, it was working. Yes, and they're, they're also just putting on a pretty strong product at this time, too. You know, this, this I would say, what, like 98 to, what, 03 is when they really have some strong momentum even before the Mystica run? Off and on, yeah. Yeah. It's setting it up, you know, it's a different run, and then Mystica gets hot, and that starts a whole new run. Federal Stamal and Mystico, you know, to get intertwined together. So, yeah. but yeah, this is the early days of all that. Well, on that Friday night show, we have Fierito and Tritatito over Sequencito Ramirez and Ultimo Dragoncito, Olympus and Sky Day over Alan Stone and Motocross, Dr. Orborman Jr., future Dr. Equis, Io de Gladiador and Valentin Mayo over Solar, Starman and El Torero. Los Empanales, Rebe Cañero, Stanico, and Ultimo Guerrero, over Rosa de Plata, Mr. Aguila, and Terry Rivera. And then Cien Caras, Mascar, Universal Smith, over Miss Niebla, Shocker, and Tineblis Jr. Now, the Sunday show, on the 31st, had Astro Ray Jr., in the future of Verano, score his sixth consecutive clean win in trios matches over Arcangel. And so they had their Mexican National Welterweight title because of that a match on the 31st. Call said with Akanhev winning clean with a super power bomb off the top. That sounds Rest. fun to take in a lucha ring. Oh, yeah. And it was on a Sunday show, so there's no television in this area for this. We have Fletcher Pegaso over Sangre Azteca and Vacarito. Damiano Guerrero and Guerrero de Futuro over Alacana de Durango and Filoso. Fishman, Mano Negra, and Mugger. Over Angel Azteca, Brazo de Oro, and Mr. Oi! Why is he Mr. Oi, though, as opposed to Senor Oi or Mr. Today? Why is Mr. Niebla Mr. Niebla? Why is he not, why he senior he not Mr. Senor Niebla or Mr. Fogg? Fair enough. Brazo de Plata, Negro Casas, and Solomon Grande! Over Cien Caras, Moscanios, Universal Mio de Disqualification, and then Arcangel retaining his title over Astro Day Jr., and in Rio Puebla, only match result we got on this show on the first, Caballero Cocha Caballero, Tony Rivera over Negro Navarro, which could have been uh, a strong match. Yeah, well, it's that time of the year for Negro Navarro in this era. <laughs> yeah, you can say that. Certain guys had their times. And they need to stay ball. So that ended once he decided to just stay ball. Yes. But, you know, your, your Brazos, Negro Casas. Satanico. Yep. Negro Casas didn't do his hair way every year. He didn't do it every year, but he did a lot. But I would say the Brazos Satanico had the most impressive head of hair for someone who was losing his hair that often. And it would always grow back. Very quickly, yes. He was a very lucky man. All right, Tijuana. With the Red Mysterio Jr. mass loss in the United States upcoming, 
A Mascara Contra Mascara match between Ray and Psychosis was set up for Tijuana sometime this month. On January 29th, 4,300 fans in the finals of an eight-man tournament for the David Trophy. Hmm. Not named after you. Ray, who had beaten Damian and Venom Black in the, in the tournament, pinned Psychosis, who had beaten Viano 5 in Halloween. I wouldn't mind seeing that Ray Venom Black match. Yeah. Uh, a good match at a crowd site, actually slightly favoring Psychosis. The finish saw Ray attempt to, Ray Mysterio Sr. attempt to hit Ray Jr. with a chair, but instead hit Psychosis, leading to the pinfall. Ray Jr. did challenge Ray Sr. as Psychosis to a three-way match with a loser losing his hair or mask, but Ray Sr. declined and Psychosis accepted. Also on the show in the main event, Conan, Yoda Santo, and La Parca, the most popular wrestler on the show. Well, naturally. Beat Viado Testero, Black Magic, Norman Smiley, and Silver King of Straight Falls. Since the match didn't even start until midnight. And then Lisa Mark Sr. and Elantis beat Fuerza Guerrera and Humatu Guerrera by disqualification. That's a stacked show. A lot of big names. Yep. Main event at mid and going after midnight, Bix. That's uh, always uh, an interesting time for the wrestling fans. Yep. I always think back to the Ray uh, Loki Jersey All Pro show and how. Larry Legend uh, was on the mic being like, it's midnight, blah, blah, blah. And, I, and like in my head and talking to other fans around me, I was like, just, we know. Yeah. That's not good. You don't want to go that late. No, hell no. Then you no. don't. It, how insane is it, especially now that some people got the sense knocked into them by how some pandemic shows were handled? How is it seen is it to think about the fact that we're less than three years removed from a WrestleMania that went until till twelve thirty AM? Nah, no. Like think well, about fuck, we had, Well, think about this. We had WWN shows that went until at the midnight. Gay brand shows at the midnight. Absolutely. I remember watching them. <laughs> regular Evolve shows or Mania Weekend stuff? or Oh, no. That, I mean, regular Evolve shows sometimes will go that late. Yes, absolutely. Some of those shows. The... At, uh, what, was the, what was that place in Orlando? The uh, club? The Orpheum? Yes. Yeah. Oh, yeah. You know what's funny about that? The time management on their New York shows was always fantastic. <laughs> Well, they uh, they had earlier starts in New York. Well, yes, in New at Laboom was usually six o'clock. That's why. <laughs> well, because they because the because Laboom wanted their you know Saturday night uh, neighborhood you know dancing business. Exactly. Yes. But and, you uh, know, like the pressure can help because I never felt like those shows were shortchanged. No, but some of the, I mean, but like I said, some of those Florida shows, you know, that was. Uh, kind of self-indulgent in ways but yeah. still i mean good shows but just long <laughs> so yes also maybe ray is getting booed because you were inexplicably booking him to do some hellish stuff a few months ago there's that too <laughs> he didn't go full heel but they had the stuff like setting up the santo match by having him attack and unmask santo which not what you want to see from ray mr <laughs> And the, I gotta think some of the fans, at least those who are reading certain magazines, are probably seeing the Ray Sakosis match as kind of sketchy. What did happen? 
Well, no, no, no. They're seeing the buildup as being kind of sketchy. I know, but the match didn't happen. Well, the match happened, but not as a mask match because they yeah, didn't that, book yeah. it until after Super Brawl. Yeah, it wasn't a mask match. Sakosis lost his mask to Ray Senior in in August. And Ray never lost his mask at Tijuana. They never did that special deal where... Well, the, had, the plan was to do it, but for some they reason they it. couldn't get a date until after Super Bowl. So the commission, rightfully, I would think in this case, said that was kind of bullshit. They wouldn't let them do a hair match because they didn't think Ray's hair was long enough. And just oh, a mess. Oh, it was. <laughs> no, it wasn't, but it was just a mess. And at least... Sakosis and friends made sure to get the mask match booked before his WCW mask match for him. Yeah. Now, all of that said, you know, because we also, you know, had slash have some other, you know, luchador and masking discussion here. And I don't, sorry, we're rec- obviously we're recording this out of order. I'm trying to remember. Okay, so we have a technically, ha- you haven't heard us talk about this yet. So I'll mention here, since I forgot to mention the WCW section that you will hear later. Um, who of you was the right call, though? Well, yeah. Both in terms of how it affected his career and that Jericho was... Jericho taking the mask, I think, worked. Because he actually made it meaningful. He took it around as his trophy, etc. Hoobie was better without the mask. Yes. Just that simple. His charisma came through more... Like, as technically good as he was... He was not the mo- even you know body language wise. He was not the most expressive wrestler until he lost the mask. Yeah, so it was definitely the right call. I don't think anybody, I don't think anybody in in, in truthful can say it wasn't. And so. also, unless you unless you do him and Ray, there there wasn't really anyone in Mexico that would make sense that would you'd want to have them drop the mask to before doing the pay per view mask match. No, no. But anyway, all right, so let's go to Puerto Rico, WWC, where Carlos Colon and Abdul the Butcher teamed up again on January 30th in Guaynabo, beating Ray Gonzalez and Victor the Bodyguard by the Q in the main event. It is a spot where Ray would be powder in Abby's eyes. He thought it was Colon, but Butcher's manager, Vikingo, told him what happened. They made up again. Now that Butcher is a bay face, he dances in the ring with fans after the matches. That's wonderful. All right, our results here. Bouncer Bruno over Richie Santiago. Brett Sanders over Rico Suave. Junior Huetaro El Roquero over Chuck Singer. El Nene over Mighty Kodiak. Inverter 1 and Invader 3 over La Familia de Milenio. Shiki Star and Dutch Mantel. Carlos and Abby over uh, La Familia de Milenio members of Reagan's also fit to the bodyguard by his qualification. Ricky Santana over the Dahisha Warrior. And Glamour Shane over Pedoff. That's quite the show. Yes, and nice yeah, to have full results a, for once, too. <laughs> yeah, and Carlos and Abby, you know, we uh, talked about that with Barriqua in the past, a podcast about this, how this came to be, where Carlos showed up at Abby's rib joint, <laughs> and, uh, you know, they concocted their partnership there. So, uh, yeah, always fun to see lifelong rivals become tag partners, however yes. it may be. And also fun to see the PR Roth run here, too. He's there for a little bit in the 90s. Some of the Lucha guys were there for a while, off and on. So. And he was pretty successful and, and, there, right? Well, yeah, well, this leads to him bringing the whole Barrico gimmick to uh, uh, Mexico. So, Which, yeah. 
I think that greatly extended his career. Oh, it revitalized his career. God, yes, it did. Yeah. He needed it. He needed that. That gimme change. It had some it led to some great skits. <laughs> so at least we got some entertainment out of it. Let's move on to the indies now. And we got the IWF in New Jersey, Bix. That is who? Um well, let's read the results. Why, you know, maybe I'll tell the story. Story about okay. this. They ran Verona High School in Verona, New Jersey, on January 30th. As we have Ace Darling of a Mr. Puerto Rico in your opener. That's Mr. Puerto Rico, Ralph Soto, to you. Yes. Rick Ratchet uh, won the IWF Heavyweight Title from Lupus. CJ Summers. Well, Eris Cage match spells it Lupus. Lupus. CJ Summers over Zyg. No DQ. Kevin Knight over Mark Vero. Not Mark Vero. Flash Wheeler over Judas Young by disqualification. And then our main event, a Lumberjack match. The Iron Sheet beat Don Montoya in your main event. Which went four minutes, 12 seconds, as if you couldn't let it go eight seconds longer so Sheiky could enjoy his medicine. <laughs> I don't know who was in charge of this IWF, but there you go. If I was going to guess with someone on the show, I would guess Kevin Knight. Well, this is what Biggie Biggs were for a lot of times. Was this IWF? I think so. I don't know. Well, because what call it? Tommy Fierro's ISPW. Yeah. Um, we still got NWA New Jersey. We got Jersey All Pro. CZW has not started running shows yet, right? Mm, not yet. The Combat Zone Wrestling School, I think, exists, but not the promotion. No. Okay. Jersey All Pro is this. Let's go to the Charity Hall in Bale, New Jersey on January 29th. Kevin Knight over Dr. Hertz. Russ and Charlie Haas defeated Magic and Zombie. Biggie Biggs over Nick Burke. Jersey All Pro lightweight title. Chino Martinez retained over Reckless Youth. New Jersey State title. Flash Wheeler retained over O-Dog. Tag titles. Trent Aston and Billy Real won the titles from Kane D and Ho- any Wrestling Hall of Famer Homicide. And a day desire and Rick Silver beat the delinquents, Jay Lover and Glenn Strange. What is it with Rick Ex- Silver and Dave Desire not having their team name in cage match, though? They, they <laughs> better put some respect on the big unit's name. <laughs> this is a very, 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 very early Jersey All Pro show. Yes, and also, well, well, no, they started in when? Tw- I think 97, right? Yeah. But this is when they're really starting to get attention, or at least for reasons beyond Fat Frank uh, making disturbing prank calls to the Howard Stern show. <laughs> yeah. Um, also, I got the opposite impression kind of at first because I saw um, the newer team second. But boy, did the boogie, boogie Nights of Danny Drake and Mike Tobin clearly watch a lot of uh, matches from the big unit when they broke in. They were inspired. Yeah. So there you go. For me, Death Valley Driver video uh, review message board poster, Rick Silver. Mm-hmm. ECW. Terry Funk should be ready to come back in a few more weeks. Yes. Although he doesn't stick around long. Nope. Pretty quiet weekend with shows on January 28th in Revere, Massachusetts for a cell 1100. January 29th at Worcester for 1300. January 30th in Fall River before a cell 1200. Sid was really over and got the biggest reaction on the weekend. I'm shocked. I am shocked. Super crazy. Tajiri continues to be the best match every nearly every night. Shocking. I am shocked. It's yes. why they're here too. So yeah. 
All right, so let's look at these house shows. Revere Mass on January 28th. Chris Chatty and Nova beat Danny Doring and Roadkill. John Cronus over Indie Wrestling Hall of Famer Tracy Smothers. Near Jack over Rod Price. Skullbond Crush over Tommy Rogers. Two All Japan uh, Gaijin legends. Yes, Super Crazy beat Yoshir Tajiri. Spite Dudley over Devon Dudley. Taz over Bubba Ray Dudley to retain the semi title. Sabu over One Man Gang. Rob Van Dam beat Ulf Herman to retain the TV title. Tommy Dreamer beat Just Incredible. And Lance Storm beat, uh, just beat Just Incredible and Lance Storm in a three-way dance. Now Worcester. Well, wait a FBI, second. So far, how many people have we discussed that were either on the Indie Hall of Fame or the GCW show? <laughs> quite a few. Then we got the uh, Worcester show. FBI beat Chris Chaddy and Tommy Rogers. Roku and Danny Doran beat Nova and El Diablo. Okay. I think that's a that's a New England guy as a sub. Tajiri beat Super Crazy. New Jack over Rod Price. Cronus with a no contest of Skullbot Crush. Sabu over One Man Gang. Taz over Devon Dudley retain ECW title. Impact Players over Balls of Honey and Tommy Dreamer. And Van Dam over Spike Dudley retain the TV title. And then Fall River on the 30th. During a roadkill over Nova and El Diablo, FBI over Chris Chatting and Tommy Rogers, Super Crazy over Tajiri, Scobon Crush going to no contest for Rob Price, Van Dam over Balls Mahoney retaining the TV title, Sabu over Ulf Herman, Spike over Devon, Taz over Cronus, and Dream over Just Incredible in a ladder match. And for those who don't know the geography, basically Revere is suburban Boston, Worcester is Worcester, and Fall River is suburban Providence. Yes. So. Interesting time in ECW history here with these house shows. Uh, they didn't lost, I mean, lost to Sandman. Douglas is hurt. Yeah. I mean, they're trying to uh, push some new people. Yeah. It's also very clear from how these shows are booked and laid out that Paul's big concern at this point, well, creatively, you know, not counting the bounce checks and stuff, is... Uh, getting the in-ring quality up by just putting Tajiri and Crazy on the card and also bringing in more veterans so that the greener wrestlers get better. Yes. You know, because, you know, nothing against them, but for the most part, your Rod Price, One Man Gang, Ulf Herman, etc., you know, I would say Tommy Rogers is the only one that really is a good fit. Um they don't fit here outside of the context. And I would add Skullbound Crush, too. They don't feel feel like they fit in an ECW at all, just outside of the context of where they're helping bring along the younger guys. Yeah. All right. Um, Weekend TV saw Taz interview running that Rocket Hogan. He claimed Rock was a green guy who got a push because someone liked his look. He didn't ask if anyone thought Hogan could beat him. He probably couldn't. But what does that have to do with pro wrestling today? It was a promo on TV, Dave. (laughs) He just said he was real. He was a shooter and challenged everyone in the world. I'm a shooter, brother. They were playing clips of the Taz and Douglas match in Philadelphia. The crowd reaction to finish was a setup spot as Taz after the match started clapping. Suddenly for the crowd to turn Douglas and he facially reacted. Nothing wrong with it. It's just about everything in wrestling isn't spontaneous. After Taz's interview, the next 20 minutes of the show were filled with replays from last week and some really tacky TV commercials. Welcome to ECW Television Day. 
The only match that aired was Sabu and Van Damme over Axel and Balls, which was good, particularly considering how limited Axel is as far as taking bumps due to his health problems. Several psychotic dies by Sabu and Van Damme. Sabu woman and Ramian face busters to the back of the head. Think about that description. Sabu needs to change the name of that move. The rest of the show was a buildup for the return of Public Enemy. Joe Gardner was hilarious. Even Bubba Ray Dudley was real funny doing a Johnny Grunge imitation. The role of Joey Styles was so replayed throughout the skit. Well, Joey had become way overexposed. Mm-hmm. That's the thing. So, yeah, ECW, and, and this is the era where ECW is just, I mean, it is what it is. I mean, it's not what it was in 95 and 96. That's for damn sure, but it's, they're trying to find their way. So yeah, I think things start to click more around late spring into the summer. It gets better. It gets better. It gets better. I wouldn't say ECW is actively good again until summer 2000, though. Yeah. All right. IPW. They ran in uh, Freeland, Pennsylvania, at the YMCA. YMCA. January 3rd in front of 600 fans. We have Johnny Graham over Max Crimson with James E. Cornette in his corner. Rob Noxious or Harvey Whippleman defeated Tommy Idol. Christian York over Joey Matthews, Lou Marconi over Mike Quackenbush, IPW heavyweight title, Tom Brandy, that jobber, retained over Coco Beware with Hart Wolfman in his corner, and the public enemy defeated the Bounty Hunters, Frank Stiletto and Julio Sanchez in your main event. Tell me hey. that Freeland, Pennsylvania is closer to Maryland and Virginia than it is to Philly without telling me that Freeland, Pennsylvania is closer to Maryland and Virginia than it is to Philly. That can't be Cornette. Can it? He's the office rep. I guess. It, well, why is he representing a guy jobbing in the opening match? That's a weird one. He's got a double shot, brother. Maybe. I don't know. I mean, weird. maybe maybe they booked Harvey Wilkman through the office, too? <laughs> I, I don't know. Is, well, is Public Enemy signed yet? Uh, I mean, this is about to do the ECW match. I mean, they've already done ECW match by now, so. No, I but WWE, when's the WWF matches? Coming up. So, yeah, I don't know if they've actually signed sign yet or not. But I think Cornette took indie dates in general, too, so... Yeah. I mean, I remember, know. he's not exactly under a talent contract, or is he? At this no. Point? No. No. Not anymore. All right, NCW. They're in the Fairmount Arena in Red Lion, Pennsylvania, on January 30th. We have Ippolito Mercury over Hulk Heiser in A43. Wolfman over Johnny Dream. Tiny over Mr. Midnight. Missy Hyatt went to a no contest with Smokey Mayavia. Who has to be the same guy as the smoke. <laughs> I mean, we're in Pennsylvania and we've got a Smokey Mayavia. So, do the math. Then Doint the Clown went to no contest with Doint the Clown. What are the odds that either of them had ever appeared on World Wrestling Federation programming as Doint the Clown? <laughs> Uh, probably very, very small. The back crew, Dog and Rose, ding, ding, ding. Glasses, <laughs> defeated Dino Casanova and James Kaiser. Wait, no, Chris, you didn't do it right. Dino Casanova. Oh! oh. Jonathan Lovestruck, the bodacious pretty boy, and Flex Wheeler defeated Dirty D's Darren Wise. Thank you. Nick Tarantino. Oh, and Adam Flash. And then our main event... Broadway Danny Rose defeated King Kong Bundy by disqualification in less than five minutes. <laughs> Fantastic. <laughs> oh. 
What a show. Yes, this is this is a very very nineties <laughs> uh where is Red Lion? Probably central Pennsylvania, I would think. That sounds right. Centralish. But it, oh. it is very of that era and uh location. Uh York County, yeah. Alright. Omega. Well the rare times we talked about Omega on this show. It just hasn't come up. Well, but here we not are. Like they ran that many shows, so no. Yeah. But this is a famous one. Well, it's, the, it's the last proper Omega show, really. That's what I was going to get into. East Wake High School, Wendell, North Carolina. Omega Lightweight title, Joy Matthews beat Christian York to win the title. Will the Wisp over Will Powers. The future uh, William Wealth and Wildside. And, and uh, Jeff Hardy. Yes. Otto Schantz over Harold Bison. C.W. Anderson over Toad. Frog from WCW. <laughs> yes, Toad became Frog in WCW. Uh, Omega New Frontiers title match. They used the Donald Fagan song New Frontiers for the uh, entrance. They should have. As Champagne defeated Kid Dynamo to win the title. With Champagne being Marty Garner and Kid Dynamo, of course, being uh, Shannon Moore. Omega Heavyweight title. Venom retained over Sweet Dreams. Venom, of course, being Jason Arndt and Sweet Dreams, I think, was just Sweet Sweet Dreams, right? Caprice Coleman's brother. That's right. I always forget that part. From Exile on Bass Street fame. Yes. And Omega Tag Team titles. And uh, what a match this was, especially in that time period. Shane Helms and Mike Maverick defeated Matt and Jeff Hardy to win the titles. You mean the serial thrillers. Serial thrillers. Shane Helms and Mike Maverick. Yes, the serial thrillers. And uh, this is when those time and place things because this match was you know in, in death valley driver circles this match was like uh required viewing well if you tim noel and dave lane were there and they and tim taped it and aired on wrestling power yeah so it, it because of tim shooting it it was seen more widely than a lot of indie matches were in this era and also Wendell is uh, Mike Maverick's hometown. So, okay, I was trying to cue this up. You know, there's no commentary or anything, but I want to. I want people to at least hear what the crowd reaction is like at the finish here. As I unmute this. Jeffrey slides in for Yes. So basically what happened here is They've switched because the serial thrillers were the heels and the hardest were the faces. But here and there in Mike Maverick's hometown, the roles have reversed. Yes. This might so be the first time Matt and Jeff have ever been heels as a team. Yes, this is this is what makes this match even more special is because they did that. Yes. Matt just did the referee. Just got a chair. Matt's got chain. Oh, there they head. Matt. And here comes Jeff. They go up for their finish, which is Maverick sitting on the top turn while pulling Helms off the shoulders with close top with the splash of a throw kill or something like that. Is the name. Another ref comes in. 
go. And this segment is brought to you by BlueChew.com. <laughs> Not really. Oh. Um, but this is, for all intents and purposes, the last real Omega show. And yeah, what a way to go out. Yes. Yeah, because the Hardys are more or less full-time in WWF at this point. And, yeah. you know, they're the kind of the anchors of everything. And, uh, you know, they do the reunion show in December 2000. I think it's, what, two years after that, the Thomas Simpson starts running shows as Omega again? Mm-hmm. You know, with, with, the, with the Mac brothers and guys like that. But that also doesn't last particularly long. And so, but this, for Omega, as you've heard of it, this is the final show. Mm-hmm. And other right, really I, good stuff on this show too. You know the Champagne Shannon Moore match. Um, I feel like there's another one I'm forgetting here, but that one especially is quite good. But very fun promotion that also it's interesting too that it kind of goes away right as Wild Side starts. Yeah, which kind of takes its place as the you know Southern Fried Work Rate favorite of a small group of internet fans. Yeah. Alright, I'm in South. January 26th, Total Eclipse, Teen Club in Louisville. Turn around. Light Heavyweight title, BDL, Retain Over Territory Great. Cash Flow or Bill Lewis. Light Heavyweight title, The Suicide Kid beat Chip Fairway to win the title. Ox Harley over Too Tough Tony. Harry Palmer over Paul Payne. Roland Hart over Copa Robinson. And Man Man Pondo over Ian Rotten. Seeing BDL, who I don't think I've ever seen wrestle... Reminds me of, uh, did you see the WrestlingObserver.com live uh, coverage of the GCW show at all? No. Whoever did it referred to the ring announcer as MLJ. <laughs> that's, that's what he should be going by now, that's MLJ. <laughs> I've already seen people on Twitter jokingly calling him MLJ. Yeah. Um, But yeah, this is very of its time IWA card that, you know, you have other guys, you have Suicide Kid and Cashflow, you know, becoming bigger parts of the promotion, but you still have guys like Chip Fairway and Ox Harley and Harry Palmer, and but also see more of the long-term guys coming around, like like Corporal Robinson, Roland Hard. Tarek had been around for a while already, already, but still. But, yeah, pretty decent-looking show, and, you know, also topical because, you know, not going to belabor it because we've talked about it on this show a bit, but, you know, Prezak during his speech talked about how, you know, Ian Ron ain't perfect and he'll admit it, but in this era, I mean, outside of like a developmental promotion, no, no indie promoter is putting together a better, better learning environment for young wrestlers. Not even close. Oh, where's current wrestling on IBM itself? What you know? Wait. Say that last part again. What is current wrestling without IWM itself? Oh, okay. I, I missed a word in there. That's why I wasn't sure what you said. Um, yeah. Just think of all the people who came through there, and a lot of them would not have been able to work with anyone like a Tracy Smothers or a Bull Payne or Todd Morton or Mitch Ryder or Jerry Lynn or anyone like that in other places. Yeah. You know? All right. Even now, yeah. like, Ian will do lottery shows where no one knows who they're working with until right before they go out, just so they can try to better learn how to call a match on the fly. Yeah. Man, the worst day in the world. Yeah. And uh, now, speaking of Louisville, elsewhere in Louisville, we have the 
not quite developmentally at OVW. Ohio Valley Wrestling, Jeremy Trinity, Louisville Gardens, Johnny Spade and Rasputin of American Eagle and Chris Alexander, Nick Dinsmore over Juan Otado, Cousin Otter, Jebediah Blackhawk, and Trailer Park Trash over Guido Andretti, Vito Andretti, and Jason Lee by disqualification. Rob Conway over David C. Damage over Nick Dinsmore. And Rip Rogers over Rod Steele by disqualification in your main event. So there's your early Ohio Valley Wrestling show. Yes. D- How- Damage a very, very early on in Young here, though, right? I think he's a rookie here. Yeah. And Power... Power Pro Wrestling. Baldo. Matt Bloom catching the first Power Pro Wrestling title on January 29th in Memphis, being Jerry Lawler due to interference from Sean Stasiak. Well, they had a tournament. And here are our matches. This first is round where? Match. New Daisy Theater? Uh, yeah. Oh, uh, yeah. Uh, Aaron O'Grady over Vic Grimes. Baldo over Kid Wicked, Tony Williams. Streak, which was a spellbinder over Mick Tierney by disqualification. Coco Beware over Bulldog Reigns. Ricky Morton over Boy Tony Falk. Brad Christopher, Bill Dundee. Quarterfinals, Jerry Lawler over Sean Stasiak. Baldo over Aaron O'Grady. Of course, that's Crash Holly. Streak over Coco Beware. Brad Christopher, Ricky Morton. Semifinals, Jerry Lawler over Brian Christopher. Baldo over Streak. And then Baldo over Lawler to win the title. Now, the next day, TV was built around Jerry Lawler and Sean Stasiak. With Lawler putting Stacy up for two weeks. That feud is still going on this late? Lawler refused the challenge, but Stacy accepted. Bet you can see where this one's going, because she knew Lawler would win. Bruce Pritchard was from WF was at the studio and helped host a show with Dave Brown, which Dave guessed meant it was a day for all the talent to try and press. Aaron O'Grady beat Vic Grimes, but Grimes put him through a table after the match. But WF's pay-per-view on the 14th and the Pyramid in Memphis and Longs has sold out. WF will be in town, so talent be working on pay-per-view ho- the Power Pro House show on the th- 12th in Memphis. And TV the next morning, including Draws, Road Warrior Hawk, Giant Silva, Jim Cornette, Bruce Pritchard, and Michael Hayes. Which Dave notes Doc Hendricks is actually only 39 years old. Probably nobody believes it. And after watching some tapes in this past week, man, Dave realized that Michael Hayes was around today with his charisma and speaking ability. He'd be one of the six biggest stars in the business. He ain't lying. Baldo kept his title when beating Ricky Morton when Morton's wife Andrea threw in the towel. After two press slams into power bombs, Pritchard, who wound up arguing with Randy Hales throughout the show, ended up jumped by the syndicate, Mick Grimes, Baldo, and Sean Stasiak. And Pritchard vowed to bring WF Talent in two weeks to get revenge. In the main event, Stasiak beat Lawler when Baldo hit Lawler with a chain. Baldo bit, cut big gaps in Lawler's hair. Wonder if it'll be noticeable this week on Raw. While Stacy cried, and Stasiak carried Stacy off with him. So yeah, this is this is the lead up to those WF guys coming in and uh, being on all over nineteen ninety nine television. Yes, and this um, is the beginning of Team Pritchard or whatever it was called too. Yep, Team Pritchard. Yep, specifically. Yes, with um, mm-hmm. who do we have here? There, Giant Silva. Who else? Hawk. Yes. Oh, no face paint. Hawk. Yeah, no face paint. Hawk. Michael Hayes. All that crew, yeah. Yes, they're in transition at this point because they're kind of easing out of what they had been for the first eh, seven, eight months of Power Pro and shifting more priority towards being a developmental promotion. Yes. So more WWF guys coming in, you know, Angle's about to come in, Steve Bradley, etc. 
and uh, trying to think who else is there. Um, you know, right? PCO, Fatu, all those guys. Yeah. Yeah. So Michael Hayes, thirty nine. I know it's crazy to think about these guys, the time period, and how old they were. You know, I mean, the one I pointed to, and I'm about to look it up now to make sure. Arn Anderson was forty. I thought he was forty when he retired. He's for, he was September twentieth, nineteen fifty-eight. Wow. Oh, so we, he wasn't even he wasn't even thirty-nine when he retired. You got to remember he's younger than Luger. Luger was June the second, nineteen fifty-eight. <laughs> uh, he was always one age. I mean, Arn Arn has not aged since nineteen ninety-eight. Yeah. At worst. And, and another one, you, if, the, the, the other one that always I used to always trip people out about. Sting is nine days older than Michael Hayes. Think about that, folks. <laughs> All right. Uh, we, we close this section with the torch and Jesse the Body well, Ventura. Though, well, it's like the thing now, though. The Sting now is older than Gorilla Monsoon was when he died. Yeah, I know. I know. Jesse Ventura is upset that NBC is working on an unauthorized movie based on his life. NBC approached him about paying him what was described as a token fee to get his cooperation but he wanted the movie to air after his book came out. NBC wants to produce the movie as soon as possible. The movie will begin shooting this month and will include actors playing the role of Gorilla Monsoon, Hulk Hogan, Roddy Piper, and Superstar Billy Graham. Ventura will work for a fictional promoter loosely based on Mr. Man. Although the working plan is to not be truly biographical, i.e. he collapses in the ring during a match with Hulk Hogan in the movie, which didn't happen in real life. Oh, I said there's a lot of stuff that didn't happen in real life that's in this one. Oh my God. Horrible. Spaz. Spaz. What a shit fest movie this was. Oh. Uh, have you ever seen a more rushed, rushed piece of shit on network television? Oh, it looked horrible. It didn't even, it didn't even look like it should have been on network television. It was not a network NBC. TV quality production at all. No. And this is NBC at this time, which, you know, I mean, their the ratings were dominant. They were dominating the ratings. I mean, how do you, how do you put this shit out there? Oh, God! But they did. It was because it was so fucking rushed. It looked like something that would be in the like Sharknado universe. That type of production. And it's on NBC. The stuff they just retrofit to make it in to make it interesting. It's so it's stupid. Like the Bret Hart Montreal knockoff, and it's so stupid. The one thing I'll, I'll say though, I get why for like the generic wrestling like place setting scenes, I get why Canyon as the choreographer slash stunt coordinator or slash whatever you want to call him, I get why he was like, let's just do stuff that'll be visually interesting, even if it doesn't make sense for the time period. So you know, guys doing ladder matches and stuff. Like I, I get the point of that. Um, but this is just bad. It's, it's, it's embarrassing. And also, there's like, there are no actors of any renown in this thing. <laughs> like, it's just horrible. You couldn't even try to get someone maybe vaguely known to play Jesse? It's just, it's just a horrible production all the way around. It's also, don't, don't forget the Gorilla Monsoon that looks like Bill Robinette. I know, it's just, From it's just terrible. Wrestling. It's just terrible, terrible stuff. Yeah, yeah. It's, is it the worst wrestling movie ever made? 
as far yes. as scripted. Yes. 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 Because even the stuff that's not good, I don't think it's bad in quite this way. It, 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 it's just, it's terrible. Absolutely terrible. Yes. Now, if you've never seen it, though, you need to watch it, everyone that's listening. Oh, yeah. You have to see, you have to experience it like we did. Yes. So. Now, I forget. I know we talked about this when we covered that week. Were you watching Over the Edge or were you watching this or what? I watched that. Uh, yeah, I didn't watch Over the Edge. I didn't buy the pay-per-view. And that's right. Now, I remember you found out when the news uh, tease came on. Yeah, yeah. Which is how I did, too. The local news. Yeah, I didn't buy that, that pay-per-view. Yeah. That was one of the few that I didn't buy at the time because I was buying WS shows and uh, I was going somewhere else to watch the, the WCW shows. And I just didn't. The reason why I didn't buy that was I think I bought something else, maybe a boxing pay-per-view or something. So I didn't want to buy the pay-per-view. And mm-hmm. I wasn't that intrigued with the car. And then that happened. So I'm kind of glad I didn't, but there you go. Anyway, Jesse Ventura. Ugh. Well, let's close out with World Championship Wrestling. And Case is back with us here as let's go to the Pro Wrestling Torch. The political tension between Kevin Nash and Conan have subsided somewhat in recent weeks. Conan has expressed that he is happy with the way his character has developed in recent weeks and that he likes that his character isn't part of a group such as the Wolfpack. So he's able to prove himself without seeming to be a sidekick and riding someone else's popularity. Nash and Conan, who had been close allies last year, had a falling out in 1998, just as Nash gained new booking power. Nash had formed a new clique of sorts behind the scenes with Scott Steiner, Buff Bagwell, Lex Luger, and Scott Hall. Some of whom had butted heads with Conan behind the scenes in the past. Funny how these things happen in wrestling locker rooms where you have guys that, you know, they have friendships and then they get aligned with a different set of friends or some new people enters the equation and these rifts appear to happen. Funny how that happens, isn't it, Bix? I feel like you're trying to allude to something specific. No, I'm not. Okay. <laughs> I wish we had a better idea of what happened. I wish we had a better idea what happened here, though. It's just well, I think the last sentence tells the story that this is the that there are guys here that had issues with Conan, but now Nash is friends with them, so that mm. puts some heat with Nash and Conan. I so it basically, it, you know, in case you I mean you're 22, so you're 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 closer to high school than we are. I mean, this is high, <laughs> this is high school shit. You know, when oh, you, when, oh my God! Yes, you know, when you have your friends, and then you, your friends make new friends, or they 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 align themselves with friends that you may not be cool with, and it just it just causes heat between between people. There's not a main eventer in WCW around this time period who didn't exude some sort of high school energy. I mean, everybody is someone else's tag along, and in the end, no <laughs> one gets along. It's uh, it's an awful process. Oh God, yeah. I mean, WCW is worse than WF. At this point in time, by far, you know, their, their locker room uh, clicks and hijinks and whatever, you know, WWF had that. See, the funny thing is, it was the other way around with Hall and Nash and WWF. You know, when you had the click and you had, you know, Undertaker's crew and you had the other, you know, the other crew there, I can't remember who was all part of that crew. And you had these three different alliances in the locker room. And it's just insane, you know? And at this point in time, there really aren't any alliances in WF locker room. 
you know, not like this and or like it was. So it's just wild. Wild to see how it is. But but, you know, when you get when you get that situation where you got a bunch of dudes together, (laughs) you know, and and, and doing especially athletic dudes, this type of shit happens. A couple alpha males like Conan and Buff Bagwell. I mean, anything can happen in that (laughs) locker room. And the thing is, Conan, I see where Conan's coming from, that he was seen as a sidekick to Kevin Nash in the Wolfpack, which he was in a way. And now, you know, he wanted to be on his own. And then what does he do? He forms his own little clique, you know, the filthy animals, which he's a ringleader of. So, yes, I mean, those people were already his good friends, though. Yeah, but at least it becomes a he's a he's a leader of the group. He's on a walk behind it, if you will. He comes across like a star on uh, on these shows we watch this oh, week. Oh, God, yes. The crowd, yeah, I mean, the crowd loves the, the Wolfpack and NWO, but they still love Conan, too. Body bout and ride around it, you know, and they love that shit, you know. All right, let's go to Thunder. January 28th. Hugh Morris with uh, Jimmy Hart beats Psychosis at 10-15. Tony Schiavone height. That Morris is now a part of Jimmy Hart's first family. Yes, the f- name first family returns. And uh, for longtime fans of Memphis, like myself, I love to see that name came come back with Jimmy Hart in charge of it. It had been 14 fucking years, so why not? So, they, yeah, good stuff. The match continued to the next quarter hour. The announcers talked about different changes that have occurred since Ric Flair took over as president. Bobby Heenan said when Eric Bischoff was in charge, all his secretaries were like Lonnie Anderson from WKRP in Cincinnati fame. He said he knows Flair is serious about being president since all Flair's secretaries are dogs. <laughs> <laughs> Outdated but funny. In the end, Hugh Morris won no laughing matter. Next, Chris Jericho with Ralphus beat Silver King in 1057. Before the match, Jericho told the crowd, because I am your role model, that makes me better than you. Seven minutes in, Jericho had a nice-looking reverse suplex. Later, Silver King brought his lasso into the ring and attempted to choke Jericho with it. Jericho got out of it and used it on Silver King. Silver King came back, hoisted Jericho up in the edge position, but rather than slam him like Scott Hall does, he did an airplane spin and finally dropped him. Jericho recovered and came back with a lion tamer for the win. Is it July already? Alluding to Jericho's contract coming up in July. And we'll have more on Jericho as we go along on the show. Fit Family beat Super Claude, a tombstone pile driver in 846. During the match, Shivani hyped the Minneapolis Nitro and sent out a hello to Governor Jesse DeBody Ventura. Oh, they were good friends. The third straight long match win for WCW over the Luchadors. <laughs> yeah, the Lucha guys are not having a good night tonight. And they had quite the week during our week as well, as we'll get into the show goes on. Next, we have a WCW World Tag Team title tournament match from the Outsiders, Hall and Nash beat Bobby Duncan Jr. and Mike Enos in 2-11. The match was scheduled to be Bobby Duncan Jr. and Mike Enos against Raff and Van Hammer. The cameras cut to the bat where Hammer had been beaten up, and Disco Inferno was talking trash over him, but there was no sign of Raff. Raff and Van Hammer? Poor Raff. Which he never showed up. <laughs> the Outsiders came to the ring. The announcers hyped the Outsiders stood to Russell Conan and Ray Mysterio Jr. in the main event of the show. Scott Hall did some might work, told Duncan and Enos to take the night off or, or stay and face him. They chose the latter. Nash never took his shirt off. Hall tagged him. 
Tag the man, he side slammed Duncan. He lay face up on Duncan in a tenth of pin and gave the cross chop to Enos. Duncan kicked out, but Nash jackknife him, placed one foot on him, and the ref counted three. Duncan's in somebody's doghouse. Yeah, Case, you watch this. They totally just buried these guys here. Yeah, no, it's it's um it's like a mean spirited squash match. It's not even necessarily done in the the effort to get the outsiders over. It's really done to make those two uh, Enos and Duncan Jr. look bad. Yes, yeah, Duncan. Yeah, somebody got pissed for sure. I don't know who who it was, but Kevin okay, I mean, Nash the Booker, so maybe it's him. I don't know. I booked- w- long shot, just random stab in the dark. Is it possible that maybe with Paul White leaving that? Um, how do I put this? That Duncan's facial resemblance to him was an issue. I would have never thought that, but okay. I mean, I guess it's possible. <laughs> I never noticed that there was a that much of a facial. Uh, there is though. Know, Think about it. There. I never noticed that till you said that. So that's something new for me to look at. I guess. Yeah, that's a, that seems like a Vince McMahon issue more than a Kevin Nash issue. I don't know <laughs> yeah. if Nash is that insane, but I I like the theory at least. I think I've always thought Nash was more about somebody's hair. That would he, that's what he'd be worried about. Of course. That's, you know, he's got to have the luxurious hair, nobody else. All right, Disco Inferno will be head to Gaza in 842. Both men traded moves before a break. The WCW Motorsports uh, add air before they return to the match. Oh, I miss those. After the break, Disco at the chart buster for the win. Good match. But Disco's in the wool pack. He's getting the biggest push of his life basically now. So, uh, But he yeah, has a good match here. Give him that. So. Bam and Bigelow beat Cass Hayashi at 5.33. Late in the match, Bigelow picked up Hayashi in a vertical position and walked around the ring before suplexing him. Hayashi battled back and hit some offensive moves, but Bigelow came back with the greens from Asbury Park for the win. Small guys not having a chance on this week's show. And speaking of, Rebusdio Jr. Conan beat the Outsiders by DQ in 13.44. Conan did his shtick before the match, body by it, right around it. Nash grabbed the mic and said, let us both speak on this. As the Outsiders gave Conan the double crotch chop straight out of the DX uh, playbook. Later, Mike Tanay said that when Kevin Nash graduated from high school, he was the second most recruited basketball player behind only Magic Johnson. I think he meant the state of Michigan. But that is true. Kevin Nash was a highly recruited player coming out of a high school in Tennessee and Michigan went to the University of Tennessee. And you can see him play basketball in the University of Tennessee on YouTube. There is some game action of that. Anyway... In the ring, Conan and the ring took the advantage. Outsiders grew frustrated and sent Disco in the wrestle while they stood at ringside to show with the break. Afterwards, Hall and Nash were back in, dominating the match. Later, Conan took the lot Nash in a tequila sunrise, but Lex Luger ran in for the DQ. Wolfpack and Black, Inbelievable Black and White came in the ring. They all beat up on Conan and Ray. And let's go to this, because this features one, even though it's, you know, you know, making Ray look terrible, and I love Ray. But this feature is one of my favorite moments of WCW history. So let's go to the clip. Here comes K-Dog. Conan, fist to fire, ready to both men now. Well, Conan's got to take him out real quick because I don't think he's got much help from Mysterio left. So he's got to do it now. He goes to the midsection, drives his face first down. He may be trying to put the tequila sunrise on Kevin Nash. And then thinks he's got him Disco in to interfere. Disco. See, Mysterio is out. 
sir. Oh, but Bagwell. Norton. Norton, there's Vince. Stevie Ray. Oh. Miss Elizabeth has come out as well. And, and there is. The man, Hollywood Hogan, the man of the NWO, that is. Yeah. The world champion. Well, as he comes out last. Sure he does. Everybody else go out and do his dirty work. Then he walks in and takes all the credit. I've seen this happen for the past 20 some years from this creep. It just makes me sick. He's one human being I cannot stand. But please stop for a second and realize this. Without the horse, without Ric Flair in attendance, without the unity that was shown on Monday night, the NWO can do things like hey, and the referee is thrown out. You know he's gonna get fined, and you know he doesn't care. Look how they have Mysterio. They're gonna make a wish here. Well, they're stretching him, but look that Kevin Nash has got that belt. Think of this, Ric Flair. That's what they did to your son. Oh! It's Ray Jr. Unfortunately oh. suffering the much the same that David Flair suffered back and sold out on the 17th of this month. And Tony, that's not a belt you buy to hold your pants up. That's a weightlifting belt, a workout belt. That thing is thick that thing is? about two, three inches thick with leather. And they're holding Thank Conan. Thank you all very much for coming out tonight and watching the Wolfpack extravaganza. They're holding Conan and making Conan watch Ray Jr. much the same fashion as they did with Ric Flair and David Flair. Uh -oh. and, and Miss Elizabeth gives him the spray paint. Don't tell me they cut it. And the Wolfpack's going to... Look at that. They're going to stick Conan's yep. face right there and they leave their mark on... Yeah, that there was a weird edit there. What was that? Keep it going. Keep it going. Let's see. Let me see. Let me see. Ray Mysterio Jr. Again on Monday, it appeared as if WCW and Ric Flair was battling back, but it's all you turned around in favor of the Wolfpack here tonight. What is Flair going to do? How is he going to answer this this coming Monday? Ball, He's got to address this now. When the sun don't shine and beat you so hard with the other one, I'm going to make the other one come out of here. Hold where all the hot air comes from. When I beat your kid, that was nothing. Flair, when we're done with you, CW is going to line up because they're going to have to take their wicked. Hollywood Hogan with a message to the president. Yeah, they got it. To the manual face at Super oh, Terrible. What? All right, so what ha what happened was, as they're beginning to whip Ray, <laughs> Hogan, Hall, and Nash all break out in song singing... <laughs> feels like I've been tied to the whipping post by the Allman Brothers. Every time I hear that fucking song, I think of this segment well, and I laugh that, my ass off. <laughs> you, you should have realized that, because that's the type of thing they cut out of music concerns. <laughs> well, they, they, they're singing the lyrics. I mean, they're not doing, they're not playing the actual song. I know, but it's still potentially an issue. Oh, God. It's why, it's Chris, it's why until the happy birthday corn rolling a few years ago, when it turned out that it wasn't uh, as copyrighted as it was thought to be, until then, it's why TV shows for years only very rarely had happy birthday to you. And usually for He's a Jolly Good Fellow or for She's a Jolly Good Fellow, a uh, uh, lady, I guess. I don't know what the feminized version of that is. But yeah, like, that doesn't involve a recording but it's still an issue i hate it <laughs> i know i get what you're saying but i hate it i think i may have found the version online though i'm watching oh. it now 
<laughs> what is it sourced from? It's not sourced from the network. So it should be complete then? Well, I'm watching it now. Okay. And seeing, seeing it because it, look, it, it doesn't look... Oops, sorry. A, a funny edit. Should only be about 90 seconds to two minutes left. Okay, when... it was, it was, it was. Okay, oh well. What was? It, it was it was the network version, but it didn't have the network look to it. So what do you mean? It didn't look it didn't look as crystal clear as a network does. So oh okay, but it was ah, and and there's a there's another video too that's uh, that's out there, but it doesn't have uh, have the are ending. You, are you talking about? Was the one you pulled up YouTube or Daily Motion? YouTube. Because there's a Daily Motion. Let me open this up. Actually, no, I can turn I can turn the audio off on this so you don't hear this really. Um let me see if this is a if this is VHS sourced. Because uh okay, yes, it looks like it is. Let me see. Remembering I can unmute Oh Yeah, this appears to be VHS sourced. Right. Oh, that definitely, yeah, that definitely is not network. <laughs> right, because you can see it, because I still have the screen share room. Yeah, right. it's got, and the Superstation logo's up there, too, so that definitely tells you. Oh, so. yeah, I didn't even right. see that at first. Didn't even notice that. All right. All right, let's see. Make it a trick, Claire. That's what they did to your son. That's what that man Lord, did. Hollywood Hogan did. <laughs> <through a whipping pole. laughs> to the whipping pole. <laughs> That's where the edit comes back in after they sing. Oh, God. Oh. Well, yeah, every time I hear that song, I just laugh my ass off. Well, thank that you. That delivered. Un- that that was worth it. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Joining in. <laughs> yes. Th- thank you, unknown Daily Motion uploader from twelve years ago. Yes. Literally, it says unknown. And is there an account to click here? I don't know. A lot of accounts got gone for our show up as unknown now. So even Daily though, Motion, the videos are still there. Yeah, it's crazy how Daily Motion is. How anyway? Oh, uh, is it something that maybe I wouldn't be able to find? on their own search, but would on Google, maybe? Possibly. Uh, huh. Nash said that, uh, you know, if they, I mean, Nash, uh, um, Wade or J- Jason Powell said they wanted Rey Mysterio's mask so badly. Why didn't they just take it off of him here? He said this is a cure for insomnia. <laughs> <laughs> well, Thunder did a 4.2 rating on January 28th. Saturday night did a 2.5 rating on the 30th. Which reminds me, all right, I got to look and see, because we love WCW Saturday Night from this era, because it's just so wacky as far as cards and results. Yeah. So let's see what aired on WCW Saturday Night during our week. Let's get the rundown here as I find the results. Oh, here we are. These are our matches for WCW Saturday Night. Glacier over Barry Horowitz in your opener. Kendall Wyndham over Chad Fortune. Yes. Techno Team 2000. Hugh Morris over Emory Hale. Chris Adams. Gentleman Chris Adams over Lenny Lane. Mike Enos over Viano 5. Billy Kidman, Rey Mysterio Jr. Psychosis went to a triple countout in a three-way. Oh, God. I don't remember that. 
Chris Jericho beat the other Manny Fernandez. Perry Saturn over Bobby Blaze. Fifth Finley and David Taylor over Scott and Steve Armstrong. And then our Saturday Night Main Event, Norma Smiley over Chavo Guerrero Jr. There you go. Which that could have been out of order. Kim and Ray and Sakosa could have been the main event. But there you go. There's all your matches from uh, <laughs> January 30th, WCW Saturday night. Wow. Always what a that. lineup. I love those shows. All right. Um, WCW Booker Kevin Nash made it. This is still from a torch. Made a speech to the wrestlers before Nitro this week in Minneapolis to establish a stricter set of rules. He told the wrestlers they need to get to the arena when they're asked to, which is early afternoon on Mondays. Nash said they plan to do more pre-produced vignettes and interviews. A hotline number has been set up for the wrestlers to call to find out which events they're scheduled for. Nash also said there would be zero tolerance for wrestlers putting up a fuss about doing jobs. Boy, isn't that rich coming from him. Although morale is up because the organization level is higher than ever and because Eric Bischoff's been mending a number of fences with wrestlers he butted heads with or demeaned in the past. There was a snickering that Nash managed to keep a straight face, talking about being tardy and avoiding jobs, given his well-earned rep in those areas. Remember his heart attack that caused him to miss a match against the Giant in 1997 when he was scheduled to do the job? Only later, he admitted it was only heartburn. <laughs> that's rich. I mean, that's rich case. For Kevin Nash to get up there and scold the wrestlers about being on time and being upset about doing jobs. Oh my God, I love this passage so much because Kevin Nash is the greatest wrestler in theory of all time. <laughs> it's just an execution. We have, you know, 25, 30 years of work of work that isn't that good, but I I love the way his mind works. I wish in my day-to-day life I operated more like Kevin Nash. If I could get to that point, I think I'd be much happier. I think I'm gonna say this right now. I think not counting inside the ring. Kevin Nash may be the greatest professional wrestler ever lived. It's amazing. He, you know, everyone talks about how Jeff Jarrett, Jeff Jarrett's always winning. Nah, Kevin Nash is always winning. This man is smarter than everybody else in the room. And I don't even know if that's true, but he convinces me to think that he's smarter than everybody else in the room. He's on a, Jeff Jarrett's on that list, but Jeff, you know, Jeff can bring it in the ring too. But uh, it's saying, you know, Nash, you know, had his moments, but still, as far as everything else in the business, I mean, yeah, just a complete genius, Bix. And he he is he is a Mount Rushmore of uh, smart professional wrestlers. He is the greatest worker of all time. <laughs> okay, yeah, that's a that's a good way of putting it. Absolutely, absolutely. And who 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 would have known this when you uh, saw that first promo of him as a master blaster? Ah, yes. You know, 1990. So, uh, yes, a great, a great man, Kevin Nash. Yes. Also, I love how the implication is that WCW never had a hotline to tell you if you were on a book <laughs> on a show before. <laughs> that Kevin Nash just suggested it. Yes, yeah, it's, it's his idea. Yeah, yeah, he's a brilliant man. Yeah, it's his idea. Absolutely. Yeah. All right, Nitro. Go ahead. What were you going to say? I was actually going to try to give you a segue. I was going to say, well, at least business is still great. Uh, yes. As they were at the Target Center in Minneapolis on February 1st for Nitro, drawing a sellout of 17259 paying 389 41 It's a hell of a house. 
right, uh, so we're going to go combine Torch and uh, Observer here. Show up with Kurt Henning and Barry Wyndham get on their rental car. Henning asked Wyndham if he was with him because if they weren't together, they could tag titles and also get revenge on the Outsiders. So then we have uh, the open of the show, and then we have uh, the Nitro Girls, a video of them rehearsing. Well, something happens here that's noteworthy, so let's go to the clip. Oh, it's here. Ladies and gentlemen, WCW Monday Nitro is on the air, and we're going to show you a, a situation that occurred earlier today. Let's listen in. You and I as a tag team, there's no stopping us. We're in the tournament. Why not just take the belts and walk? It's a no-brainer. You and I, together as a team, there'll be no stopping us. Well, you're with me all the way. I know you are, right? We're yeah, in this together? Yeah. But you know what it really does? It brings us one step closer to Hall and Nash. Because of what they did to me last week at that airport, left me laying. We win the tag team belts on this tournament. We got Hall, we got Nash right where I want them. You do it. Money's ours. What about your car? I got a ballet around. Here's my whole car. Hey! So I guess we have a little bit more of an intro here and then skip to the other earlier today. Yeah, Tony, Tony, Larry, and Tanae are setting it up. Okay, here we go. Set the show. It is a very disgusting scene when the Nitro girls were rehearsing for tonight's event. And I think this videotape speaks for itself. I love... (laughs) <laughs> how they have to pretend to be rehearsing with labs on <laughs> something that obviously they would never do in real life but i guess someone wanted to mic the segment that way <laughs> and you can hear their mics jumping up and down while they're dancing let me see that everybody why would you use <laughs> why Mitchell, everybody <laughs> Why aren't you using a boom mic? <sighs> hey, you guys, that was good. All right. Awesome. Hey, Wes, what's the final camera shot? Big Papa's here. Right. I'm here, the man of your Scott, dreams. I told you to get your hands off. What do you mean? I am here Stop for you. He's just going to kill you. Man, I'll beat him like a dog so I can be with you. Huh? Get him off me. Get him off me. Whoa. Hey, what are you doing? What are you doing? Come on, we need some help. We need coach. Somebody go get you coach. Okay, you okay? She's out. She's out. Oh my gosh. All right, fans. As she got attention earlier today, let's take you in the ring to Gino. What? I'm sure Larry, I'm sure Larry wanted to console AC Jazz. Yeah, so we had Kimberly, AC Jazz, Fire, Shay. Was that it? That's it, yeah. All right, so let's talk about why this happened. Dave said the show from the angle where Kimberly was injured so she'd get her cosmetic surgery. Do you ever have the dream where you wake up in the middle of the night and all the women in the world have faces that look like these share-looking alien beings? <laughs> Not a pretty thought. At least she fell down and bumped her head and didn't do that very believably, as opposed to them doing an angle where Scott Steiner beat her up. They, I'll give them credit for that. They did an angle to do this where Scott Steiner didn't actually assault her. So there is that. But yes, this is Kimberly getting some cosmetic surgery done. Yes. And boy, if only 1999 Dave knew what was coming with uh, women and getting their Botox. <laughs> oh, my goodness. What were you going to say, Bix? What are your thoughts on this? What? So what work did she get? here 
I think she had some facial work done. I, I think she got. She. I think this is when she got bigger implants. Okay. Because she, I mean, yeah, she got. She got much bigger. I mean, for those of you that saw the forty-year-old uh, virgin, I mean, she was. She she definitely was well endowed when that when that movie came out when she showed him off. So that, e- enormous that was the gimmick, brother. <laughs> what was that case? Uh, enormous is the word that comes to mind. Yes, forty year old version appearance. Yeah, yes, yes. She what? She wasn't it, it, small to begin with. <laughs> no, no, no. <laughs> she, did, she didn't need any of the work, but I mean, she got it, and, and you you can tell she got it. And that's the thing about her is she was one of the ones that back in the day, you know, in the early days of the internet where, you know, her Playboy pictures were out there for people to look at. And that was like one of the big things on wrestling sites was Kimberly's Playboy pictures and Beulah's uh, Hustler video and all this other stuff. I mean, yeah, that it was interesting times among the wrestling fans in the late 90s when they come to that type of stuff. Yes, although that wasn't Beulah McGillicuddy. That was uh, Amanda Day in the video. Oh yes, you're right. She was using her stage name. <laughs> she should she should have just should have went as Teresa Pillman. That would have been a, a nice inside joke. All right, so um, next we get Conan and Ray coming out, and they're challenging uh, Nash and Luger to a match. Um, they want to have a hair versus mass match. And uh, Conan mentioned that Nash and Luger not to sit down in the bathroom to take aim. That's a nice line. Dave said uh, the way they set this up was totally retarded, which he'll get onto in the retort. They did the, fir- the first of a Z, NWO, the NWO guys trying to get over as being cool. Well, Steiner, Bagwell, Nash and Hall get to be cool. And the other guys, a lot of the poor kids in high school, try to be cool and aren't. <laughs> Yeah, this is the era where the NWO Wolfpack is, um, you know, it's all the, the top guys, and the black and white are fighting for Hulk Hogan's love, where you have different guys trying to be the leader, mainly Stevie Ray and Vincent. And Although just, we should know, as of Thunder, Vincent was not officially a member of the black and white. Well, let me mention that here. This is what we're talking about. All right, so they showed footage in the NWA Black and White at the airport. Uh, Vincent told them they had no rental cars reserved in their name. Steve Ray was upset and said that they should have whacked Vincent instead of Kurt Hanning. Stevie walked away, then returned and said Hogan got them hooked up with transportation. Black and White wouldn't let Vince ride with them. Vince then got on his cell phone and called Kevin Nash. Nash then drove up two seconds later in a limousine with the rest of the Wolfpack, and they welcomed Vincent to the vehicle, revealing that, yes... Vincent had been a Wolfpack spy, which is interesting because, yes, on Thunder, which aired before Nitro, Vincent was in the ring wearing a Wolfpack shirt. WCW, everybody. (laughs) I I will say as someone who is definitely familiar with the pay-per-views from this year, but hasn't necessarily gone through WCW week to week in 1999. The dynamic of the NWO on this show is so confusing. I mean, it really – I have a lot of thoughts on this Nitro because there's a lot that I liked and a, a lot that I didn't like. But trying to piece together who was who and who's with who and who's supposed to be cheered and who's supposed to be not was an exhausting process throughout this entire show as someone that, that wasn't intimately familiar with this time period of TV. Imagine us that lived it. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Fair Good point. Lord. Good Lord. So anyway, Ric Flair – is where Eric Bischoff next. 
And they're uh, at a, uh, a thing that you would see at your local fair, circus, or whatever. And it's time to em- embarrass Eric Bischoff. So let's go to the first of many clips here with regarding this. New assignment for Eric Bischoff. What do you want me to do? No, no, what I want you to do. I want you to follow orders. I want you to do what I tell you to do. 57 more days, pal. Yeah, you wait. Wait to the 58th day, Claire. And you too. What? What do you want me to do? Real close. What do you want me to do? I'll show you. Minneapolis, Minnesota, right? Yeah, I know. I've been here. What, 26? 27 degrees? What? He's coming up shovel snow? Minneapolis. The Target Center. I want you, my friend, for every employee that you've walked on, for every employee you've insulted, for everybody's feelings that you have negated or neglected, you, my friend, are going to be the town clown tonight. You're going to sit on that board. You're out of your mind. Out of mind. What are you doing? Take this it a or joke. Fight. Take it or go walk. Is this a joke? You oh, you'd like me to walk. You want a job? You'd you like me to walk with you. No, you'd no, love me like, to breach my contract. What I want you to do is get on that right there. I'm not doing that. Well, I didn't want to arrest the court hanging on that either, but I did. Get on the board. It's cold yeah. out here. Get on the I'm board. I'm going to get pneumonia. Girls, if you got the balls, get the employees lined up, Doug. Is that a get on the board. This is insane. No, no, it's reality. And as the president of the company, it's reality for you. Or go down there and drink a beer and be gone. Come on. You know what, Claire? Yeah, I'm yeah. going to do it. Do it. I'm going to do it. Well, you know who's going to get the last laugh tonight? Who? Yeah. You're girls, looking at him. Me. Now. And the whole wrestling world. Trust me. I'm going to get the last laugh yeah. tonight. You want me to do this? You won't be able to I'll run down it. to the ring frozen in an ice cube, pal. Get I'll on the board. It. You want me to do it? Yeah, I'll do, do it. it. I'll do it. Just remember. What I want you to I'll do. I'll be laughing last. What I want you to do is say, I quit and go drink hey, a beer. Before I get up there, where's your son David tonight? Just out of curiosity. My son David's home watching the show. He's going to watch you get wet. Get on the board. All right. You want it, you got it. He's going to watch him do PCP. Remember telling me to go do that radio show in South Dakota? Get on the board. Remember telling me, <laughs> California? Yeah. I'll do it. I'll do it. Here. Oh, we'll do something. No, 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 no. He asked you to hold this Yes, it's as cold as they're saying it is because you can see their breath as they're talking. Yes. So uh, Bishop had to sit there for the next three hours while WCW people who hate him, and that was a long line. Got to throw softballs, knock him in. Well, we'll talk. Uh, we'll, we'll, Dave talks about how luckily for Bishop, nobody who hates him, hates him has much of an arm, and these segments were dying of embarrassment as guys kept missing the target with pitch at the pitch on live TV. Tape this stuff with a margin of error ahead. Of time next time. Oh yeah, about twenty-five minutes in, we got a wrestling match. So yes, the first match doesn't start until eight twenty-five on Nitro on this week. 
And it was a good one. Where Kurt Henning and Barry won the beat Chris Wan Dimalenko on twelve eighty three when hitting Pim Benoit through the fisherman suplex. Dave knows that finish sounds retarded. That's number two for that. And by the end of the show, it was. Except Benoit Malenko are scheduled to win the tag tournament, be champions, and supposed to be hitting and win them in the final. So it does make sense. You know, the one thing about the Wyndham and Henning team at this time period was I remember, you know, watching them together and thinking, holy shit, would this would have been one of the, the greatest tag teams in the world 11 or 12 years earlier. Oh, my yes. God. <laughs> and they're still, I mean, they're not old. Barry had, you know, been rusty and stuff. And Kirk, you know, Kirk could still do some things, but man, I'm just imagining what they what they could have been. Jesus Christ. Well, even Benoit Malenko feel like they're in the wrong place at this time. I mean, that's a tag team that had they gone to New Japan or just had they been in even maybe even a different era of WCW teaming as much as they did in 99. I love their chemistry as a team. This match is a lot of fun. Like, this is a very fun TV match that I was hoping the rest of Nitro was going to have this feel, and it didn't necessarily live up to those expectations. But... Yeah, at this point, you know, I, I I like hitting in this era. Wyndham looks very old, but doesn't necessarily wrestle like an old man. And then the the horseman team is terrific. Yes. Yeah, I think a lot of Wyndham's thing was his aesthetic. He was in the jean vest and jeans. You yeah, know? It's, a, it's a bad look. Yeah. yeah also, for the record, he is 38 years old here. Wyndham is? Yes. yes. He is a oh decade younger than Christian Cage is now. Oh my God! He's I fifteen younger. He he's fifteen years younger than Dustin is now. Well, fucking Kurt's forty. I know, you but know? Even, I know, but the fact that Barry's even under forty. I know. Holy shit. Well, Barry, I wow. Live the hard life <laughs> in the nineties. Because he didn't. I mean, you look at Barry. Barry didn't age in the eighties a whole lot. No, but nineties came. He aged. All right. So next we get. Uh, J.J. Dillon's outside at the dump tank. Oh, this ought to be something. Because we all know about J.J. and Bischoff and other issues they had. So let's go to that clip. <laughs> Who wants to see Bischoff win? Yeah! 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 J.J. I was wondering what happened. Yes, so your uh, cheering section consisted of La Parca, Cyclope, um, Damien Seisseis, Silver King, and Felino. <laughs> yeah, Felino. Who I don't believe ever wrestles a match on a mainline WCW show. Just the Waco no. Yeah. Which we'll talk he's about here, later on. But he's yeah. here and in his gear as well. <laughs> yes. <laughs> okay. Well, Eric Bischoff did him wrong. He didn't. Uh, he didn't book him on any mainline shows. <laughs> That's why he's fast. I guess so. Okay, so wait, we're in many. Okay, so wait, which day is the fe is the festival de lucha taping? We'll the be talking 20, about later. The twenty seventh. 
and then they so, flew him from Waco or Mexico. Well, yeah, it had to be Waco to um, Minneapolis. Why not? Why not? So anyway, yes. So we got we got Bishop in the dunk tank. All right, so NWO all meets up at the arena. Black and White's complaining about they've been treated by the Wolfpack. Four women called out to them, asked him if they need any company. They must have heard about Vincent and what he's got going on. So next, Gene Oakland introduced Flair for a mid-ring interview. So Flair's talking about all the employees who were lined up to take shots at Bischoff. Said Hogan's plane broke down. He wouldn't be at the show. Flair listened to the names of the Wolfpack and some members of Black and White. He slipped and called Vince Virgil, which was not the only time that happened. I think somebody called him Virgil Thunder, too. And it may have been Flair. <laughs> because, um, yeah, I, I do remember that happening. So, uh, and Dave knows, so I hope McDevitt doesn't hear about that one. <laughs> also, Virgil, who I saw uh, involved in an angle slash match the other night, too. Absolutely. Yeah, Game Changer Wrestling's Virgil. Vincent. Yes, yes, where he was, uh, he was wearing the uh, Vince McMahon Halloween mask. <laughs> of course he was. Flair said his match with Hogan will be do or die. He talked about Bret Hart. He'll have to defend the U.S. title against Crispin Wall Super Brawl. Wolfpack came out. Scott Hall and Disco came in the ring. Hall asked Flair what Benoit had done to deserve his title shot, and then watched Flair's car. Flair told Hall he's one half of the fantasy known as Hall and Nash. Hall said Benoit would come to the ring. He proved to him he's no more contender, but figured Benoit was afraid. Benoit showed up. They exchanged a few words. They traded punches. Hall and Disco left the ring as Flair told Hall he would get his match with Benoit later in the show. So that is your main event. And uh, Dave notes, of course, the ratings will tell the story on that one. At 9 p.m., as Raw is kicking off, Nitro trots out Kenny Chaos against Van Hammer. You might as well just concede defeat. <laughs> Hammer won by Power Slam at 229. Why? Why? Who's formatting these shows? Why? Jesus. All right. Um, during the match, Tanae talked about Giant Baba dying, so there's that. So as ha after Hammer wins the match, Sandman shows up, never identified. They thinks they were told they couldn't call him Sandman. They couldn't call him Jim Fullington. They couldn't mention ECW or Raven videos. Couldn't explain what the hell Sandman was talking about 95% of the audience. They had no idea. So he came up with a cane wrapped in barbed wire, but without the cigarettes, and with a new physique. Some people in the crowd knew him, and most didn't. Luckily for him, he did a good interview talking about being extreme. At least for those who do know, Dave can't imagine what anyone else was thinking. Poor Mike Tanay. He had to come up with a line as they were pounding on each other that perhaps these two have crossed paths before. But Sam Man Bigelow. Poor Shivani having to call a match without mentioning the name of the participant. You know how lame it makes him look when he, he doesn't need help on that account? And Dave talks about somewhere here today mentioned that Baba died, which shows some class. They said, I got this revolutionary idea that'll change the game. Let an announcer talk to the audience like they, they were doing all the sports entertainment shows. The comment approach makes it difficult to get angles over in the first place. And who cares if they mention they're talking about ECW on television? It's there. If the guys can bring it up in their lazy, hazy, vague way on interviews and never connect the dots, why can't the announcers connect the dots and translate it into English for the audience at home? What's the crime in saying that? You know, it's against every bylaw in the industry today because they're dumb bylaws. Why not say he used to be the Sandman and we haven't come up with a name for him yet? This sounds stupid, but why can't WC make fun of itself? But Booker's been doing it for years. Anyway, they had a better match than they had any right having. With Sandman's offense consisted of almost only cane shots before Bigelow came back, hit him with a hard chair shot, threw him into barbed wire, 
They traded moves on the chair. Big old game of Green's Raspberry Park on 611. This is Sandman's debut, basically. And yeah. Th- well, his in ring debut, as opposed to his debut game. as Jim. As Jim, yes. And they haven't named him Hardcore Hack yet. But uh, I mean, this was a, you know, for what it was, it was a, you know, hell of a brawl. But it was weird. It is weird. Um, yes. Seeing Sandman here and doing and doing the Sandman gimmick, but not without the accoutrements, so to speak. But it's you, a shame they they beat ahead. him in his debut. Oh, sorry about that, Bex. But it's a shame they beat him in his debut because I find you know this era of WCW hardcore matches to largely be entirely unwatchable. But his debut promo, given the restrictions that are implemented on him of not having a name and having such a stripped down character, but then also the match with Bigelow. This is an entertaining 10 minutes of TV, but whatever he is, whatever dangerous person they set about to be is killed because he takes Bigelow's finish and loses in six minutes. It's a very WCW thing to do. <laughs> very it's, much it's, so. It's a very wrestling thing to do because we talked yeah. about Paul White doing the job in his first match, first TV match on, on WWF. I, I, but to today's point here, I understand why they they can't talk about his name. Because it's trademarks or whatever. Yeah. But at least being, you know, you don't have to say ECW per se, but at least allude that these guys had a past in another organization, you know, stuff like that. There's ways you can get around that and make it, you know, where the fans understand that there's something to this story. Also, would there really been been an issue calling him Sandman? Really? I think they're afraid of Marvel. Oh, okay. And they didn't want to call him Mr. Sandman, so. Oh, well, no. But that that, I mean, mean it's, sense, his, I mean, he, here's the thing. Hacks has been his nickname forever anyway. Why not just call him Hack here? Well, that's what they did. Oh, why didn't they just do it first? Or Yeah, yeah. You know? Why not just have Bigelow call him Hack in the promo in a way where you don't even have to commit to it and you can just say later it's his nickname? Exactly, yes. There's ways of doing it. Yes. Um, now, all of that said, I don't know if it's that he committed himself into get, to getting in such good shape and probably was also living cleaner or what, but in-ring-wise, this is by far the best run of Sandman's career. In-ring-wise, yes, because he actually had to wrestle. And, it, and, and that's the thing. I mean, he was— he was, he got himself in tremendous physical condition for for him. Yes, and I think also once he had chastity with him, you know, having the valet to play off of again. I thought with the physique change and stuff, and also just how good his matches were turning out. Yeah, he wasn't called Sandman, but I thought he came off like a refreshed Sandman. Absolutely, he needed it. He needed to be refreshed. Yes. Now, Case, have you ever seen Spring Stampede 99? Yes, I have. Great show. Yes, and one of the many highlights is the Bigelow uh, Hack Hardcore match, which is probably, I mean, certainly Hack's best WCW match, and it's probably one of Bigelow's better WCW matches, at least his singles. That's a good point. I, Off the top of my head, I can't name a better Bigelow WCW match. And Maybe singles, Goldberg. I was going to say singles wise, I would say Goldberg or the Scott Hall ladder match. 
Yeah. Okay. Yeah. But, but that I would still I, I, three. I, yeah. That, oh, absolutely. Yes. Absolutely. All right. So next we get some uh, employees trying to dump Bischoff. They don't succeed. Then we get a tape feature airing with Luger and Elizabeth talking about Goldberg. And uh, Wade Keller notes here that Lex and Liz seem to have chemistry here. Gee, I wonder why. I wonder why. All right, Bix. Scott Dickinson's next. You oh, we are playing story. this one? Okay. We are playing Scott Dickinson because tell, what the story here about Scott Dickinson. What what? What, tell the story about Scott Dickinson with, with uh, Bischoff. Or oh, what, what was the story? The real life thing or the storyline thing, or was it both? The storyline thing, yes. I don't remember what the storyline thing was, actually. Well, then when he fired? When there were firing involved? I, I lose track of all this with Bischoff and referee angles. Well, they, yeah, it's kind of similar to what they did with... Uh, with Bowie. Well, it, it was that he asked him to lose weight. That's one of the things. I don't know if that was the angle or the truth. No, that was the truth. It was the yeah. well, no, but they did an angle where he was attacked first anyway. Yeah, and he was asked to lose weight because the heel was Tank Abbott around yet. Was it him? Had, had oh, pulled not, his shirt uh, up and yeah. showed his belly. Not yet, because Tank Abbott's not here. That's what I was trying to remember. So, all so, oh, right, we're talking Abbott. about with WWF. Yeah. So. Yeah. Well, anyway, he's outside for his shot at the dunk tank. So let's go to uh, Scott Dickinson. Go on sale. Back at the dunk tank we go. Who's that? It's Scott Dickinson, isn't it? Scott Dickinson. Rapid fire. Who allowed him to go out here? He doesn't have a bad arm. Oh, he's going nuts here. And of course they missed it. <laughs> of course they missed it. The cameraman had gotten so used to the rapid fire back and forth misses. <laughs> and oh, Jesus. And by this point in time, Silver King's out there. Uh, some, <laughs> watch, uh, that, watch out that I'm gonna remember you. That step up will kick you in the jaw you. every time. I did nothing to you. Somebody and the camera goes out. The camera back there. Well, fans, once again, as we And then talking, something happened with the camera that here. Step up, we'll kick you right in the jaw every time. I get nothing to you. Mm-hmm. Somebody keeps pulling the plug on our camera back there. Well, fans, once again, as... Oh, they, okay, they were not supposed to cut back immediately, I think. No. So the cameraman was still doing some kind of testing and on some camera movements, and yeah. We were talking about Kimberly before we enjoyed... Okay, we heard enough about that earlier. Alright, so next we get Kidman stooging off the page about what Scott Steiner did and how his wife got hurt. Dave asks, how come these stars don't just don't arrive on time? Kevin Nash is trying to solve that problem, Dave. Let, just let him do his thing. Page bars into the end of their locker room. They didn't seem to care. Steiner wasn't there because he was in the bathroom <laughs> holding the outfit of a Nitro girl and Dave doesn't want to think about what he was doing. They told Virgil, I mean Vincent, I mean Vince, to tell DDP that Steiner will fight him at Super Bowl and slap around DDP. Vince told Disc, Vince then told, then told Disco that when he slaps him, everyone's going to jump DDP. DDP went in like Disco went in like an idiot, singing "Song Song Blue" by Neil Diamond, slapped him, got bang, you know, Diamond Cutter. It's not like Paige was having sex with him or anything. That would be on the other channel. <laughs> <laughs> Nash was telling Vince how smart he was. Pays and drove off. 
and Wade Wade asked the, the simple question, but but in 1999, we you know these things weren't as prevalent. He said, "Doesn't Paige have a cell phone?" Talk about the Kimberly thing. No one mm-hmm. not what happened. So. <laughs> Disco would love to sing his Neil Diamond. I know that. There's an infamous WCW live show where I used to have this downloaded on my old computer, very old computer, where the show started and it's just Disco singing Neil Diamond songs or or a compilation of Neil Diamond songs for like five minutes before uh, Bob Ryder and uh, Jeremy Borash start, start the show. Really weird. Um, Kidman beat Lash LaRue to keep the Cruiserweight title with the Shooting Star Press 756. Dave's got two schools of thought about this one. It was a really good match, but nobody knows Lash LaRue, who showed a ton of potential as a worker. Everyone has to start somewhere. But starting with an eight-minute match, even though it was good, in this competitive environment, is it going to help the ratings? If the idea is to screw the ratings for six months, we're going to develop new talent and the angles. And since wrestling is so hot, now this is the time to do it. That's good long-term thinking. I just don't know if the company's thinking long term. Yeah, he, he can go case. Lash LaRue just they just throw him, you know, uh, in here out of nowhere. And uh, you know, has a pretty good little match with Kidman here. Yeah, this is a nice TV match. It's one of those deals where yeah, I think this match would fit much better into the context of current wrestling TV. But Dave is right. They threw two guys who weren't over out there for eight minutes and it dies a death, no matter how good Kidman is. And, you know, LaRue does look like a youngster with a lot of potential, but it it doesn't matter. I mean, no one is interested in this in the arena. Yeah. And, but that's what I'm saying though. Well, we were saying early in WF fan, the fans at this point in time don't really give a shit about the wrestling. It's all about the angles. And all about the promos and the gimmicks and the characters and whatever. Yes, unfortunate life. Yeah. Um, now, were power plant guys still working indie shows like in the Carolinas and stuff in this era, or was that all done by this point? Like I, would, it was all done, I think. Mainly, or, yeah. For the Orndorff crew, right? Because I, I think previously yeah, because, when it was yeah. Pez and. Sarge and those guys, you know, Pez, Pez Watley especially would take guys up to the Carolinas, but LaRue's part of the Orndorff crew. The reason I ask is, so if we're going by WCW results, although there's one non-WCW result listed for him from 98, Lash LaRue is less than 10 matches into his career here. Yeah. Yeah, for that, that's that's impressive because he looks competent. I mean, he doesn't necessarily radiate the charisma that you would hope for that, you know, would work on a national TV level. But in ring wise, he's totally competent at this point. Oh, yeah. I mean, he, he came out of nowhere and he I mean, he looked like he had potential. Absolutely. It didn't happen that way for him, so to speak. But still, you know, he has good, good potential. But he impre- I mean, he impressed people. Fans hey, fine. to shine to him pretty well. Like he and did does end up getting a push. You it's, know, it's an accident. And, you know, which is like, it's Russo, but still, like. Corporal Cajun. I mean, that's a push well beyond his experience, and he did well with it. Yeah. So, you know, good for him. It's too bad that it, the timing just worked out so badly for him. Although, I believe he did go on to do fine. I don't remember exactly what field, but we're, as a working artist, I believe, though, right? Yeah, he's on Twitter now. Yeah, he's he's. he's... 
I see him. I see his name pop up every now and then. Yeah. But right. But like with he was like with Sam Shaw, where like his big thing away from wrestling of is is his artwork, right? Sam Shaw, of course, Dexter Loomis. Yes. yes. They should have. They, they should have just did like a uh, Bobby Boucher type of thing with Lash Larue <laughs> from the Water Boy. Use that Cajun, a Cajun, you know, yeah. le baton roulé, you know, something like that. <laughs> yes. Also, he's uh, he's still in the great tradition of some people several years earlier. Lash Larue was very willing to talk to fans online. Yeah. Posting on RSPW and stuff, and you know, yeah, we're free he was very to receptive. Him. Yeah, he was very receptive. You know, we're a few years past, like, the teenage Tony Khan talking to Brian and Melanie Pillman and Mark Marrow era. Yeah. All right. Uh, next week, we, Hulk Hogan appears on the show, and he's joined by an unidentified friend. So let's go to that. No, we have something before that. Oh, it, well, again, I'm looking at a— Heenan. Okay. Okay, yeah, Heenan's before that. You're right. Well, Bobby, well, let's go to Bobby Heenan, who made... All right, during the Kim and Lash LaRue match, people were wondering on the com- uh, commentary where Heenan is. He left. Well, he made his way outside. So let's let's go, go out back. Actual pratfall. It's not supposed to be Heen and doing it on purpose, right? No, that's not what I got. No, me neither. I, but I also Craig love. Leather sent me out here. <laughs> I also love how they got such a cheap dunk tank that does it that that takes like a second to trigger. Yeah, it's horrible. It's such a bad dunk tank. It's the WCW way, of yeah. course. We got we'll spend all this money on fucking you know vehicles to destroy and everything but let's get the cheapest dunk tank we can get for this thing we're going to use all night long well they had to fly a luchador from waco to minnesota <laughs> not use him that was the dunk tank budget i guess uh yes all right so now let's go to hulk hogan and an un- unidentified friend who will identify in just a few minutes yes hulk hogan wearing his oakley's his do-rag super cool hulk hogan. also this yeah. is this is in this is in the daytime but Whatever. What? Yeah. Whatever. He said this was going to be easy. I didn't realize. This is just too much. Easy is too easy. First time I ever heard Scott Hall. Too sweet. Now I know it's sweet. This- hey, it's Chucky Pancamo. <laughs> Chuck Zito, yes. Which, so at this point, actually, has he started on Oz? He has, right? Well, he, I mean, I, yeah, I think so. But, of course, he's famous from Stern and some of the other stuff he had done. Right. The, the main thing he's known for 
before Oz is getting into a confrontation in a bar with Jean-Claude Van Damme and knocking him out with one punch. Which is what Dave, Dave mentions that. Dave talks about him being a one-time hell, leader of the Hells Angels. It ain't one knocking, time. He's still the leader of the Hells Angels. <laughs> knocking out uh, Jean-Claude Van Damme at a New York strip club. Yes. And Dave... Say it again. Dave said, Dave said they were acting like they were really cool at the Charlotte to beat up David Flair. Well, let's see. Let's hear. Yo, yo. Oh my gosh. Look at this guy. He has no clue what's going on with no, this guy. That's true. You know what? For every action, there's a reaction. And I now I understand that whole thing because hardly, you know, have fun with this kid. May I say? Let's just say the more we you practice your Golden Gloves routine on him, the more it's going to hurt Rick Flair. I mean, every, oh. time, every time you whack this kid, it hurts his father. Oh, hey, hey, Mel. Yeah. Mel from yeah. Chicago with the camera. You it's a little jiggly, man. Jiggly, jiggly, Jew. Well, you know those guys from Chicago. Mm. You can't handle the camera. You <laughs> gotta stay back a little bit with the gas station. It's filling up, yeah, man. Yeah, it's filling up. I mean, how can you follow somebody this close and not know your phone? It's unbelievable. I should go give my hand with that pump. It's a little heavy. <laughs> Did you see him with his shirt off this guy? Yeah, I, I oh, know. I know. Yeah. I've heard that joke five times. Oh, man. Out. That's, hey, but the, the gasoline hose is bigger than his arm, that's for sure. <laughs> he can't tell the difference. Jiggly, 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 jiggly <laughs> A man named Mel who's a jiggly, jiggly, jiggly. <laughs> My goodness. Yes, which actually it, it reminds me of how, uh, I think as we're recording this, it was yesterday that the uh, episodes of 90210 where... Uh, uh, Jackie Taylor finds out that Mel Silver is cheating on her with a hygienist. Uh, aired on the 90210 Pluto TV channel. Wasn't oh, that nice? Uh, so Oakland interviews a low-key Booker T backstage. Talk about the knee injury he suffered in the hands of Bret Hart. He talked about facing Disco a Super Brawl. Bobby uh, claimed to Mike and Tony that he slipped on some ice, and that's what happened. Then we got Scott Steiner, Buff Bagwell, cutting a, a promo in the ring. He didn't make fun of Scott mispronouncing the word mesmerized. As Dave says, Steiner was in his own words, mesmerizing. <laughs> Which led to Scott Steiner beating Chris Jericho in 856 with the Steiner recliner. Jericho tried to leave, probably get a better spot on, in line for the dunk tank when Saturn came out wearing a new dress and makeup, threw him back in to get pinned. You ever wonder what happens to Steiner's urine specimens? They probably come back with, this is a member of the human species. <laughs> <laughs> they probably eat through the cup. <laughs> what an interesting match this is. Because, I mean, Chris Jericho is still, I mean, he's heel Chris Jericho. Scott Steiner is part of the heel Isabel Wolfpack or whatever. I mean, heel, I guess they're heels here. What an interesting match, but Chris Jericho is on punishment this time period, so I guess it's one of the things that happens to him when you're on punishment. Yeah, that, yeah. Comes, that comes through very clear in this, uh, in this match, that he is not well-liked by at least one person that can you know have some influence in this company. This is a, a far cry from what I thought was a fun match with Silver King on Thunder. This is a very bad night for Chris Jericho. He obviously did something. He obviously did something uh, in, in that time period to piss somebody off because that that thunder was uh, it was a taped thunder, if I'm not mistaken, too. Yes, so, it was. Yeah. So, yeah. So that had been taped a week earlier before that. So now we're looking at, you know, what, 10, 11 days here. So something happened. Don't know what. 
Scotch is running out. That's one thing. All right, so they aired a tape from the February 6th episode of Mad TV. Thank God Dave doesn't have to stay home Saturday night and watch it now. With Bret Hart hitting John Sasso. <laughs> Will Sasso with a chair and put him in a scorpion. That, that is interesting they did this. Because wouldn't you think that you would just tell your people to watch Mad TV, but then you show them everything here in this segment five days before it airs? <laughs> I wonder how Fox felt about that. Maybe it was a different Maybe. segment, the version with John Sasso. <laughs> Maybe. Yeah. Hey, you, Bix, you think Fox Man remembered this in the negotiations with uh, Fusiant in 2001 as uh, Bischoff was trying to get, get a contract? <laughs> you mean right after Lenita Erickson called to sabotage the meeting? <laughs> yeah, we remember you spoiling our Mad TV segment with John Sasso. Yes. <laughs> Also, there's no chapter mark for this, but um, even though it seems like something there might not be for anyway on the network, it's also probably not on the network anyway because they usually edit stuff like that out. Oh, yeah, yeah. All right, so next we get Luger, Nash, and Liz doing their interview to accept Conan Race Challenge. Okay, here it goes. This angle is totally ass backwards. Babyface should look courageous and perhaps in jeopardy, but with the guts to fight against the odds. Heels should be assholes. But not in WCW... And WCW, babyfaces are absolute pitiful numbskulls, and the heels are the coolest guys around. Great. They got an absolute miracle two weeks ago because Ray is so talented, he actually got a good match out of Luger. The odds of it happening again aren't that good. So little Ray puts up his mask in a match where Nash is on the other team. That's not courageous. That's totally stupid. Nobody thinks he has a prayer. And that stuff where Ray was talking about how Luger and Nash showed him so much love in WCW? I mean, there's behind the scenes and there's storyline. I always thought TV was storyline. The only interaction Ray and Nash have ever had was when Nash drew him into a trailer like a lawn dart, and when they had that ridiculous singles match a few years ago, which was the last time Ray looked like a complete idiot. Luger and Nash laughed about it, basically making it look like Conan and Ray were job guys. Then put Liz's hair up. After a split second of thinking, she laughed about it too. This ain't only makes sense if Ray pins one of the big guys. But since the plan is for him to lose, how can you have sympathy for a guy that's stupid? How can you dislike the other team that lasts about the match and then wins in the end anyway? Yeah, this was totally, totally insane case. At the time, we were thinking, what the fuck's going on here? So I can imagine what someone like you, who, you know, wasn't even around back then, is watching it 20-something years later, is thinking about how, this lunacy. Well, yeah, I, I, I'm not going to break any ground by saying that Ray shouldn't have lost his mask, but it's... It's such a bad look knowing where this goes and knowing that he loses that hair versus mask match because I don't even hate the angle of Liz putting her hair on the line. It's something different. You know, it's not it's not the perfect situation, but it, it's an interesting twist to the angle. But then for Ray and Conan to still lose that match, it makes them look like the biggest dorks of all time. And we're coming off of that thunder we just talked about where, like I said, you know, that's that's a thunder in, you know, my home territory in Indiana and you you wouldn't maybe think of Indiana as a hotbed of Conan and Rey Mysterio Jr. fans, but they're losing their mind in the main event for them. And I I mean, by February or March of 99, they had to have been totally killed off because that, that match of the pay-per-view made them look like idiots. Absolutely. But that's the that's the Kevin Nash way. I mean, we, we anything Kevin Nash is part of, we have to be the coolest guys around. You know, it's just the way it is. We have to it, be. It plagues the show. Again, the, the yeah. presence of the NWO just in this singular episode in a vacuum 
is incredibly off-putting. And and I love the NWO. I did back then, still do now. But I mean, I, I, I but I will fully admit how it killed the business. It killed their business by doing what they were doing. If they would have just been more hardcore heels and stuff like that at this point in time, and, and actually did this the right way, who knows what happens to WCW? You know, but Jesus, it, we saw how it turned out. Unfortunately. Yeah. Bigs, what were your thoughts on how this played out? Just the NWO reunification in general, or? No, this whole angle here. The angle. The Luger, Liz, Nash, just let sh- laughing off poor Ray and Conan. I, I mean, I, ha- I, I mean, now that you put it that way, yeah. It, it just never felt like the heels were taking the match seriously. And, and the thing is, is that, again, this is the new i mean we're in the new age of the internet where the fans are getting more you know knowledge everything it was a known thing at the time that ray was losing his mask pretty much everybody knew it that was online because the whole story was bischoff thought he was so handsome that he needed to have the mask off yes so yeah it's just one you kind of don't want to go into a wrestling match with the outcome so predetermined. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. Even though even though I will say this, you know, in Mexico, which I, you know, covered Lucha for many, many years, I mean, there was always these mass matches where you knew so-and-so was not going to lose. Santo, for God's sake. You know, if he's in a mass match, the other guy's fucking losing. But still, they would yes, do this. But, but those don't feel like contrivances for the one person to lose their mask, usually. <sighs> yeah, but you know they're going to lose. Sure. And those matches were typically good, which would also Well, help. yeah, exactly. You know you're going to probably get a hell of a match. That's the thing. You know the result, but you know you're going to get a hell of a match. So you're absolutely right, Case. Absolutely right. All right. Next, Ernest Miller challenged anyone to come out. Scott Norton was asleep or something, so the NWA told him Miller called him out. <laughs> he didn't say him by name, so they just were fucking with the cat. Norton at the ring looked mad. Well, he always does. When Miller saw Norton, he wanted to back out, but they had the match, and Norton basically made Miller look bad by not selling his stuff. Ashley was stiff as hell to the point that Miller's skin was getting peeled off his chest, and it was better than any had right had better than any had better than it had any right being before Norton power bombed him in six ten. Yeah, Ernest Miller pissed somebody off. <laughs> Jesus. Maybe Garrett yeah, didn't get a belt promotion that Eric was expecting. I guess, uh, go ahead, Case. <laughs> no, just, I like Bix's comment more. Um, but yeah, just a, a very bad night for Ernest the Cat as well. And the thing is, he's tight with Bischoff. That's the thing. Crazy. All right, next, Oakland interview, Goldberg. He challenged Big Little Super Brawl, said he was next. Uh, Way know that during the two-minute segment, Oakland did as much talking as Goldberg, who said about three complete sentences. Goldberg showed good intensity. That's the trait that, that's the centerpiece of his gimmick. Well, yes. Yes, and we've talked about this before, but starting the Bigelow angle when they did, I'm guessing they expected it just to be a side drain TV program since Nash was supposed to be a babyface feud going into Starcade, and I sort of get that, but it seems like that feud had so much momentum from that angle where Bigelow debuted and they pretty much just have to forget about it. They put it on ice. And then by the time they get back to it, so much has done damn changed. Mm-hmm. I know. 
It's ridiculous. That, you know, aside from, you know, the way the DDP match is set up and all that, that initial angle with Bigelow is easily the best booked moment of Goldberg's title reign. At that point, yes, absolutely. Absolutely. All right. Ric Flair finally makes his way back out to the dunk tank. So let's go to the clip. The shooter's up there. Well, Shelly Simon ain't no Sandy Koufax. <laughs> yeah, he's not one of the great Jewish baseball players of all time, is he? <laughs> no, those would be Sandy Koufax and uh, Randy Matraman Savage. <laughs> or, uh, you know, I wouldn't expect you to... Well, he's not a pitcher. All... Wait, did you say... Well, no, you said baseball players. You didn't just say Savage. I mean, yeah, they, just say Jew, I mean, Jewish outfielders had great arms like uh, Hank Greenberg and Sean Green. So, yeah. Wait, was it S-H-E-N or S-H-A-W-N? S-H-W-N. OK, I, I would think so. Although. Yes. Yes. I mean, the, the, the Irish will be S-E-A-N mainly. Yes. No, because there were there were Irish Jewish people until and, they and, all got and of course murdered. The, and, and 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 of course the the black porn star Shawn Michaels, which who spells his name S E A N. So yeah. Yes. All right. So um, now we get the main events: Colin and Chris Benoit. Hall wins eleven oh eight, of course, with the outsider edge when Benoit was distracted by Nash. Good match, but imagine how stupid Flair and a Horseman look when Benoit loses twice on the same show. Red Hard Dick Color and didn't have much to say. Yeah, Benoit loses twice on the same fucking show, and yes. Rick Flair's the, and Rick Flair's the president. Yeah. Oh, and don't forget, though, too, I forgot to mention this earlier, in spite of what Dave says about the plans for the tag title tournament, um, it gets booked It gets books to be double elimination. Benoit Malenko do get eliminated and then re-enter through the double elimination bracket, but they make a rule so that the winner of the double elimination bracket has to beat or it's something like they have to beat um yeah yeah i think they have to beat the other team twice in the finals but the other team only has to beat them once and then uh i think they beat Hennigan Windham in the first match which is fairly long and then Hennigan Windham beat them in 2 minutes to win the titles yeah now case one thing that Dave doesn't mention that Wade does is during this match Mongo shows up and uh, drag Disco to the back where Arn Anderson was waiting with a tire iron. It's a good thing he wouldn't didn't have his Glock on him. I was just about to say it's a shame Arn wasn't strapped. Oh man, <laughs> yeah, that's. Uh, I, I I mean, I'll I'll reiterate the same point I made about Ray Jr. earlier with Benoit. They've got a situation here where they can make him look really good, and they make him look like a dork by losing twice in one night because he takes the fall in the opening tag match too. Um, 
but this would have been better had Arn Anderson been carrying a, a gun with him. God. <laughs> All right, so the close we, we're we're gonna play the close of the show. So Ric Flair, uh, after the the main event, he finally is watching a monitor where Hogan and Chuck Zito are stalking David Flair. So let's go to the our Nitro closed. Oh, so we are playing this. Okay. Yeah, we're gonna play it. And the network does notate as Chuck Zito too. How about that? Well, that's nice. Oh, and he's wearing an Oz shirt. Pro- property of Oswald Penitentiary. How about that? Product placement. Yep. Imagine when he finally shows up here. He's <laughs> you and me when we get our hands on him. Hey, Mel, keep the camera on Hollywood more than Zito, man. <laughs> man come on. <laughs> yo, yo, yo. Come on, Hollywood. <laughs> hey, yo, yo. Who's it sound like? Yo, Thunder Lips. Do you get that Polaroid now or what? Oh, oh, sure, Rock. Sure, Rock. Yo, yo, <laughs> He's yo. gonna be screaming like Bumble when we get our hands on him. Uh, he's gonna be screaming oh, worse. Hey, Mel. He's gonna be squir- screaming like uh, Adrian. Mel, because you've been so good with the camera today, you're gonna have just as much fun as we're gonna have. Easy, he told us, man. Let's rock when we got here That's to Charlotte. Oh, man. Hey, Rick's and Rick Flair's in Minneapolis tonight, trying to run the WCW, and we're coming here to ruin this kid's life, <laughs> his life too. Hey. Comet, 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 down. He's coming at high noon. I don't know what, what's what's with this kid, man. He's always embarrassing his father. Keeps taking his shirt off in public. It's unbelievable, <laughs> man. When he got in the ring the other night, he stood in the corner. He was so skinny. He looked like a tag rope that you'd hang on to when you're hang, waiting for the tag. Thought he was the, he was the uh, ring post. You know what? My Very funny. My joke was funnier than yours. Hey. <laughs> My timing's off. It's one minute. Oh. Look, look, his father's parking spot. Check him? it out. That's him. Look at this. I told you, man. Fancy old car. The only time he works out is when his dad's out of town. He's so embarrassed to work out. But now, easy, said brother. We get to have some oh, fun yes. with this guy, man. Look, this guy got a couple of strings hanging. Oh, no, no, that's, that's his arms, man. <laughs> oh, no, you didn't say that, did you? <laughs> Boy, oh boy, Nash is going to love this, man. He's going to have a good time yeah, watching this. he got like a little school pack on. Let's go, let's go. Let's follow him in. Be quiet, though, man, because yeah, it's dope, man. It's all those people upstairs when he starts screaming for his life. <laughs> hey, Mel, make sure when we get down in this thing, you keep that camera real tight. You know what? But since uh, Easy E's not here, man, I know Kevin Nash is in the Hollywood type spirit. Yeah, what is this? So I say, bro, you and I, we're gonna take your feet. All right, look at this. What is this? What? I mean, let's really have some fun. It's really rock and roll, right? You got it, man. Yeah, but you know what? Maybe we should shoot this, man. We don't want this on camera. So, hey, Mel, you know what? Shut that thing off, man. And Wait. There's a cliffhanger. So, is Flair supposed to think it's a live feed? <laughs> yes. Even though it's. 11 p.m. Oh, excuse me. It's even though it's 10 p.m. in Minneapolis, and the video allegedly in Charlotte is in broad daylight. Yes. WCW, everybody. <laughs> and, and and since it happened in the daylight, when you think that if something happened to David Flair, that by the time the night the live night show was on the air, that Rick would have known about it. <laughs> WCW, everybody. WCW, everybody, indeed. Holy shit. In the words of Conrad Thompson, it was fucking daytime, Eric. (laughs) (laughs) When you when you watch wrestling television in this era case, again, like I said, you weren't even alive for this during the real time. 
what is your what, what, what do you think about this with your uh, young eyes watching this type of stuff? Well, if you compare Raw and Nitro, I find Nitro, even at its worst, I mean, really up through probably the first half of 99. And then obviously by the time Russo comes out, it's, you know, horrid. But Nitro is the better show. I'm far more attracted to the in-ring aspect of Nitro uh, because there were two matches on the show with the opening match and then Kidman and LaRue that I, I, I thought were all right. Raw was irredeemable, irredeemable for two hours. The issue with Nitro is that this is a three-hour show at this point, and they, it is paced so horribly. I mean, this feels so long, and there's so much backstage stuff, and there's so much talking, and it it doesn't strike me as anything that I can get too excited about. It, all of this feels very dated, but unfortunately, outside of a few aspects of AEW currently, I don't think wrestling has evolved from this format ever since the debut of Nitro. That seems to be the the kind of comfortable place that wrestling television is locked into, and I don't know what that next thing is. I don't even necessarily know what changes I'm looking for, but this feels stale, but unfortunately in our contemporary setting, I don't think things have gotten all that better. Yeah, basically. But there you go. Alright, so... Here's the you, you you may be curious why isn't Hulk Hogan in Minneapolis? The reason Hulk Hogan never went to Minneapolis because WCA believed that Jason Ventura would show up at the card, or even if he didn't, that if Hogan came up before the live crowd, they would chant for Ventura. Speaking of Ventura, he told the National Governors Council he'd be able to tourists from Japan to come to Minnesota because it's the state that elected him governor. Big, do so you think that was a WCW thing, or do you think that's a Hogan thing? He's not getting one over on me, brother. <laughs> I I think it's a Hogan thing. I don't think it's a WCW thing. Absolutely. Good lord. All right, the torch has some uh, news here regarding Nitro. Scott Steiner was hit with a beer during a commercial break at Nitro, and it took several security guards to restrain him when he climbed the railing to find out who hit him. But Bagwell tried to take attention away from this, away take attention away from the situation by doing mic work in the ring. Earlier in the day, Scott got into a confrontation with a tanning booth employee at the Target Center Health Club when he didn't want to pay to tan, but then complained when the tanning bed wouldn't turn on. I'm not going to pay. <laughs> this is bullshit. This one's broken. <laughs> oh, my God. I mean, think about the balls you got to have to throw a beer at Scott Steiner at this time period, who looked like Dave said was inhuman. I mean, he yeah, looks he, in, he, he looks inhuman enough that he might not have any balls left. Hmm. No, I'm talking about the guy with throwing the cane. Oh, well, yeah, sorry. Um, yeah. And Scott's trying to kill this man. Oof. Yeah. yeah that's, Bagwell that's a very a strange thing. Not going to, not going to help matters either. Bagwell <laughs> cannot cannot save that crowd. That, that we're very lucky. That, this paragraph I love because it's a perfect summarization of who Scott Steiner is. He runs after a fan and he gets mad <laughs> at a tanning booth. It's a really nice uh, essay of who he is. I mean, it reminds me of the Petey Williams story about going to Cracker Barrel with him and how Scott will demand replacement chicken fingers if they're not big enough. Well, he's a restaurateur, Bix. He expects, you know, things to be done right. He expects proper portion control. Because Shoney's, you know, at the buffet, you have the proper portion control. So, mm -hmm. there you go. 
right. After the show, Kidman and Ernest Miller got into a brief bar fight at the hotel after the event. Kidman walked by Miller. Miller grabbed him to horse around. A surprise, Kidman didn't appreciate it and let him know by shoving him away. Miller shoved him back. Miller threw a punch that connected with Kidman's face. Kidman threw a punch back that connected with Miller's chest. Saturn and Norman Smiley stepped in to separate the two. As Miller began walking out of the bar, Kidman said, if that's the best you've got, you're not the greatest in the world. Uh-oh. Miller began walking back and said, what did you just say? Wrestlers stepped between them again. Hotel security arrived. It's, and it, it's entirely, in its entirety, the episode lasted 30 seconds. Kidman remained around the bar, and Miller disappeared for the rest of the night. Miller has a locker room rep of being on the protected list of Bischoff's. Gee, you couldn't tell by Nitro. Miller was the karate instructor of Bischoff's son, Garrett. It was th- through that connection that Miller was trained to be a wrestler. Kevin is popular among the wrestlers, whereas Miller is seen as getting more TV time than he deserves because he is Bischoff's friend. Miller approached Kevin the next day and offered to shake his hands, shake hands and make peace. Uh, it's probably worth pointing out that even in Point Karate, I don't believe anyone ever found any record of Ernest Miller's World Karate Championship. <laughs> No, but still, I mean... No, but I mean, like, as far as the... I mean, I, I mean that he'd take the comments so personally. Yeah, but still, if I'm Billy Kim, I'm not fucking around with Ernest Miller. No. <laughs> but he, but he, he didn't start it, so... He stood his ground, though. So props to him. Yes, he did. But yeah, the thing about the guys that stepped in to stop it, Perry Saturn and Norman Smiley, talk about tough guys involved there, too. Yes. Also, I realized we forgot a name or two that was in Minneapolis by the dunk tank. Uh, who was that? The people you're, some of the people you're about to read about. Superboy, Blitzkrieg, Felino, and Muscadella Merced all got tryouts in Minneapolis. Blitzkrieg, as the least experienced of the group, may be getting a deal. So there you go. That explains why Felino was there, Fix. Yes. And Blitzkrieg does get a deal. Yes, he does. Um... And the others were on the Waco taping we'll be talking about in a couple moments, but... Yes. ...do not get signed. No. Rob Kellum, who has wrestled as Robbie Eagle and Gordon George III, got a tryout at Nitro beating Chris Adams. Talk about your different style of dart matches. <laughs> the Lucha guys and then the Maestro and Chris Adams. Eddie Guerrero must be in rough shape as he was supposed to help backstage at the proposed WCW Latino taping on January 27 Waco, but his doctor wouldn't allow him to fly. Well, that ain't good. No, it's not. We don't have a lot of notes on the Waco taping. I mean, it was considered a fiasco in taping, but may wind up being a good television show when it airs on February 24. <laughs> the company invested big money just on the set and the open. The show began with Disco, Jericho, and Johnny Swinger wearing sombreros and making racial remarks to heat up the crowd. Problem was, the crowd was 70% Anglo. <laughs> they started stomping the sombreros and calling the crowd wetbacks. WCW production staff freaked out, thinking you can't put that kind of racial stuff on television. They didn't use that language in WWF. And it went downhill from there. Yes, W when WCW staff is scared of it, how racial something's coming across on television. Holy shit. Well, that's Disco Inferno's idea of a good promo is he's like, all right, who's my opponent? What race are they? Let me use the closest <laughs> slur that I can find. Yes. Superboy, Los Angeles indie wrestler and Kendo, a wrestler from Mexico, actually were the best workers on the car. 
Silver King was doing his cowboy gimmick. He'd been learning rope tricks and apparently tired trying them in the ring. Somehow wound up by accidentally tying himself up with his own rope. They swears they should put that on Nitro because at least he could get over as a comedy figure. Good lord. Jimmy Hart was managing the Puerto Rican group of Dave Sierra and Ricky Santana, and they didn't look good. Prognosis clearly isn't good for this one, although we're told the work in some matches were good. Let's run down the results. Silver King and Dedo Ikendo beat Felino Miano 5 as Superboy in your opener. La Parca, El Sosero, and Super Colo defeated Halloween, El Mosco, and Damian. Blitzky, Blitzkrieg, Ru Reyes, and Pilato Suicida beat Fiano Tercero, El Tejano, and Rey Mysterio Sr. Conan at the Gaza and Rey Mysterio Jr. defeated Juventus Guerrera, El Sicapata, and Perata Morgan. El Sosero, Raul Reyes, and Piloto Suicida defeated El Mosco, Felino, and Hubertu Guerrera. La Parca, Kendo, and Blitzkrieg over Kasayashi, Ron Rivera. Yes, Rudos Video, Ron Rivera. And uh, uh, Psychosis. Viana Tercero, El Tejano, Viana Five, and Rey Mysterio Sr. beat Pet Off. Ricky Santana, Fidel Sierra, and Sicapata. Rey Mysterio Jr., Conan, Hector Garza, and Silver King defeated Chris Jericho, Lenny Lane, Johnny Swinger, Norman Smiley. And Conan defeated Disco Inferno. Now, the entire WCW Latino project and Telemundo deal is off. So there goes that February 24th fair day. The blunt response is that Sharon Sadello cut a bad financial deal for WCW with Telemundo. The belief is that after the first taping in Waco on the 27th, which was disorganized because nobody knew which wrestlers would make it across the border, and almost nobody in WCW was aware Paco Alonso had switched affiliations with WWF, and thus was not going to send any of his wrestlers. That members of the production crew, such as David Crockett and Keith Mitchell, really badmouthed the show to Eric Bischoff. Bischoff had just a few weeks earlier told everyone that getting the show off the ground was a major priority, and a company spent probably in excess of $300,000 creating a hot looking set and a new open before throwing the towel after one taping. Because WCW pulled out, they aren't even going to air the one hour pilot that was, Telemundo had scheduled for a 7 to 8 p.m. time slot on February 24th. And Felina was told specifically by Paco Alonso that if he showed up in Waco, that he'd be fired. He came to Waco anyway. Borley Alonso, who was at the WF show in Phoenix on January 25th, and may have signed a deal with WF, told Felina he was still negotiating with WCW, and that Felina did a Waco show and he made a deal, he insists as a condition that the deal that Felina be fired. So Dave's repeating himself. All right. Case, have you watched this on the award-winning WWE Network? Yeah, this I was excited when this was uploaded because I had heard about it previously, and then I watched the show, and I, I didn't watch it this past week, but I've seen it before, and it's a damn shame that this is the only thing that exists. I really wish this project would have continued. Yeah, this was like one of our holy grails. It, um, I mean, for years and years and years, everybody that was around that was Lucha fans, that knew of this, they wanted to see it. And then we finally got to see it. And yeah, it was, it was really, really good. Really fun. I was glad to see it pop up. Bix, you were around. You remember how everybody was about this show. What were your thoughts when you finally got to watch it? I mean, you know, one thing we should know too is even though I guess you checked and there wasn't really anything in the torch. um, What I remember at the time was I, was it on the high spots form or was it – well, because I think that was getting posted there too. Or was it in Hurricane Ron and John Molinaro's newsletter that there was a much more detailed report? But there was definitely one out there at the time uh, you know, that described some of the angles and stuff. And it always sounded fun. And 
we just never got to see it. And then, you know, thanks to the award-winning WWE Network and the Hidden Gems, which, look, I mean, thankfully we are getting previously unseen stuff again, but we do need to recognize that we never could have expected that they were going to do anything like this. No. No. Who would have thought Last Battle of Atlanta would have popped up? You know, it's, it's stuff like that. Yeah. But... You never would have thought that. I thought it was a lot of fun, and, you know, also not mentioned here is the... So you had the Foreigner's Heel group of Jericho, Lenny Lane, Johnny Swinger, Norman Smiley, and uh, Finley, too, right? Yes. It, uh, no. Uh, it was Lenny Lane... Jericho, Norma Smiley, and Johnny Swinger. Wasn't there a segment with Finley too? I'm not sure if these are even the full results. Because I remember Finley. I, I thought I thought Finley was involved too, but maybe I I thought the same thing, Bex. Okay. Um But there's that heel group, you know, where they're coming out in sombreros and stuff and doing an anti-Mexican gimmick. Which we've talked about. Yeah, and but also there's the heel group of so it's Ron Rivera's American Wild Child, Psychopata. I'm trying to remember who else. But there is well, a results. So, well, I'm looking at the results to try to figure it out because they weren't. I mean, I remember from when the show came out of the network though that they weren't always teaming together. Um, but there's a heel group with them led by Jimmy Hart, where they also have a. It's the Puerto Rican, the Puerto Rican group. They're, they're, oh yeah, it was Dave Sierra, Ricky Santana. Yeah, 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 yeah. But they have a they have an S and M gimp uh, that they beat up, <laughs> which wasn't a killer. No, shockingly enough. So yes. Now also not mentioned here, um, but I believe is true. I know you know Rob Bahari talks about it a lot. The, uh, this show was not advertised as being a taping of WCW Latino or WCW Festival de Lucha or anything. No, that's why there was 70%, as, as mentioned, 70% white. Yes. Or non-Mexican in the crowd, yes. But to the credit of the fans in that crowd and the wrestlers, they were hot for everything, even though it was a show that was mostly non-WCW wrestlers. Yeah. Yeah. So, yeah, if you've never seen it on the award-winning WWE Network, go check it out. It's a hoot. Yeah. It's a bummer to think, uh, had this continued, we probably would have gotten Crazy Max working these shows. Because I just put together that Kendo went straight from these tapings to Japan to work the first Torimon show. And, uh, boy, that would have been fun to see some some Shima Fuji yeah. and Sua on this on Festival de Lucha. Yeah, they probably yeah. would have coordinated the Mexico trips with, uh, with stuff like yeah. that. So that would make sense. Yeah. And so the dots aren't directly connected for some reason. And because I thought I, it felt like something was missing. The implication here is that the deal that Sharon Sadello cut would not support doing dedicated tapings, right? Yeah, I think so. Okay. Because they do end up on Telemundo. I forget exactly when they start, but it ends up being a cut down version of Nitro featuring the matches with Hispanic wrestlers. Yeah, it's it's not the specific show, yeah. Yes, and then when Russo comes in and stops using most of the luchadors, it basically becomes the Filthy Animals Hour. (laughs) Yeah. All right, so, and I'm not shocked that Sharon Sadello did some type of stupid deal, so there you go. All right, shows this week saw Waco draw 2,433, paying 45,126. 
That's an interesting uh, amount of fans and dollar figure for that. Good lord. Yeah, uh, well, I think that's interesting, too, because, again, if it's the pricing and the market, like, it's just weird that they were running this or at least advertise this as a regular show anyway. Like, I'd be curious to see if there's a Waco paper or anything that has ads to see what exact what the actual advertising said in the first place. And if there I were any wrestlers probably, named. I doubt they had probably advertised in the main. They probably did the Mexican uh, uh, Mexican versions and you Spanish language papers. Are any of those online? Uh, not that I know of. All right, January 29th in San Diego, Drew 5133, paying 168, 334. Form in Los Angeles, Drew a sellout, 16,348, paying 302, 145. California shows that have been very good, with the first half being better than the second half. Well, shocking, huh? Best matches both nights were three ways with Hoovy and Kidman for the tie- Cruiserweight title. Gober beat Nash he- headline both nights. In San Diego, Barry Windham actually beat Ric Flair. The advertised tip was that Flair won. He get five minutes here at Bischoff. Since Bischoff no show, they had no choice but to put Wyndham over. Bischoff was in Los Angeles, and Flair beat Wyndham there and used figure form Bischoff. Flair got the biggest crowd reaction both nights. Goldberg was second, although Nash had a lot of cheers in Los Angeles. Dennis Miller was at ringside in Los Angeles. There were reports of George Clooney being backstage as well. How about that? Bodybuilders Paul DeLay, Chris Cormier, Aaron Baker, and Rico McClinton were also at the show. It may have accompanied Conan to ringside for his match with Lex Luger. Speaking of, Lex Luger, Luger suffered a torn bicep tendon in his January 30th match with Los Angeles with Conan. He'll be undergoing surgery and is expected to be up for three months. There's a lot of heat as Luger has been pretty vocal about having wrestled for so long without suffering a serious injury and blaming it on Conan. Planned press times that Luger will appear in Oakland. There'll be no acknowledgement for him of his injury, and they'll do a short match with Nash working the entire way. Apparently, the way the angle is supposed to work out is that Ray loses mass, but Nash brings him into the NWO as his little buddy. Although the second step may not occur right away, as there at one point was supposed to be a singles match of an unmasked Ray pinning Nash, as silly as that sounds. Well, it happens. Yeah, but he doesn't go in the NWO. No, but... Hey, uh, Lex, maybe it has to do with the fact that you're as big as you've been in the last seven years while also... Um, working a harder style than you were working when you were previously so big. That's the thing. I mean, I, I, I want you think that Lex kind of was had I would say penis envy, but had um, bicep envy of Scott Steiner at this point in time, and decided he was going to try to be a, a big as big if not bigger. Would it really shock you? No, it would not shock me. It would not shock me at all. Case, how do you think that could could have played out with Ray joining the NWO as Nash's little buddy? Well, I, I was just about to ask because I, I guess I forgot that Ray and Nash spent so much time working with one another. Is is there a point where Nash turns the corner and sees genuine value in Ray, or is this all maybe not intentionally, but just the long term plan is to make Ray look like an idiot because they accomplished that by taking his mask off? But I, that's Bischoff. That's Bischoff right there. That's all Eric Bischoff is the mask. But Nash and Ray were were good friends. Yeah, that's I I, I mean it's like a Nash Ray tag team sounds like it would have been fun. I mean I I would have liked to have seen that. Now do we need more members of the NWO? No, we do not. But if it's Ray, I'll take it. Uh, yeah, absolutely. But yeah, we don't get that. But Ray gets of course gets pushed with the filthy edibles and you know how that went. So there you go. All right. Um. To a torch at Chris Jericho. Chris Jericho sold WCW probation. 
friends say it will take a big money offer and apology from Bischoff to keep him from joining WF when his WCW contract expires in July. Friends, huh, Bix? Chris Jericho in the Torch News. Friends. Who do you think? <laughs> Chris oh, <Jericho>. oh, uh, <laughs> Donald? <laughs> this is the Torch, Bix. Uh, or do you mean Waltman? Since they were friendly. No, uh, well, Chris Jericho's friendly with Wade. So. That's true. Well, he is until 2001. Yes. Booker T fell out of everyone manager a few months ago when he put up a fuss to Bishop about feeding with Chris Benoit, who he argued was too short. He also bought them a TV match against Scott Norton. Yeah, that first was, one doesn't that, sound that true, a, though. I know, but there was a stuff out about Booker at that time that, 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 that he had become a problem, so to speak, backstage. He had an ego problem. I'm I mean, guessing that one true. of the people who complained about this was a known uh, newsletter complainer who just left the company. <laughs> it's very, very possible, yes. <laughs> Reports that Raph has signed new deals incorrect. This is Dave. But he does feel it's inevitable he's going to stay. He does, but he's away for a while. Bagwell's going to start back in the ring over the weekend on the California shows, but it didn't happen. Uh, Dave noted, guess what Sandman on Nitro in his old role when no reference to the Raven videos means that that, that idea has been scrapped. Apparently there were people who didn't like the videos. Wouldn't you think they show, should have previewed them ahead of time and come to that decision rather than airing three or four of them then abruptly stop referring to them? That'd be so everybody. The barbed wire used in the Sandman debut on February 1st in Minneapolis is rubber barbed wire. Hey, if it looks real, people buy it and it's less dangerous, you should be all for it. There's no glory in getting scarred up and injured when you can accomplish the same thing with less injury risk. Dave's right. Yeah, it looked real enough on Nitro. Yeah, it just wouldn't have been the blood, but, I mean, he's right. But yeah, especially for the visual of him to just come out wrapped in barbed wire, yeah, use rubber barbed wire. Yeah, exactly. For those wondering where the whereabouts Rick Rude was, he did the Backstage Blast show in Minneapolis on February 1st. And I believe that is the Backstage Blast where he's just completely pilled out of his mind. Yeah, I remember buying that because I bought all of them and it was kind of depressing. And yeah. he, look, he, he looks a bit, he has the bloated, uh, bloated uh, drug user look to him too. Yeah, it's sad. I mean, he, he when does he die? Um, it ain't too long. He dies in uh, April. A- April, yeah. April 20th. Mm. DDP was on release to Kathy Lee on January 26th. Heard it was good. DDP seemed nervous and was trying to get over the diamond cutter as his finisher. Ray Lloyd, the former Glacier, was a plant in the audience trying on his new gimmick as a high school PE coach with a whistle. You know that Lane John told us they have gimmick and challenged him. Of course, Paige banged him. And Rita's covered him at page count of three. Crowd didn't pop for the cutter, even though Paige spent his Jimmy trying to pre-program for the one spot. This was so silly. I mean, why are you doing the Coach Buzz Stern ang- uh, gimmick on fucking Rita's and Kathy Lee? Jesus. It's a bad sign when Regis can't get over a wrestling angle because I always I, know. I always enjoyed his interactions. I always thought he, he covered wrestling very well, and, and this fell flat, which is an indictment on on not Regis. I will never say a bad word about him. Oh, yeah, Regis is an all-timer, absolutely. It's Glacia, Gelman. <laughs> <laughs> Don't you know his name is Glacia? <laughs> Goldberg was offered a guest shot on ER. Hey, I guess that's the George Clooney connection. 
But WCW nixed it because the filming would conflict with Monday Nitro. Some heat over that, since they don't book Goldberg a lot on Mondays anyway. And now they won't give him off when he has a chance to be seen to more people than have ever seen him before. Yeah, if he was offered a shot at ER at this point in time, give let him go. Let him get the spotlight. I guess I guess they were scared that you know he's gonna get too big for his britches and wanna leave us and go Hollywood. But this is the last Clooney season, right? So they're still huge. Yes. Very huge. In fact, the uh the ratings for that season uh, did a seventeen. They did a seventeen point eight, twenty nine point six million viewers every week. Average. Any shares? Because I remember, at least in the first couple seasons, they were doing like thirty. I mean, excuse me, forty shares and stuff. Um, I don't see shares on what I'm looking at, but for our week, we're talking about right here. They had thirty point forty eight million viewers. Okay, now. Have either of you ever seen this episode of ER? I'm guessing uh, Case has not. I have not. Have you seen any episodes of ER? Uh, no, I'm very aware of it, but I have not seen any episodes. Yes, I think they're on Hulu, maybe, and they may also be on Pop TV still. Now, Chris, when they be on Peacock, it's Warner Bros. It's a Warner Bros. No, I have not. I wasn't an ER guy. So there is an episode titled Sticks and Stones that airs on March 25th. And it features a muscle-bound, bald-goateed wrestler character named Kornberg. (laughs) Now, who do you guys think plays Kornberg? I don't know. Why, that would be Nils Allen Stewart of the Jesse Ventura story fame. Of course. ER was the number one rated show on television during the season. So uh, maybe this just wasn't in people's minds because The Rock hadn't become The Rock yet. But at this point, was there a, a legitimate fear in WCW that maybe Goldberg would be a, st- a bigger star outside of wrestling? Absolutely. Really? OK. Absolutely. All right. Just to give you the gist. Well, also remember, <laughs> he has his uh, contract dispute coming up, too. Yeah. Just to give you the gist of must-see TV. On Thursday nights in this era, uh, during this 1998-99 season. Friends was the 8 o'clock show, 15.7 rating, number two on all television. After that was Jesse, which was fifth. Jesse was the Christina Applegate show, which only went two seasons. But did 13.7 rating this season. Um, it, it, It was the fall show. There was a, a show named Will and Grace that was the spring show. And then Jesse came back for the summer. Frasier was the 9 o'clock show. It did a 15.6, number three in all television. Veronica's Closet was next. It was tied for fifth with Jesse, 13.7. And then Will and Grace took his spot in the summer. And then ER at 10, number one in all television. For the entire season, 17.8 rating. So in that three-hour time span, you had the number one, number two, number three, and the two shows tied for fifth in all television. Not bad. Not bad at all. And I just checked. We are two episodes removed when that airs from uh, George Clooney's last episode. There you go. It it, it was aired on February 18th, and then— I mean, this, you know, actually, this is the first 
regular episode though since i because so then the week later they did what might be the worst episode in the entire run of er the one where uh, eric lasalle's dr peter benton goes to a backwoods part of mississippi as like a touring doctor to make extra money for his son's speech therapy <laughs> and and it's a and it, you know it's an entire you know away from the hospital episode i don't aside from i think one person at the beginning there are I don't think there are any other regulars in the episode. And then they're gone for a month and come back with the Kornberg episode. Naturally. Which is also where they, uh, I believe from reading the description, also start setting up that Juliana Margulies' character is pregnant by George Clooney's character. Because uh, it talks about how, I think it's initially like she's depressed and getting headaches and stuff. And then it turns, I think it eventually turns out in the next episode or two that she's, that the st it's stress mixed with pregnancy is why she's not feeling great. Well, there you go. There's your ER update, folks, for the show. <laughs> All right. Um, to the torch. The internal audit of WCB's finances is ongoing. On Nitro last week, Bischoff's character complained about internal audits and lost money as a way to vent about real life behind the scenes frustrations. <laughs> <laughs> so, wait a second. You're doing an audit of a company? That you are siphoning money away from to make look less profitable? I know. Okay. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. I know. Turner, Turner, uh, well, it was AOL Time Warner. Well, time, just Time Warner at this point. Time Warner, everybody. Yeah, AOL is January 2001. Yeah. The women who accused the giant of exposing himself to, to them, or the woman, whatever, this person himself to her, although legal charges were dropped by the Memphis police the next day, sued the giant WCW for $500,000 last week. Wasn't it away from a show? Why did she sue WCW? Trying to get money on anybody she can get, I guess. I don't know. Wasn't it like a hotel or something where that happened? Yeah, it was, yeah, it was not on, at, a, at a WCW event, but he was employed by WCW, so they're gonna, she's going to sue them too. Maybe she heard about WCW in lawsuits. I don't know. Well... I'm trying to remember what was the exact story here, though. Like, when was this? It would have been '98. Let me look. I'm going to search for Paul White and decent exposure to just to refresh our memories here. Well, anyway, all right. So to close out, we have news on Bix's favorite WCW employee. Well, actually, wait. Or no, okay. I did. I found the smoking gun. Former WCW employee, Chris. Okay, I, look, it just has the mugshot. It doesn't have any paperwork. But the smoking gun post from years ago says, uh, Big Joe, blah, 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 arrested December 98 by Memphis cops allegedly exposed, for allegedly exposing himself to a female motel employee. The criminal case, though, was subsequently dropped due to insufficient evidence. Uh, now he wrestles his Big Show for... Because this is a few years later where they posted the mugshot. So, yeah, it was... Only a few weeks earlier, um, but they did not have enough to prosecute, apparently. There you go. All right, now that Terry Taylor is gone, Vampiro's WCW stance seems to be off again. Taylor was an advocate for him. And then Dave Meltzer says, apparently this departure Terry Taylor went something like this. Bischoff jumped Taylor about rumors he was going to WF and told him if he wasn't happy in WCW, just leave. Taylor talked about being under pressure with his father having health problems, and Bischoff offered him time off without pay. The next day, he made a deal with McMahon. Uh, well, there you go. And Bischoff, and, and the thing is, 
Taylor does cooperate that on uh, the shoot he did with Feinstein in 2000. Well, also, this is from when he's back in the. And if you believe Dave, and I don't believe Dave would lie about this, so I believe him, um, he never talked to Terry Taylor pretty much past after I think I see think he said he bumped into him bar after a show once but other than that had not talked never talked to him between what was it 1989 and whenever he tweeted that a year or two ago yeah something like that so it's not coming directly from Terry Taylor um now as far as the Vampiro part real quick as uh, Bob Barnett posted on RSPW during our week on January 27th at the way it is on Google Groups says 3 a.m. even, 3 a.m. in zero seconds. Vampiro's debut was abruptly, quote-unquote, postponed on WCW, coming on the, hand, on the excuse me, on the heels of Terry Taylor's who signed him departure. I smell salad. I presume that's a reference to Conan and salad tossing. I guess so, yes. Or references to salad tossing. Yes. But, yeah, uh, yes, the... Uh, the weekly "What is Vampiro doing and why hasn't he retar- been on TV?" Uh, updates from Bob Barnett. Mm-hmm. But yeah, so Terry Taylor goes to the WWF for what, like eight months? Yeah, and then leaves with Russo. Mm-hmm. And he, how much was he working on creative once he was in WWF? I think we covered it a little. Yeah, he was. He was involved. But he was also working as a uh, B-show announcer, doing color on... He was doing both, yes. On Metal, I think? He was on... Yeah, those the shows with uh, Kevin Kelly, I think, was his uh, partner. He might have also been hosting one of the recap shows, too. Possible. But this is, this is honestly... This post-wrestling run for him, this late 90s, early 2000s stuff before TNA... This might actually be the weirdest run of his career in wrestling. He's doing all kinds of stuff. He's just going back and forth and back and forth. If he WCW closes, he be, you know, there's the John Collins stuff, but he also becomes like a freelance road agent and trainer at Southern Indie shows and just all sorts of weird stuff that's going on with Terry Taylor in that time frame. Um and of course oh, and of course, I have to mention uh, getting WCW sued to the point where they had to pay uh, what we believe to be eight figures in settlements. Also during that run. Yeah. Terry Taylor, everybody. <laughs> Absolutely. All right, that is it for us this week. Case, love having you on your first time, so go ahead and plug away, my man. What's going on with you? Oh, my goodness. Well, thank you, both Bix and Chris, for having me on. This was delightful. Uh, I am on Twitter at underscore in your case. Uh, Most of my work can be found on VoicesOfWrestling.com. In particular, I will highlight uh, the Open the Voice Gate podcast, which is on their podcasting network. Uh, Myself and Mike Spears cover Drangate every single week. Those episodes typically come out on Wednesday. Uh, we review every Dragon Gate show. We do a lot of retro content, a lot of what we call Dragon System buffets, talking about old Grand Hamada or Ultimo Dragon or Torimon stuff, as well as obviously everything that's going on in Dragon Gate right now. And uh, the thing that we're really excited about is it, it was published the day of this recording, so it's up on VoicesOfWrestling.com. The 2022 Dragon Gate Primer. So we just ran down everybody on the roster with a description of who they are and what currently is going on with them in the promotion. 
all of the big events, how to watch them. If you've never seen a second of Dragon Gate before, you should be able to read this article, and then not only will you understand what's going on now, but I listed 20 classic Dragon Gate and Toriyama matches that are readily available on the Dragon Gate network that you can watch immediately. So please go check that out. Uh, please follow the Open the Voice Gate podcast, and like I said, I'm on Twitter, at underscore in your case. Well, that awesome. sounds... Go, very necessary, I think, for me, too, because I've, I've been wanting to watch more Dra- Dragon Gate since the Yoshino retirement show, because I had checked that out, and I enjoyed it quite a bit, but definitely had been wanting a primer of sorts like that to familiarize myself with the current characters and not have to be like, oh, wait, so who's Natural Vibes? Yeah, it, it, the the big issue with Drangate in terms of their their outreach right now is that the network is flawed where you know a show will air live on the Drangate network and it's up there for a week and then it's going to go away for a long time so Bix I would love to be able to direct you to the the very noteworthy January Cork and Hall shows I cannot do it on the Drangate network maybe I can find you a link elsewhere uh, but for February the the February 4th Cork and Hall show that's coming up uh, you'll be able to read that primer and you'll have an understanding of of hopefully what's going on in the promotion was that always how they handled it? I feel like I've watched stuff that was archived on there beyond like a week or so. It, it Yeah, so it, Gaiora handles their streaming service, so we're unfortunately dealing with their Iron Fest. Uh, so, yeah, so a show will go up, it'll air live, and then you've got a week to watch it, and then it'll disappear. And then every six months or so, it's filtered back on the network. It's a really poor system, but because it's Gaiora and not Dragon Gate, who prides themselves in customer service and making sure their fans are happy, I don't see any changes to this happening anytime soon. It's the big drawback of the promotion right now. So it's they don't want it really up other than live and the like immediate replays because for what? However many months they're filtering reruns of it through their regular network? that's my assumption okay. i that is it that is a question to probably reach out to jay uh dgj on twitter and and figure that out from him but yeah it's it's a very poor system for a, a network that runs flawlessly they have the first you know at this point i think three and a half years of torimon tv available in their archives they've been including uploading, you know, from, stuff yes they're they're about halfway through the t2p run right now so the the next upload should be september of 2002 which if anybody knows the promotion that's absolutemente with the uh the crazy max versus italian connection six man and darkness dragon versus dragon kid so that will hopefully hit the network in february of 2022 uh but you've got 1999 through you know that point all up there plus you know all the kobe worlds all of the big pay-per-views that are currently on their schedule those are all on the network as well so if you if you need any help anybody listening navigating the dragon gate network it can be a little intimidating but i'm on twitter feel free to reach out to me and i can direct you to what you need to find and props to jay i mean this guy has he's been doing this forever and ever i mean basically from the beginning and of all the guys that started doing their own different sites to, dedicated to one promotion or whatever. He's still going. <laughs> he, he's he's still the going. greatest. He's the greatest resource there is. He's always been incredibly kind to me, which I really appreciate. He has become such a strong play-by-play man. And recently, because Ho-Ho Loon, who's normally his color commentator, Ho-Ho's been in, uh, in America, actually. So Dragon Gate has been sending Jay Japanese wrestlers up to the English commentary table. And Jay has been talking to them in Japanese and then translating what they say into English while calling the match in English. And there is not another commentator in the game that can do that. It's really impressive. Yeah, it is. It really is. 
All right. Well, again, thanks for being on. All right. So next week. Oh, also, I just realized something. (laughs) What? We never mentioned this this show was a Patreon pick. Yeah, it did at the beginning. Are you sure? Because when we, 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 remember, you almost forgot to mention the week. Well. I don't think we ever said Jared Hunt's name. Thanks, Jared Hunt. Yes. Jared Hunt definitely requested this show. So definitely want to thank Jared Hunt for requesting the show. And, uh, yeah. Yeah, if you, yeah, if you want to do that, twenty five dollars gets you the opportunity to pick that show, for the, pick a show for the week. Patreon.com. God damn it! All right, Patreon.com slash between the sheets. Yes. Yeah, which I just said. All right, so next week on Between the Sheets, which is not a Patreon show, we go back to nineteen ninety three, and we have War Wrestling Federation, where it looks like Hulk Hogan will be returning very soon. So we talk about that. We'll also talk about WF getting in some very hot water for the Yokozuna Hacksaw Jim Duggan match that airs on Superstars during our week. So we'll talk about that. Plus, we'll have other news as the crews are split in half. Half of them's in Europe, half of them's in the United States. So we'll talk about the house shows going on there. And we have a very interesting film, Mushnet Column, to talk about during our week. Uh, uh, we got uh, all the indie stuff going on, including a lot of stuff in Dallas, the Metroplex. A lot of shows running there. We got news on Austin Idol's promotion in Alabama that's yeah. about to get going. So we have that. We got USWA, where Doink the Clown is running wild in the studio. We have a lot of clips. of the, of for the, So get ready of that. Jim Cornette. And Smoky Mount Wrestling now has Heavenly Bodies Incorporated. So we'll talk about that. There's three members of the Heavenly Bodies now. Bobby Eaton, Tom, and Sweet Stan. So we'll have uh, news on that. And we got Lucha, where we'll talk about this stuff going on there, including uh, Negro Casas, Turning Technico, and CMLL. We have AAA running a hot TV and, and the pouring down rain. So we'll talk about that. We got news on Masakasunaki, Minoru Suzuki, and what their plans are now that they've left PWFG. We got Wing running a double shot at Cork and Hall. We got a couple of New Japan, big New Japan shows to talk about. New Japan also wants a piece of Hulk Hogan, so we'll talk about that. And then we go to World Championship Wrestling. Oh, boy. Where we have uh, the Heavenly Bodies showing up at center stage. Where there were two versions of the promo that aired, one on WWE Saturday Night, and one that aired on Smoky Mountain Wrestling, and we will have the Smoky Mountain Wrestling version, which was a little bit different. So we'll talk about that and why there were two different versions of that promo. We got news of TV taping at the center stage. We got uh, Omni to talk about, but the big big news in WCW, the bloodbath in WCW hierarchy as Bill Watts gets demoted and changes are coming across the board as yes, Bill Watts hasn't left yet. We've already done that week. That's two days after our week, but this is the buildup to Bill Watts leaving the company. Yes. Although he's not even formally demoted. It's that they add the pay-per-view head and executive producer jobs. Well, that's what we're talking about. Yes. No, I'm just saying to work alongside him, seemingly with the the idea being that the two non-wrestling people would always outvote him. He basically demoted, in a way. He demoted without actually giving him a demotion, yes. Yes. 
So we'll have news on that. We'll have the news on the new corporate structure. Who could, uh, who could pay the price on this? Who could be doing well on this? And possibility of who may be joining the booking committee. Now there's going to be a booking committee. And what does all this mean for WCW in the future? And how it could all play out with Ric Flair and his entry into the company. So we'll have all that and more. And we will be joined by a first-time guest who I thought might be perfect for a show like this, considering some of the principles we're talking about. That's next week, making his debut on Between the Sheets, John Muse. Oh. John Muse, next week on Between the Sheets. And considering what we're talking about and who we're talking about, this is going to be one of the Between the Sheets episodes you must listen to. And I'm not, you know, bullshitting anyway. Because John (laughs) Muse knows Eric Bischoff pretty damn good and knows how Bischoff thinks. So this is a perfect show for John Muse to be on. Well, not only that, but also, you know, one of the favorite topics of the more prolific observer letter writers of the era, like him and Jeff Baldwin, Bill Watson, Ole Anderson. Yes. So, yeah, it's, uh, John will be joining us, and I'm very excited about that. So, yeah, it should be a hell of a show. Next week on Between the Sheets. But this week was a hell of a show as well. Okay. Yes, although we, we should make clear, though, for people who don't know, John Muse was hired by, or whatever, I don't know what the what it was formally, but he, he was being brought on by Bischoff for the fusion version of WCW to book the Cruiserweight division. He was going to book the Torimon guys <laughs> to bring it all back in one yes. big old boat. <laughs> well done. Yeah, so he was, going, he was going to be in charge of them, and he was a big proponent of those guys, so... There you go. But uh, Case, we definitely appreciate you being on. We'll have you back on the future, probably for a 2000 show, to get you more in line with uh, an era that you uh, would would be more familiar with, so to speak, that you actually were living during. (laughs) (laughs) That'd be great. Please have me back on any time. Absolutely. Bix, thank you as always. You're the rock of the show. And this is Chris saying so long from the Peach State of Georgia.
Hello, everyone. Welcome to Between the Sheets Patreon Special Edition number 64. I'm your host, Chris Zoller. Joined, as always, by my co-host, David Bix and Spin and Bix. It's not a Patreon show, basically, in, in these recent days without us talking about a Philadelphia <laughs> independent wrestling promotion. <laughs> you know? Yeah, pretty much. Yeah, yeah. Heyman's cursed us. But... He's not involved in this. No, he's not. Well, Todd is. Todd Gordon is, but Paul Heyman is not. So this is a Heyman-free Patreon show. But not an Andy Gilbert-free Patreon show, although oh, no. we don't get in the weeds with him, but he's there. Yeah, well, he's a prominent person in, in this uh, promotion we're going to talk about. So we're talking about Joel Goodhart's TWA, the original Super Indie. And uh, we're going to talk about how it came to fruition and talk about, you know, what happened with what they did, the shows and everything else that's going on, including the end, which was uh, quite sudden in the end as they had a big show planned and they couldn't do it because money ran out. Yep. And we're, I mean, but we're covering based on all the clippings and stuff I could get the whole, uh, pretty much the whole Joel Goodhart story, at least, as we could find it. Well, so this is going to be interesting because that's part of his story, just as we give the introduction here. So he was a fairly well-to-do Philadelphia fan, and, you know, not going to get too into the weeds because he's profiled in the Philly Inquirer and some other papers a few times. And he started his radio show, the fan club, bus trips all over the place, travel packages to major shows in places that you couldn't do a bus trip to, wrestling stores we'll get to in a sec, and then finally this big super indie, Tri-State Wrestling Alliance, where he basically ran quarterly spectaculars at Pennsylvania Hall, smaller building connected to the Philly Civic Center, Philly Civic Center excuse me, and would run a regular indie schedule of smaller shows that were less loaded but still had names on top in between. And also ring announce at Spectrum and uh, Civic Center shows. <laughs> As Joel Goodhart of the Squared Circle radio show. Yes. Yes. WWF. I'm telling you, him. And also yeah. ends up ring announcing for Dennis Corluzo and Larry Sharp's WWA and doing some business with them before they split up, which we'll be talking about in detail later, although not, not as much when it happens as later when we get a post-mortem from Corluzo and Sharp. But, yeah, I mean, is there anything else we should do as far as preamble? Like, to, or not really, because we're going to get these details. Uh, Joel, Joel, Joel Goodhart is like the, you know, he's like the trendsetter for what we've had in recent years in the indie scene. A guy who is just a fan, you know, who had money and decided to open up his own promotion. Yeah. You know? And... You know, super indie, because so much of those major shows, at least, are just filled with flying names. You know? Yeah. He, he's booking the best available unsigned wrestlers. Easily. Most, yeah, yeah. All right, well, let's get started. 1989, the week of April the 3rd. Philadelphia Daily News, April the 3rd. He puts out Matt Welcome. Wrestling has a hold on Talk Philadelphia Fan by Dan Geringer. 
Sure, Joel Goodhart's Philadelphia's Mr. Wrestling. Sure, it's just debuting his wrestling radio call-in show Saturday mornings on WIP AM 610 last September. Goodhart's life has been in an ending series of great moments with large individuals you don't want to aggravate. Sure, as Mega Maven and the 800-member Squared Circle Fan Club, Goodhart spends his days and nights arranging celebrity luncheons with the likes of 400-pound Bam Bam Bigelow and booking club trips on buses that show wrestling videos continuously while motoring towards matches in far-off lands like Tennessee. Observing the hostilities, Goodhart was pleased his party was going well, thus preoccupied somewhat with the upcoming Ric Flair banquet. He carries two proposed menus in his briefcase at all times, worrying about those vital culinary details, the freshness of the ingredients, the sprightness of the presentation. They can make the from a banquet to remember in Gristlemania. He pulled out the proposals and weighed the chicken Brazilian with tomatoes and broccoli against the beef jardinier with potatoes and chef's vegetable. What the hell is a chef's vegetable, he asked, suspiciously. Sounds like whatever they got left over from the last banquet. Most fans aren't into this fancy stuff. I think we'll go with a simple Roy Rogers-type salad and the beef. <laughs> Three and a half years after he became obsessed... Early on, the radio show started in now defunct WDVT. Goodhart's company cleared just enough on the banquet to finally put the squared circle on a positive cash flow basis, even after he deducts major expenses like the food and the $1,200 gold plate at Wrestling Year, Wrestle the Decade Championship belt. I'm going to honor Flair, Goodhart said, and hopefully meet my name at the same time. It's my bar mitzvah. It's my wedding. It's my big thing. I'll let it come out with this with national radio syndication. I'll let it become the Dr. Roof of Wrestling. She makes a couple million a year talking about what she knows best. Hey, also for a couple hundred grand. Okay. The Dr. Roof of Wrestling. <laughs> so at first it says a hundred grand over the last few years in lost compensation. That implies that his main loss in these four years was just spending time on wrestling that he could have spent on selling more insurance policies and getting that's what I that's 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 what I got. For the hundred grand. However, yeah. With the scale he's got and the parts that shouldn't cost that much, how the hell would this be the thing that finally makes them cash flow positive? You have 800 members of a fan club. You should be able to scale your fan club so that it's at least that it's profitable. At least just that you have enough cash coming in just from memberships and stuff. Like how... What? How bad a businessman is this guy in our, outside of selling insurance? Maybe those people were cheap. We, very weird. I'm not sure. I'm not sure what I make of this yet. Um, but also, it broke up his marriage. Yeah, that's never good. No. Um, it's been a while since I don't even know when the last time I've heard the term would be that I had anything that was called chef's vegetable, but I think. It's usually like like an oven like well it's but usually I don't think it's usually chef's vegetable on its own it's potato and chef's vegetable it's like roasted potato and then like what is it usually like roasted cauliflower carrots and like one other thing I think your chef's vegetable yeah depends on the chef but yeah um also like you you're doing this banquet you don't need to get Ric Flair a twelve hundred dollar belt <laughs> well. Of course not, but they're Marcia Ric Flair, so they're going to do something to impress Ric Flair to get him to come to their banquet. Well, is it even they at this point? Isn't it just Joel, probably? I don't know. who. I don't know. 
I don't know what the, when, the, when the Panthers got out of it. Let's put it that way. Yeah, I'm not sure. You, I think they were on the radio show for a while longer, but I'm not sure about the rest. All right. Um, let's go a few months into 1989, October 23rd, Philadelphia Day News, October 25th. Excerpt from The Gods Are Good to Good Heart by Dan Garinger. Good Heart started small doing a one hour radio call in show and now the fun WDBT AM. Then moved his wrestling radio hour to WIP Saturdays at 8 AM. His Square Circle Fan Club grew from a couple hundred to a thousand members. He promoted weekly lunches with wrestling stars in Northeast sports bars. One night in the middle of the night, he sat bolt upright in the bed and envisioned promoting a wrestling decade banquet at the Civic Center for Nature Boy Ric Flair. A six-time world champion in National Wrestling Alliance, Superstar Fonda throwing his peroxide blonde head back and howling woo in an eerie wail when he's around, whenever he's around the ring. Goodhart and his wrestling radio faithful are fierce National Wrestling Alliance fans who believe the Ron World Wrestling Federation starring Hulk Hogan's a giant cow pie in the pro wrestling pasture. Funny, because he worked for them. Uh, he took their money. <laughs> Too much bluster, not enough black and blue. So Flair won the wrestling radio poll by a margin of, I guess, 15 to 1? It's IS the one here, or IS to I, I don't know, and agreed to come to the April 30th. Yeah, it's 15 to 1. That's a, it's a uh, newspapers.com OCR that I make, missed. I got most of them, but it happens. Overjoyed, Goodhart rented the Civic Center's Plaza Ballroom. Price tickets at a stiff $75 a head. And after days of careful consideration, chose, chose the beef jardinier. Well, I'm glad we got that settled. He wanted to do something that would endear Philadelphia and the Square Circle fan club to flare forever, so he spent $1,200 on a championship-style wrestler of the decade belt. One of those huge gold-plated jobs that like armor. Wrestling insiders told him he was nuts to think he'd break even. They were wrong. 138 paid. Goodhart had the moment videotaped for posterity and for sale. The other day he stopped by with a master tape. We watched together as Goodhart told the crowd, I cannot believe this thing actually came off. When the B. Jardinier was history and the moment the truth was at hand, Flair was clearly stunned by the magnificence of his record of the decade belt. I'm speechless, he said, to know that you think so highly of me. And then his eyes teared up and his voice failed him. That's not Ric Flair the wrestler, Goodhart said. That's Ric Flair the man. This guy has integrity. Word has got out that Goodhart has integrity too. This Saturday, for the first time ever, the National Wrestling Alliance is presenting a major review live telecast for Philadelphia. Halloween Havoc 89 at Civic Center, which will feature Ric Flair and company beating each other senseless in a 30-foot by 30-foot electrified steel cage. Bruno and San Martino, living legend, will be the special referee. And who did the NWA manager come to for San Martino's home phone number so they can ask him the referee? Joel Goodhart. I remember Bruno feuding with George Animal still back in the 60s at the old arena, 46th and Market, Goodhart says. They feuded through the concession stands, out the doors, into Market Street and back. I grew up with Bruno. Bruno was wrestling to me. And now here I am, getting my first god, Bruno, together with my second god, Ric Flair. Goodhart shakes his head in awe. You look at these guys, he says. You realize the wars they've been through. Yesterday, Goodhart met with syndication guys about going East Coast Regional and wrestling radio. If that happens, he figures his exclusive rights to distribute Caribbean wrestling tapes will pay off. If you're in the gore, he explains, there's more gore than in North America. You see heads busted wide open and stitched up on TV, tables flying, forks being used. Forks? Forks, Goodhart happily says. Forks! <laughs> this is such a, 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 a interesting time in the smart wrestling fan universe because mm -hmm. you have 
the you, I mean, you didn't read the old observers. I mean, you have these viewing parties and tape all the parties. tape tape parties, tape trading. You know, I mean, it is a it's like the Wild West in ways, and it's just really interesting to look at how how things were back then. Yeah, compared Resi's to I mean, now a few months in too. Yeah, compared to how it is now, where everybody can watch everything at, at, at any time, and you could have you know Twitter watch parties or whatever. Everybody's you know watching live streams and stuff and commenting, but back then it was totally different, you know, and how the how it was done. Yeah, and so also real quick before I forget, does this mean the English clamshell double double C videos were all from Goodhart? It was very possible. I didn't know that, did you? No. I, I don't see what else they could even be talking about. Plus, Timeline 89? I mean, that's when a lot of those came out. Yeah. You know? So, hmm. Interesting. It also makes me wonder then, too, remember when just a ton of them hit eBay, like, God, 20 years ago? Along with, see, like brand new too. Like, I wonder if that was someone, I think they had a lot of Coliseum videos as well, but I wonder if that person bought out stuff he had. That's possible. Yes. Now, all of that said, what a fucking mark. <laughs> yeah, yeah, absolutely. That's Ric Flair. He has integrity. <laughs> okay, so let's also do the math here. So, one. 38 times 75 means he grossed $10,350. So I don't know how much it costs to rent the room. Um, With this type of thing, I'm assuming the food cost is taken out of each admission. Um, I, I mean, I, if it's a success, I guess it's a success. I don't know if it made a profit or if it's just breaking even, but... And good for him, I guess. Doing it, you know, doing it the weekend of a Civic Center show makes sense, too. Um, one thing I had not realized as well, those lunch things were weekly? They weren't just around Civic Center shows and stuff? What it sounds like. That's not something I realized. It may be the week-to-week -week ones are locals and stuff, but... And it's just weird to me... Oh... Okay. All right. So this. All right. So I'm looking at uh, the Philadelphia Daily News right now from the Friday, the two days four, mm -hmm. the Flair thing, and yeah, Flair is not announced. I mean, so I mean, Flair is not booked on that show. He's not announced at all. Huh. But right up, right up under it is the rest of the '80s award banquet. Sunday afternoon, 4:30 p.m. at the Civic Center. So it was at the Civic Center where the show was held. And it was three and a half hours before the show started. Sponsored by Wrestling Radio Fan Club. Um, open to the public, $85 per person. Oh. Fan, fan, fan club member, $75. Okay. So we should probably do multiply it by $80 then, right? Includes, yeah. full, course, inc includes full course dinner, autographs, posing for pictures, and more. Reservations and proper dress requ required. Which we always know goes great with wrestling fans. They they always respect the dress codes at fancy events. Well, you know, maybe back then they, that this group did. Well, also in a, like in a 
ballroom type setting with a dinner well, it, different. Like, well, it just said the civic center. It didn't say where in the civic center. Well, no, it was a ballroom thing. But... I know, but it just said the oh, civic the center. Oh, the ad only says civic center. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Mm. Um, cause I, the fans at the WWE Hall of Fame generally did at least wear collared shirts and stuff before the Hall of Fame became an arena event, right? Yes. 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 It was the switch to the arena event that really changed things. Yes. Absolutely. Um, hmm. So, but, yeah. interesting. Weird, though. I, I still can't wrap my head around Flair not being on that show. Yeah, I know. Maybe he figured he was going to have such a good time at this banquet that he was going to be, not going to be in condition to perform. Hmm. You know what I'm saying? Perhaps. All right. Uh, week of January 15th, 1990. Philadelphia Daily News, January 17th. Except from Going to the Mat for a Dream by Dan Geringer. Yes, if you haven't already figured it out, everyone, he sure seems to have this fellow wrapped around his finger. Oh, yeah. Opinion among Joel Goodhart's peers was evenly divided. Some thought he was crazy. Others thought he was nuts. But the Flair Dinner sold out. Why are we still talking about the Flair Dinner in January 1990, Bix? That's weird to me. To hear this entire show, support Between the Sheets on Patreon for just $5 per month. Go to patreon.com slash between the sheets.